This is Audible. Brought to you by Penguin. Humble Pie, a comedy of maths errors. Written and read by me, Matt Parker. Chapter Zero. Introduction. In 1995, Pepsi ran a promotion where people could collect Pepsi points and then trade them in for Pepsi stuff. A T-shirt was 75 points, sunglasses were 175 points, and there was even a leather jacket for 1,450 points. Wearing all three at once would get you some serious 90s points. The TV commercial where they advertised the points for stuff concept featured someone doing exactly that. But the people making the commercial wanted to end it on some zany bit of classic Pepsi craziness. So wearing the t-shirt, shades and leather jacket, the ad protagonist flies his Harrier jet to school. Apparently, this military aircraft could be yours for 7 million Pepsi points. The joke is simple enough. They took the idea behind Pepsi points and extrapolated it until it was ridiculous. Solid comedy writing. But then they seemingly didn't do the maths. Seven million sure does sound like a big number, but I don't think the team creating the ad bothered to run the numbers and check it was definitely big enough. But someone else did. At the time, each AV-8 Harrier II jump jet brought into action cost the United States Marine Corps over 20 million US dollars. And... Thankfully, there is a simple way to convert between US dollars and Pepsi points. Pepsi would let anyone buy additional points for 10 cents each. Now, I'm not familiar with the market for second-hand military aircraft, but a price of $700,000 on a $20 million aircraft sounds like a good investment. As it did to John Leonard, who tried to cash in on this. And it was not just some lame tried, he went all in. The promotion required that people claimed with an original order form from the Pepsi Stuff catalogue, traded a minimum of 15 original Pepsi points, and included a check to cover the cost of any additional points required, plus $10 for shipping and handling. John did all of that. He used an original form, he collected 15 points from Pepsi products, and he put $708.50 into escrow with his attorneys to back the check. The guy actually raised the money. He was serious. Pepsi initially refused his claim. The Harrier jet in the Pepsi commercial is fanciful and is simply included to create a humorous and entertaining ad. But Leonard was already lawyered up and ready to fight. His attorneys fired back with, This is a formal demand that you honour your commitment and make immediate arrangements to transfer the new Harrier jet to our client. Pepsi didn't budge. Leonard sued and it went to court. The case involved a lot of discussion over whether the commercial in question was obviously a joke or if someone could conceivably take it seriously. The official notes from the judge acknowledge how ridiculous this is about to become. Plaintiff's insistence that the commercial appears to be a serious offer requires the court to explain why the commercial is funny. 
explaining why a joke is funny is a daunting task. But they give it a go. The teenagers comment that flying a Harrier jet to school sure beats the bus evinces an improbably insouciant attitude toward the relative difficulty and danger of piloting a fighter plane in a residential area as opposed to taking public transport. No school would provide landing space for a student's fighter jet or condone the disruption the jet's use would cause. In light of the Harrier jet's well-documented function in attacking and destroying surface and air targets, armed reconnaissance and air interdiction and offensive and defensive anti-aircraft warfare, depiction of such a jet as a way to get to school in the morning is clearly not serious. Leonard never got his jet, and Leonard v. PepsiCo Inc. is now a part of legal history. I, personally, find it reassuring that if I say anything which I characterize as zany humor, there is a legal precedent to protect me from people who take it seriously. And if anyone has a problem with that, simply collect enough Parker points for a free photo of me not caring. Postage and handling charges may apply. Pepsi took active steps to protect itself from future problems and re-released the ad with the Harrier increase in value to 700 million Pepsi points. I find it amazing that they did not choose this big number in the first place. It's not like 7 million was funnier. The company just didn't bother to do the mass when choosing an arbitrary large number. As humans, we are not good at judging the size of large numbers. And even when we know one is bigger than another, we don't appreciate the size of the difference. I had to go on the BBC News in 2012 to explain how big a trillion is. The UK debt had just gone over one trillion pounds and they wheeled me out to explain that that is a big number. Apparently shouting, it's really big. And now back to you in the studio was insufficient, so I had to give an example. I went with my favourite method of comparing big numbers to time. We know a million, a billion and a trillion are different sizes, but we often don't appreciate the staggering increases between them. A million seconds from now is just shy of 11 days and 14 hours. Not so bad, I could wait that long, it's within two weeks. A billion seconds is over 31 years. A trillion seconds from now is after the year 33,700. These surprising numbers actually make perfect sense after a moment's thought. Million, billion, and trillion are each a thousand times bigger than each other. A million seconds is roughly a third of a month. And so a billion seconds is on the order of 330, a third of a thousand months. And if a billion is around 31 years, then of course a trillion is around 31,000 years. During our lives, we learn that numbers are linear, that the spaces between them are all the same. If you count from 1 to 9, each number is one more than the previous one. If you ask someone what number is halfway between 1 and 9, they will say 5 but only because they have been taught to. Wake up, sheeple. Humans instinctively perceive numbers logarithmically, not linearly. 
a young child or someone who has not been indoctrinated by education will place three halfway between one and nine. Three is a different kind of middle. It's the logarithmic middle, which means it's a middle with respect to multiplication rather than addition. One times three equals three. Three times three equals nine. You can go from one to nine by either adding equal steps of four or multiplying by equal steps of three. So the multiplication middle is three. And that is what humans do by default until we are taught otherwise. When members of the indigenous Mundaraku group in the Amazon were asked to place groups of dots where they belong between one dot and ten dots, they put groups of three dots in the middle. If you have access to a child of kindergarten age or younger, with parents who don't mind you experimenting on them, they will likely do the same thing when distributing numbers. Even after a lifetime of education dealing with small numbers, there is a vestigial instinct that large numbers are logarithmic, that the gap between a trillion and a billion feels about the same as the jump between a million and a billion, because both are a thousand times bigger. In reality, the jump to a trillion is much bigger, the difference between living to your early 30s and a time when humankind may no longer exist. Our human brains are simply not wired to be good at mathematics out of the box. Don't get me wrong, we are born with a fantastic range of number and spatial skills. Even infants can estimate the number of dots on a page and perform basic arithmetic on them. We also emerge into the world equipped for language and symbolic thought. But the skills which allow us to survive and form communities do not necessarily match formal mathematics. A logarithmic scale is a valid way to arrange and compare numbers, but mathematics also requires the linear number line. All humans are stupid when it comes to learning formal mathematics. This is the process of taking what evolution has given us and extending our skills beyond what is reasonable. We were not born with any kind of ability to intuitively understand fractions, negative numbers, or the many other strange concepts developed by mathematics. But over time, your brain can slowly learn to deal with them. We now have school systems which force students to study mathematics, and through enough exposure, our brains can learn to think mathematically. But if those skills cease to be used, the human brain will quickly return to factory settings. A UK lottery scratch card had to be pulled from the market the same week it was launched. Camelot, who run the UK lottery, put it down to player confusion. The card was called Cool Cash and came with a temperature printed on it. If a player's scratching revealed a temperature lower than the target value, they won. But a lot of players seem to have an issue with negative numbers. One player complained. On one of my cards, it said I had to find temperatures lower than negative 8. The numbers I uncovered were negative 6 and negative 7, so I thought I had won, and so did the woman in the shop. But when she scanned the card, the machine said I hadn't. I phoned Camelot, and they fobbed me off with some story that negative 6 is higher, not lower, than negative 8. But I'm not having it. This makes the amount of mathematics we use in our modern society both incredible and terrifying.
As a species, we have learnt to explore and exploit mathematics to do things beyond what our brains can process naturally. They allow us to achieve things well beyond what our internal hardware was designed for. When we are operating beyond intuition, we can do the most interesting things. But this is also where we are at our most vulnerable. A simple mass mistake can slip by unnoticed and then have terrifying consequences. Today's world is built on mathematics, computer programming, finance, engineering. It's all just maths in different guises. So all sorts of seemingly innocuous mathematical mistakes can have bizarre consequences. This book is a collection of my favorite mathematical mistakes of all time. Mistakes like the ones which follow aren't just amusing, they're revealing. They briefly pull back the curtain to reveal the mathematics which is normally working unnoticed behind the scenes. It's as if, behind our modern wizardry, Oz is revealed working overtime with an abacus and a slide rule. It's only when something goes wrong that we suddenly have a sense of how far mathematics has let us climb and how long the drop below might be. My intention is not in any way to make fun of the people responsible for these errors. I've certainly made enough mistakes myself. We all have. As an extra fun challenge, I've deliberately left three mistakes of my own in this book. Let me know if you catch them all. Chapter 1. Losing Track of Time On the 14th of September 2004, around 800 aircraft were making long-distance flights above Southern California. A mathematical mistake was about to threaten the lives of the tens of thousands of people on board. Without warning, the Los Angeles Air Route Traffic Control Center lost radio contact with all the aircraft. A justifiable amount of panic ensued. The radios were down for around three hours, during which time the controllers used their personal mobile phones to contact other traffic control centers to get the aircraft to retune their communications. There were no accidents, but in the chaos, 10 aircraft flew closer to each other than regulations allowed, which is 5 nautical miles horizontally or 2,000 feet vertically. Two pairs passed within two miles of each other. 400 flights on the ground were delayed, and a further 600 cancelled, all because of a maths error. Official details are scant on the precise nature of what went wrong, but we do know it was due to a timekeeping error within the computers running the control centre. It seems the air traffic control system kept track of time by starting at 4 billion 294,967,295 and counting down once a millisecond, which meant that it would take 49 days, 17 hours, 2 minutes and 47.296 seconds to reach zero. Usually, the machine would be restarted before that happened and the countdown would begin again from 4 billion. From what I can tell, some people were aware of the potential issue, so it was policy to restart the system at least every 30 days, but this was just a way of 
working around the problem. It did nothing to correct the underlying mathematical error, which was that nobody had checked how many milliseconds there would be in the probable runtime of the system. So in 2004, it accidentally ran for 50 days straight, hit zero, and shut down. 800 aircraft travelling through one of the world's biggest cities were put at risk because, essentially, someone didn't choose a big enough number. People were quick to blame the issue on a recent upgrade of the computer systems to run a variation of the Windows operating system. Some of the early versions of Windows, most notably Windows 95, suffered from exactly the same problem. Whenever you started the program, Windows would count up once every millisecond to give the system time, which would drive all the other programs. But once the Windows system time hit 4,294,967,295, it would loop back to zero. Some programs, specifically drivers, which allowed the operating system to interact with external devices, would have an issue with time suddenly racing backwards. These drivers need to keep track of time to make sure the devices are regularly responding and do not freeze for too long. When Windows told them that the time had abruptly started to go backwards, they would crash and take the whole system down with them. It is unclear if Windows itself was directly to blame or if it was a new piece of computer code within the control center system itself. But either way, we do know that the number 4,294,967,295 is to blame. It wasn't big enough for people's home desktop computers in the 1990s, and it was not big enough for air traffic control in the early 2000s. Oh, and it definitely was not big enough in 2015 for the Boeing 787 Dreamliner aircraft. The problem with the Boeing 787 lay in the system that controlled the electrical power generators. It seems they kept track of time using a counter, which would count up once every 10 milliseconds, so a hundredth of a second, and it capped out at 2,147,483,647, suspiciously close to half of our 4 billion number. This means that the Boeing 787 could lose electrical power if turned on continuously for 248 days, 13 hours, 13 minutes, and 56.47 seconds. This was long enough that most planes would be restarted before there was a problem, but short enough that power could feasibly be lost. The Federal Aviation Administration described the situation like this. The software counter internal to the generator control units, GCUs, will overflow after 248 days of continuous power, causing that GCU to go into failsafe mode. If the four main GCUs associated with the engine-mounted generators were powered up at the same time, after 248 days of continuous power, all four GCUs will go into failsafe mode at the same time resulting in a loss of all AC electrical power regardless of flight phase. I believe that regardless of flight phase is official FAA speak for this could go down mid-flight. Their official line on airworthiness was the requirement of repetitive maintenance tasks for electrical power deactivation. 
That is to say, anyone with a Boeing 787 had to remember to turn it off and on again. It's the classic computer programmer fix. Boeing has since updated its program to fix the problem, so preparing the plane for takeoff no longer involves a quick restart. When 4.3 billion milliseconds is just not enough. So why would Microsoft, Los Angeles Air Route Traffic Control Center, and Boeing all limit themselves to this seemingly arbitrary number of around 4.3 billion, or half of it, when keeping track of time? It certainly seems to be a widespread problem. There is a massive clue if you look at the number 4,294,967,295 in binary. Written in the ones and zeros of computer code, it becomes 11111111 and then that carries on for a string of 32 consecutive ones. Most humans never need to go near the actual circuits or binary code on which computers are built. They only need to worry about the programs and apps which run on their devices and occasionally the operating system on which those programs run, such as Windows or iOS. All these use the normal digits of 0 to 9 in the base 10 numbers we all know and love. But beneath it all lies binary code. When people use Windows on a computer or iOS on a phone, they are interacting only with the graphical user interface, or GUI, delightfully pronounced GUI. Below the GUI is where it gets messy. There are layers of computer code taking the mouse clicks and swipe lefts of the human using the device and converting them into the harsh machine code of ones and zeros that is the native language of computers. If you had space for only five digits on a piece of paper, the largest number you could write down would be 99,999. You've filled every spot with the largest digit available. What the Microsoft, Air Traffic Control, and Boeing systems all had in common is that they were 32-bit binary number systems, which means the default is that the largest number they can write down is 32 ones in binary, or 4,294,967,295 in base 10. It was slightly worse in systems that wanted to use one of the 32 spots for something else. If you wanted to use that piece of paper with room for five symbols to write down a negative number, you'd need to leave the first spot free for a positive or negative sign, which would mean that you could now write down all the whole numbers between negative 9,999 and positive 9,999. It's believed Boeing system used such signed numbers, so... With the first spot taken, they only had room for a maximum of 31 ones, which translates into 2,147,483,647. Of course, you cannot save a positive or negative symbol in a binary number, so a system is used to indicate positive or negative using the binary itself, but it still takes up a bit of space. Counting the centiseconds rather than milliseconds bought them some time, but not enough. Thankfully, this is a can that can be kicked far enough down the road that it does not matter. Modern computers are generally 64-bit, 
which allows for much bigger numbers by default. The maximum possible value is of course still finite, so any computer system is assuming it will eventually be turned off and on again, but if a 64-bit system counts milliseconds, it will not hit that limit until 584.9 million years have passed. So you don't need to worry, it will need a restart only twice every billion years. Calendars The analogue methods of timekeeping we used before the invention of computers would, at least, never run out of room. The hands of a clock can keep spinning around, new pages can be added to the calendar as the years go by, forget milliseconds, with only good, old-fashioned days and years to worry about, you will not have any mass mistakes ruining your day. Or, so thought the Russian shooting team, as they arrived at the 1908 Olympic Games in London a few days before the international shooting was scheduled to start on the 10th of July. But if you look at the results of the 1908 Olympics, you'll see that all the other countries did well, but there are no Russian results for any shooting event. And that is because what was the 10th of July for the Russians was the 23rd of July in the UK, and indeed most of the rest of the world. The Russians were using a different calendar. It seems odd that something as straightforward as a calendar can go so wrong that a team of international athletes show up at the Olympics two weeks late. But calendars are far more complex than you'd expect. It seems that dividing the year up into predictable days is not easy, and there are different solutions to the same problems. The universe has only given us two units of time, the year and the day. Everything else is the creation of humankind to try to make life easier. As the protoplanetary disk congealed and separated into the planets as we know them, the Earth was made with a certain amount of angular momentum, sending it flying around the Sun, spinning as it goes. The orbit we ended up in gave us the length of the year, and the rate of the Earth's spin gave us the length of the day. Except they don't match. There is no reason why they should. It was just where the chunks of rock from that protoplanetary disk happened to fall billions of years ago. The year-long orbit of the Earth around the Sun now takes 365 days, 6 hours, 9 minutes, and 10 seconds. For simplicity, we can call that 365 and a quarter days. This means that if you celebrate New Year's Eve after a year of 365 days, the Earth still has a quarter of a day of movement before you'd be back to exactly where you were last New Year's Eve. The Earth is tearing around the Sun at a speed of around 30 kilometers every second. So this New Year's Eve, you will be over 650,000 kilometers away from wherever you were last year. So if your New Year's resolution was to not be late for things, you're already way behind. This goes from being a minor inconvenience to becoming a major problem because the Earth's orbital year controls the seasons. The Northern Hemisphere summers occur around the same point in the Earth's orbit every year because this is where the Earth's tilt aligns with the position of the Sun. After every 365-day year, the calendar year moves a quarter of a day away from the seasons. After four years, summer will start a day later. 
In less than 400 years, within the lifespan of a civilization, the seasons would drift by three months. After 800 years, summer and winter would swap places completely. To fix this, we had to tweak the calendar to have the same number of days as the orbit. Somehow, we needed to break away from having the same number of days every year, but without having a fraction of a day. People get upset if you restart the day at a time other than midnight. We needed to link a year to the Earth's orbit without breaking the tie between a day and the Earth's rotation. The solution that most civilizations came up with was to vary the number of days in any given year so there is a fractional number of days per year on average. But there is no single way to do that, which is why there are still a few competing calendars around today, which all start at different points in history. If you ever have access to a friend's phone, go to the settings and change their calendar to be the Buddhist one. Suddenly, they're living in the 2560s, Maybe convince them they've just woken up from a coma. Our main modern calendar is a descendant of the Roman Republican calendar. They had only 355 days, which was substantially fewer than required. So an extra month was inserted between February and March, adding an extra 22 or 23 days to the year. In theory, this adjustment could be used to keep the calendar aligned with the solar year. In practice, it was up to the reigning politicians to decide when the extra month should be inserted. As this decision could either lengthen their year of ruling or shorten that of an opponent, the motivation was not always to keep the calendar aligned. A political committee is rarely a good solution to a mathematical problem. The years leading up to 46 BCE were known as the years of confusion, as extra months came and went with little relation to when they were needed. A lack of notice could also mean that people travelling away from Rome would have to guess what the date back at home was. In 46 BCE, Julius Caesar decided to fix this with a new predictable calendar. Every year would have 365 days, the closest whole number to the true value, and the bonus quarter days would be saved up until every fourth year, which would have a single bonus day. The leap year, with an extra leap day, was born. To get everything back into alignment in the first place, the year 46 BCE had a possible world record 445 days. In addition to the bonus month between February and March, two more months were inserted between November and December. Then, from 45 BCE, leap years were inserted every four years to keep the calendar in sync. Well, almost. There was an initial clerical error where the last year in a four-year period was double-counted as the first year of the next period, so leap years were actually put in every three years. But this was spotted, fixed, and by the year three, everything was on track. The Audacity of Pope But Julius Caesar was betrayed, albeit long after his death, by the 11 minutes and 15 seconds difference between the 365.25 days per year his calendar gave and the actual time between seasons of 365.24218872 days. 
An 11-minute drift per year is not that noticeable to start with. The seasons only move one day every 128 years. But after a millennium or so of drift, it would accumulate. And the young upstart religion of Christianity had pinned their celebration of Easter to the timing of the seasons. And by the early 1500s, there was a 10-day gap between the date and the actual start of spring. And now for a niche fact. There is an oft-repeated statement that the Julian calendar of 365.25 days were too long compared to the Earth's orbit. But that is incorrect. The Earth's orbit is 365 days, 6 hours, 9 minutes and 10 seconds, slightly more than 365.25 days. The Julian calendar is too short compared to the orbit, but it is too long compared to the seasons. Bizarrely, the seasons don't even exactly match the orbital year. We are now at a level of calendar resolution when other orbital mechanics come into play. As the Earth orbits, the direction it is leaning also changes, going from pointing directly at the Sun to pointing away every 13,000 years. A calendar perfectly matching the Earth's orbit will still swap the seasons every 13,000 years. If we factor the Earth's axial precession, the changing in how it leans, into its orbit, the time between seasons is 365 days, 5 hours, 48 minutes and 45.11 seconds. The movement of the Earth's tilt buys us an extra 20 minutes and 24.43 seconds per orbit. So the true sidereal, literally, of the star's year, based on the orbit, is longer than the Julian calendar, but the tropical year, based on the seasons, which we actually care about, is shorter. It's because the seasons depend on the tilt of the Earth relative to the Sun, not on the actual position of the Earth. It is my recommendation that you memorize this part of the book and recite it back to anyone who gets the type of year wrong. Maybe suggest their New Year resolution should be to understand what a new year actually is. Then in the book, I've actually got the exact number of seconds and precise number of days for both the sidereal year and a tropical year, which I'm not going to read out. But what I've got is they both start 31 million 550,000 seconds, but a sidereal year is then 8,125 seconds, and a tropical year is 6,925 seconds, which means the sidereal year starts 365.25 days, and then goes on 63657, and a tropical year 365.24 days, and then goes on 21875, just showing that they're above and below 365 and a quarter days. This slight mismatch between the Julian and tropical years was unnoticeable enough that by around the year 1500, pretty much all of Europe and parts of Africa were using the Julian calendar. But the Catholic Church was sick of Jesus' death, celebrated according to the seasons, drifting away from his birth, celebrated on a set date. Pope Gregory XIII decided something had to be done. Everyone would need to update to a new calendar. Thankfully, if there's one thing a Pope can do, it's convince a lot of people to change their behaviour for seemingly arbitrary reasons. What we now know is the Gregorian calendar was not actually designed by Pope Greg. He was too busy doing Pope things and convincing people to change their behaviour, but it was designed by the Italian doctor and astronomer Aloysius Lelius, or Luigi. 
Luigi unfortunately died in 1576, two years before the Calendar Reform Commission released his slightly tweaked calendar. With the slight nudge of a papal bull in 1582 to bully them into it, a decent chunk of the world swapped over to the new calendar system that year. Luigi's breakthrough was to keep the standard every fourth year leap year of the Julian calendar, but to take out three leap days every 400 years. Leap years were all the years divisible by four, and all Luigi suggested was to remove the leap days from years which were also a multiple of 100, apart from those that were also a multiple of 400. This now averages out to 365.2425 days per year, impressively close to the desired tropical year of around 365.2422 days. Despite it being a mathematically better calendar, because this new system was born out of Catholic holidays and promulgated by the Pope, anti-Catholic countries were duly anti-Gregorian calendar. England, and by extension at the time, North America, clung to the old Julian calendar for nearly another century and a half, during which time their calendar not only drifted another day away from the seasons, but was also different to the one used in most of Europe. This problem was exacerbated because the Gregorian calendar was backdated, recalibrating the year as if it, rather than the Julian option, had always been used. Through the use of Pope power, it was decreed that 10 dates would be taken from October 1582, and so, in Catholic countries, the 4th of October 1582 was directly followed by the 15th of October. All of this does, of course, make historical dates a bit confusing. When the English forces landed on Ile de Ré as part of the Anglo-French War on the 12th of July, 1627, the French forces were ready to fight back on the 22nd of July, which despite being different dates for different countries, was actually the same day. At least for both armies, they could agree it was a Thursday. However, as the Gregorian calendar became more about seasonal convenience and less about doing what the Pope said, other countries gradually switched over. A British Act of Parliament from 1750 points out that not only do England's dates differ from those in the rest of Europe, they also differ from those in Scotland. So England swapped over, but without any direct mention of the Pope, they merely referred indirectly to a method of correcting the calendar. England, which still barely included parts of North America, swapped over in 1752, realigning its dates by removing 11 days from September. Thus, the 2nd of September, 1752, was followed by the 14th of September, 1752. Despite what you may read online, no one complained about losing 11 days of their life, and no one carried a placard demanding, give us our 11 days. I know this for sure. I went to the British Library in London, which houses a copy of every newspaper ever published in England, and looked up contemporary reports. No mention of complaint, only ads selling new calendars. Calendar creators were having the time of their life. The myth that people protested against the calendar change seems to have come from political debates before an election in 1754. The opposition party was attacking everything the other party had done during its term in office, including the changes to the calendar and stealing 11 days. It was captured in An Election Entertainment, an oil painting by William Hogarth. 
the only contemporary concerns were expressed by people who did not want to pay a full 365 days worth of tax on a year with fewer days. Legitimately, one might say. Russia did not swap calendars until 1918, when it started February on the 14th rather than the 1st to bring themselves back into alignment with everyone else on the Gregorian calendar, which must have caught a lot of people off guard. Imagine waking up thinking you had two weeks only to find it's already Valentine's Day. This new calendar means the Russians would have been on time for the 1920 Olympics, had they been invited. But in the interim, Russia had become Soviet Russia and was not invited for political reasons. The next Olympic Games attended by Russian athletes was in Helsinki in 1952, where they finally won a gold medal in shooting. Despite all these improvements, our Gregorian calendar is still not quite perfect. An average of 365.24 to 5 days per year is good, but it's not exactly 365.24 We're still out by 27 seconds a year. This means that our current Gregorian calendar will drift a whole day once every 3,213 years. The seasons will still reverse once every half a million years. And you will be alarmed to know that there are currently no plans to fix this. In fact, on such long timescales, we have other problems to worry about. As well as the Earth's axis of rotation moving around, the orbital path of the Earth moves around as well. The path is an ellipse, and the closest and most distant locations do a lap around the solar system about once every 112,000 years. But even then, the gravitational tug of other planets can mess it up. The solar system is a sloshy mess. But astronomy does give Julius Caesar the last laugh. The unit of a light year, that is, the distance traveled by light in a year, in a vacuum, is specified using the Julian year of 365.25 days. So we measure our current cosmos using a unit in part defined by an ancient Roman. The daytime will stand still. At 3.14am on Tuesday, the 19th of January 2038, many of our modern microprocessors and computers are going to stop working, and all because of how they store the current date and time. Individual computers already have enough problems keeping track of how many seconds have passed while they are turned on. Things get worse when they need to keep completely up to date with the date. Computer timekeeping has all the ancient problems of keeping a calendar in sync with the planet, plus the modern limitations of binary encoding. When the first precursors to the modern internet started to come online in the early 1970s, a consistent timekeeping standard was required. The Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers threw a committee of people at the problem, and in 1971, they suggested that all computer systems should count sixtieths of a second from the start of 1971. The electrical power driving the computers was already coming in at a rate of 60 hertz, so it simplified things to use this frequency within the system. Very clever except that a 60 hertz system would exceed the space in a 32-digit binary number in a little over two years and three months. Not so clever. 
So the system was recalibrated to count the number of whole seconds since the start of 1970. This number was stored as a signed 32-digit binary number, which allowed for a maximum of 2,147,483,647 seconds, a total of over 68 years from 1970. And this was put in place by members of the generation who, in the 68 years leading up to 1970, had seen humankind go from the Wright brothers inventing the first powered aeroplane to humans dancing on the moon. They were sure that, by the year 2038, computers would have changed beyond all recognition and no longer use Unix time. Yet here we are, more than halfway there, and we're still on the same system. The clock is literally ticking. Computers have indeed changed beyond recognition, but the Unix time beneath them is still there. If you're running any flavor of Linux device or a Mac, it is there in the lower half of the operating system, right below the GUI. If you have a Mac within reach, open up the app terminal, which is the gateway to how your computer actually works. Type in date, D-A-T-E, then a space, followed by a plus symbol, a percent sign, and the letter S, and then hit enter. Staring you in the face will be the number of seconds that have passed since the 1st of January, 1970. If you're listening to this before Wednesday, the 18th of May, 2033, it is still coming up to 2 billion seconds. What a party that will be. Sadly, in my time zone, it will be around 4.30 a.m. I still remember a boozy night out on the 13th of February 2009 with some mates to celebrate 1,234,567,890 seconds having passed. That's all the digits in order, 1 to 9 and then 0. This happened at just after 11.31pm. My programmer friend John had written a program to give us the exact countdown. Everyone else in the bar was very confused why we were celebrating Valentine's Day half an hour early. Celebrations aside, we are now well over halfway through the count up to destruction. After 2,147,483,647 seconds, everything stops. Microsoft Windows has its own timekeeping system, but macOS is built directly on Unix. More importantly, Many significant computer processes in everything from internet servers to your washing machine will be running some descendant of Unix. They are all vulnerable to the Y2K38 bug. I don't blame the people who originally set up Unix time. They were working with what they had available back then. The engineers of the 1970s figured that someone else further into the future would fix the problems they were causing. <laughs> Classic baby boomers. And to be fair, 68 years is a very long time. The first edition of this book was published in 2019, and occasionally I think about ways to future-proof it. Maybe I'll include at the time of writing, or carefully structure the language to allow for things to change and progress in the future so it doesn't go completely out of date. You might be listening to this after the 2 billion second mark in 2033. I've allowed for that, but at no point do I think about people reading it in 2087. That's 68 years away. Some steps have already been taken towards a solution. All the processes which use 32-digit binary numbers by default are known as 32-bit systems. When buying a new laptop, 
you may not have paused to check what the default binary encoding was, but Macs have been 64-bit for nearly a decade now, and most commonly used computer servers will have gone up to 64 bits as well. Annoyingly, some 64-bit systems will still track time as a signed 32-bit number, so they can play nicely with their older computer friends, but for the most part, if you buy a 64-bit system, it will be able to keep track of time for quite a while to come. The largest value you can store in a signed 64-bit number is 9 quintillion, 223 quadrillion, 372 trillion, 36 billion, 854 million, 775,807. And that number of seconds is equivalent to 292.3 billion years. It's times like this when the age of the universe becomes a useful unit of measurement. 64-bit Unix time will last until 21 times the current age of the universe from now. Until, and assuming we don't manage another upgrade in the meantime, on the 4th of December, in the year 292,277,026,596, all the computers will go down on a Sunday. Once we live in an entirely 64-bit world, we are safe. The question is, will we upgrade all the multitude of microprocessors in our lives before the year 2038? We need either new processors or a patch which will force the old ones to use an unusually big number to store the time. Here is a list of all the things I've had to update the software on recently. My light bulbs, a TV, my home thermostat, and the media player which plugs into my TV. I am pretty certain they are all 32-bit systems. Will they be updated in time? Knowing my obsession with up-to-date firmware, probably but there are going to be a lot of systems that will not get upgraded. There are also processors in my washing machine, dishwasher, and car. I have no idea how to update those. It's easy to write this off as a second coming of the Y2K millennium bug that wasn't. That was a case of higher level software storing the year as a two-digit number, which would run out after 99. Through a massive effort, almost everything was updated. But a disaster averted does not mean it was never a threat in the first place. It's risky to be complacent because Y2K was handled so well. Y2K38 will require updating far more fundamental computer code and, in some cases, the computers themselves. See for yourself. If you want to see the Y2K38 bug in action, find an iPhone. This may work for other phones, or the iPhone may one day be updated to fix this. But for now, the built-in stopwatch on the iPhone piggybacks off the internal clock and stores its value as a signed 32-bit number. The reliance on the clock means that if you start the stopwatch and then change the time backwards, the time elapsed on the stopwatch will suddenly jump forward. By repeatedly moving the time and date on your phone forwards and backwards, you can ratchet up the stopwatch at an alarming rate until it hits the 32-bit limit and crashes. When you really F22 it up. How hard can it be to know what date it is, or will be, 
I can safely state that the 64-bit Unix time will run out on the 4th of December after the year 292 billion because the Gregorian calendar is very predictable. In the short term, it is super easy and loops every few years, allowing for the two types of year, leap and normal, and the seven possible days a year can start on, there are only 14 calendars to choose from. When I was shopping for a 2019 calendar, non-leap year starting on a Tuesday, I knew it would be the same as the one for 2013, so I could pick up a second-hand one at a discount price. Actually, for some retro charm, I hunted down one from 1985. If you care about the sequence of years, the Gregorian calendar loops perfectly every 400 years after a complete cycle of meta-leap years, the cycle of leaping leap years. So the day you're enjoying now is exactly the same as the day it was 400 years ago. There is actually a popular internet meme which claims that something will happen once every 823 years. Good luck, everyone. This year, December has five Mondays, five Saturdays, and five Sundays. This happens once every 823 years. This is called money bags. So share it and money will arrive within four days based on Chinese feng shui. The one who does not share will be without money. Share within 11 minutes of reading. Can't hurt, so I did it, just for fun. I have no idea where the number 823 came from, but for some reason, the internet is rife with claims that the current year is special and their specialness will not be repeated for 823 years. Now you can safely reply and say that nothing in the Gregorian calendar can happen less frequently than once every 400 years, just for fun. And given that there are only four possible month lengths and seven different starting days, there are actually only 28 possible arrangements for the days of the month. So stuff like this actually happens every few years, not based on Chinese feng shui. You would think that the Gregorian calendar perfectly repeating every 400 years would make it easy to program into a computer. And it is, if the computer stays still. But as soon as the computer can move, it starts to get complicated. In December 2005, the first F-22 Raptor fighter aircraft came into service. To quote the United States Air Force, the F-22 is a first-of-a-kind, multi-mission fighter aircraft that combines stealth, supercruise, advanced maneuverability, and integrated avionics to make it the world's most capable combat aircraft. But to be fair, this was taken from the budget statement in which the Air Force was trying to justify the expense. The United States Air Force ran the numbers and estimated that by 2009, the cost of getting each F-22 in the air was $150,389,000. The F-22 certainly did have some really integrated avionics. In older aircraft, the pilot would be physically flying the plane with controls that use cables to raise and lower flaps and so on. Not the F-22. Everything was done by computer. How else can you get advanced maneuverability and capable combat? Computers are the way forward. But, like planes, computers are all well and good until they crash. In February 2007, six F-22s were flying from Hawaii to Japan when all their systems crashed at once. 
all navigation systems went offline, the fuel systems went, and even some of the communication systems were out. This was not triggered by an enemy attack or clever sabotage. The aircraft had merely flown over the international dateline. Everyone wants midday to be roughly when the sun is directly overhead, the moment when that part of the Earth is pointing straight at the sun. The Earth spins towards the east, so when it is midday for you, everywhere to the east has already had midday and has now overshot the sun, while everywhere to the west is waiting for their turn in the noon sun. This is why, as you move east, each time zone increases by an hour or so. But this has to stop eventually. You can't go forward in time constantly while traveling east. If you were to magically lap the planet at a super fast rate, you wouldn't get back to where you started and find it was a complete day in the future. At some point, the end of one day has to meet, well, the day before it. By stepping over the international date line, you go back or forward a complete day in the calendar. If you're finding it hard to get your head around this, you're not alone. The international dateline causes all sorts of confusion, and whoever was programming the F-22 must have struggled to work it out. The US Air Force has not confirmed what went wrong, only that it was fixed within 48 hours, but it seems that time suddenly jumped by a day and the plane freaked out and decided that shutting everything down was the best course of action. Mid-flight attempts to restart the system proved unsuccessful, so while the planes could still fly, the pilots couldn't navigate. The planes had to limp home by following their nearby refueling aircraft. Modern fighter jet or ancient Roman rulers, sooner or later, time catches up with everyone. Calendar Programmer Nick Day emailed me when he noticed that the calendar on iOS devices seems to break in 1847. Suddenly, February has 31 days and January has 28 days. July is strangely unreliable. December has vanished completely. For the years before 1848, the year headers have disappeared. If you open up the default calendar on an iPhone in year view, it takes only a few seconds of frantic swiping down to see this for yourself. But why 1847? As far as I can tell, Nick was the first person to spot this, and I could not find an obvious link to Unix time and 32 or 64-bit numbers. But we have a working theory. Apple has more than one time available at its disposal and sometimes uses CF absolute time, that is, the number of seconds after the 1st of January 2001. And if CF absolute time is stored as a signed 64-bit number with some of the digits dedicated to decimal places, a double precision floating point value, there would be only 52 bits of space for an integer number of seconds. The largest possible number held in a 52-digit binary number is 4 quadrillion, 503 trillion, 599 billion, 627 million, 370,495. And if you count back that many microseconds instead of seconds from the 1st of January 2001, you land on Friday, the 16th of April, 1858, which could be why it breaks around that date. Maybe. Well, it's the best we've got.
If any Apple engineers can provide a definite answer, please get in touch. Chapter 2 Engineering Mistakes A building doesn't have to fall down to count as an engineering mistake. The building at 20 Fenchurch Street in London was nearing completion in 2013 when a major design flaw became apparent. It was nothing to do with the structural integrity of the building. It was completed in 2014 and is a perfectly functioning building to this day and was sold in 2017 for a record-breaking 1.3 billion pounds. By all measures, it's a successful building, except during the summer of 2013, it started setting things on fire. The exterior of the building was designed by architect Raphael Vignoli to have a sweeping curve, but this meant that all the reflective glass windows accidentally became a massive concave mirror, a kind of giant lens in the sky able to focus sunlight on a tiny area. It's not often sunny in London, but when a sun-filled day in summer 2013 lined up with the recently completed windows, a death heat ray swept across London. Okay, it wasn't that bad, but it was producing temperatures of around 90 degrees Celsius, which was enough to scorch the doormat at a nearby barber shop. A parked car was melted and someone claimed that it burnt their lemon. That's not Cockney rhyming slang, it was an actual lemon. A local reporter with a flair for the dramatic took the opportunity to fry some eggs by placing a pan in the hotspot. There was an easy enough fix, though. A sunshade was attached to the building to block the sun's rays before they could focus on anyone else's lemon. And it's not as if this freak alignment of reflective surfaces could have been predicted in advance. It had never happened to a building before. At least, not since the same thing happened at the Vidara Hotel in Las Vegas in 2010. The curved glass front of the hotel focused sunlight and burnt the skin of hotel guests lounging by the pool. But can we reasonably expect the architect of 20 Fenchurch Street to have known about a hotel out in Las Vegas? Well, the Vidara Hotel was also designed by Raphael Vignoli. So we probably could expect some information flow between the two projects. But for the record, there are always more factors at play. For all we know, Vignoli was hired specifically because the developers wanted a curved, shiny building. Even without a previous building having set something on fire, however, the mathematics of focusing light is very well understood. The shape of a parabola, that ubiquitous curve from when you had to graph any variation on y equals x squared at school, will focus all incoming parallel light onto a single focal point. Satellite dishes are parabola shaped for this exact reason, or rather, they are paraboloids, a kind of 3D parabola. If the light is a bit misaligned, a sufficiently parabolic shape can still direct enough of it onto a small enough region for it to be noticeable. There is a sculpture in Nottingham, the Sky Mirror, which is a shiny paraboloid-like shape, and local legend has it that it has been known to set passing pigeons on fire. Spoiler, it probably hasn't. Bridges over troubled maths when looking at humankind's relationship with engineering disasters, bridges 
are a perfect example. We've been building them for millennia, and it's not as simple as building a house or a wall. The potential for mistakes is far greater. They are, by definition, suspended in the air. On the upside, they can have a massive impact on the lives of people near them, bringing otherwise separated communities together. With such potential benefits, humans have always been pushing the limit of what is possible with bridges. There are plenty of modern examples of bridges going wrong. Famously, when London's Millennium Bridge was unveiled in the year 2000, it had to be closed after only two days. The engineers had failed to calculate that people walking on it would set the bridge swinging. In order to give the bridge a very low profile, it was effectively side-suspended, with the supports next to, and sometimes below, the walking platform of the bridge. Most suspension bridges have supporting steel cables which hang down from above the business part of the bridge. In the ongoing pursuit of a low profile, the steel cables of the Millennium Bridge dip only about 2.3 metres. So instead of being suspended from a rope hanging above like someone abseiling down a cliff, the ropes were pulled almost straight and held the bridge up, in effect, functioning more like a tightrope. The steel ropes have to be very tight. The cables carried a tension force of about 2,000 tons. Much like a guitar string, the more tension in a bridge, the more likely it is to vibrate at higher frequencies. If you gradually decrease the tension in a guitar string, the note it plays will get lower until the string becomes too slack to play any note at all. The Millennium Bridge had been accidentally tuned to around 1 hertz, but not in the normal up and down direction, it wobbled from side to side. To this day, the Millennium Bridge is known to Londoners as the Wobbly Bridge. Any major building in London is quickly given a nickname. Directions to the Onion could involve walking past the Gherkin and going left at the Cheese Grater. Yes, they are all buildings. Number 20 Fenchurch Street was the Walkie Talkie until everyone unanimously switched to the Walkie Scorchy. The Millennium Bridge continues to be the wobbly bridge, even though it only wobbled for two days. But I love the way the nickname gets the direction completely right. It's not the bouncy bridge, even though that is a catchier name, it is the wobbly bridge. The bridge did not bounce up and down at all. It unexpectedly swung from side to side. Engineers have a lot of experience in stopping bridges from bouncing and all the calculations were spot on for vertical movement. But the engineers who designed the Millennium Bridge underestimated the importance of lateral movement. The official description for what went wrong was synchronous lateral excitation from pedestrians. It was the people walking on the bridge which caused it to wobble. Getting something as massive as the Millennium Bridge to start to wobble using brute force is a near-impossible challenge for a bunch of pedestrians. Except this bridge was accidentally tuned to make it easy. Most people walk at about two steps per second, which means their bodies swing side to side once a second. A human walking is, for all bridge intents and purposes, a mass vibrating at one hertz which was the perfect rate to get the bridge wobbling. It matched one of the bridge's resonant frequencies. Resonators gonna resonate.
If something resonates with you, it means you've really connected with it. It's struck a chord with you. This figurative use of resonate took off in the late 1970s and has remained surprisingly true to the literal use of resonate from about a century earlier. From the Latin word resonare, which roughly means echo or resound, although looking at it in front of me, that could be resound, which makes more sense, in the 19th century, resonance became a scientific term to describe infectious vibrations. A crude analogy for resonance is that of a pendulum, often modelled as a child on a swing. If you were charged with pushing the child and you just thrust your arms out at random intervals, you will not do very well. You'd hit the child coming towards you and slow them down as often as you'd give the swing a push as it's going away and speed it up. Even a regular pushing rate, which did not match the movement of the swing, would leave you pushing empty air most of the time. Only if you push exactly at the rate which matches when the child is directly in front of you and starting their descent will you achieve success. When the timing of your effort matches the frequency the swing is moving at, each push adds a little more energy to the system. This will build up with each push until the child is moving too fast to easily inhale and their screaming will finally cease. Resonance in a musical instrument is this on a much smaller scale. Utilizing the way in which a guitar string, a piece of wood, or even contained air will vibrate thousands of times per second. Playing the trumpet involves tightening your lips, then throwing a cacophony of messy frequencies at it. But only those that match the resonant frequencies of the cavity inside the trumpet build up to audible levels. Changing the shape of the trumpet via convenient levers and valves changes the cavity's resonant frequency and a different note is amplified. The same thing works inside any radio receiver, including contactless bank cards. The antenna is receiving a mess of different electromagnetic frequencies from TV signals, Wi-Fi networks, and even someone nearby microwaving their leftovers. The antenna is then plugged into an electronic resonator made of capacitors and coils of wire that perfectly matches the specific frequency it wants to pay attention to. While resonance is great in some situations, engineers often have to go to a lot of effort to avoid it in machines and buildings. A washing machine is incredibly annoying in that brief moment when the spin frequency matches the resonance of the rest of the machine. It takes on a life of its own and decides to go for a walk. Resonance can affect buildings as well. In July 2011, a 39-story shopping center in South Korea had to be evacuated because resonance was vibrating the building. People at the top of the building felt it start to shake as if someone had banged the base and turned up the treble, which was exactly the problem. After the official investigation had ruled out an earthquake, they found the culprit was an exercise class on the 12th floor. On the 5th of July 2011, they had decided to work out to snaps the power, often referred to as I've got the power, and everyone jumped around much harder than they usually did. Could the rhythm of the power match a resonant frequency of the building? During the investigation, about 20 people were crammed back into that room to recreate the exercise class and, sure enough, they did have the power. 
when the exercise class on the 12th floor had the power, the 38th floor started shaking around 10 times more than it normally did. Shakes on a plane. The Millennium Bridge's 1 Hz resonant frequency was only for oscillations in a specific direction, side to side. People stepping up and down should not be a problem, and even the 1 Hz sideways back and forth movement of humans walking should not have been a problem, as everyone is likely to be stepping at different times. For anyone pushing with their right foot, another person would be pushing with their left, and all the forces would pretty much cancel each other out. This sideways resonance would only be a problem if enough people walked perfectly in step. This was the synchronous in synchronous lateral excitation from pedestrians. On the Millennium Bridge, people did start to walk in step, because the movement of the bridge affected the rhythm at which they were walking. This formed a feedback loop. People stepping in sync caused the bridge to move more, and the bridge moving more caused people to step in sync. Video footage from June 2000 seems to show over 20% of pedestrians walking in step, more than enough to get the resonant frequency ringing and the middle of the bridge swaying about 7.5 centimetres in each direction. Fixing it was a costly two-year retrofit during which the bridge was completely closed. Removing the wobble cost £5 million on top of the original £18 million build. Part of the difficulty was breaking the pedestrian bridge feedback loop without changing the aesthetics of the bridge. Hidden beneath the footpath and around the structure are 37 linear viscous dampers, tanks with a viscous liquid that a piston moves through, and around 50 tuned mass vibration absorbers, pendulums in a box. These are designed to remove energy from the movement of the bridge and damp the resonance feedback loop. It works. Originally, the bridge's sideways movement had a damping ratio of below 1% for resonant frequencies below 1.5 Hz. They are now all damped by 15 to 20%. This means enough energy is removed from the system to nip a feedback loop in the bud. Even frequencies up to 3 Hz are damped by 5 to 10%, I guess, in case a bunch of people decide to all run across simultaneously and in step. When it was reopened, the Millennium Bridge was described as probably the most complex, passively damped structure in the world. Not an epithet most of us would aspire to. This is how engineering progresses. Before the Millennium Bridge, the maths of synchronous lateral excitation from pedestrians was not at all well understood. Once the bridge had been fixed, it was a well-investigated area. As well as studying the footage from when it was open, tests were run with an automatic shaking device placed on the bridge, and groups of volunteers walked backwards and forwards on it. In one test, progressively more people were made to walk over the bridge, and any wobbling was closely measured. I read the final report, and my favourite part was a plot of increasing numbers of pedestrians and the sideways acceleration of the bridge. A critical mass of pedestrians is reached at 166, well below the 700 or so on the bridge when it opened. If you do ever look it up, you'll realise it's not the most scientific plot ever. They don't show their units, although I do wonder what the unit of bridge deck acceleration is. 
And my favorite part is that it shows pedestrians as well as acceleration on the same axis, which means technically it allows for a negative number of pedestrians to be on the bridge. Or I guess technically normal pedestrians moving backwards in time, which if you've ever been stuck behind tourists ambling through London, you know is actually possible. Prior to the Millennium Bridge, there had been a few hints that synchronised pedestrians could set a bridge shaking sideways. In 1993, an investigation was carried out on a footbridge which wobbled sideways when 2,000 people crossed it at the same time. Before that, there was a 1972 investigation into a bridge in Germany with similar problems when 300 to 400 people walked on it simultaneously. But none of this had seemingly made it into the building regulations for bridges. Everyone remained obsessed with vertical vibrations. Ups and downs. The vertical up and down impact from a human walking is around 10 times greater than the side to side force, which is why the lateral movements had been ignored for so long. The vertical vibrations of bridges had been noticed much sooner. Solid stone or wood bridges do not have resonant frequencies which can be easily matched by human footsteps. But after the Industrial Revolution of the 18th and 19th centuries, engineers started experimenting with novel bridge designs involving trusses, cantilevers and suspension cables. Eventually, a modern suspension bridge was built within the resonance reach of humans. One of the first bridges to be destroyed by synchronised pedestrians was a suspension bridge just outside Manchester, in what is now the city of Salford. I believe that this Broughton suspension bridge was the earliest bridge destroyed when people walked over it at the resonant frequency. Unlike the Millennium Bridge, which had a feedback loop to synchronise the pedestrians, on Broughton Bridge, the people crossing it had to do all the hard work themselves. The bridge was built in 1826 and people crossed it with no problem at all until 1831. It took a troop of soldiers all marching perfectly in sync to hit the resonant frequency. The 60th Rifle Corps of 74 soldiers were heading back to their barracks at about midday on the 12th of April 1831. They started to cross in rows of four and pretty quickly noticed that the bridge was bouncing in rhythm with their steps. This was apparently quite a fun experience and they started to whistle a tune to go with the bouncing until about 60 soldiers were bouncing on the bridge at once and it collapsed. Around 20 people sustained injuries from the 16-foot fall into the river. Luckily, no one died. The discussion during the aftermath identified the vibrations as having put the bridge under a greater load than the same number of people standing still would have. Similar bridges were scrutinised. The knowledge of this type of failure was now out there. Thankfully, it did not take loss of life for humans to learn about the resonance in suspension bridges. To this day, there is a sign on the Albert Bridge in London warning troops not to march in time across it. I actually went to the bridge in London and took a photo myself so I can get the exact wording of the Albert Bridge notice, which is all troops must break step when marching over this bridge. Although, fun fact, they must not break dance. In a twist. Not all knowledge is so easily discovered or even remembered. 
During the mid-1800s, the rail network was exploding across England, which required a slew of new railway bridges able to support a fully loaded train. A bridge to carry a train is harder to design than a foot or traffic bridge. Humans and carriages have some level of built-in suspension. They can deal with a road surface which is moving around a bit. A train has no such tolerance. The track needs to remain absolutely stationary, which makes for some very stiff railway bridges. In late 1846, a railway bridge designed by engineer Robert Stevenson was opened over the Dee River in Chester. The bridge was longer than previous bridges that Stevenson had designed, but he tightened and reinforced it to help it cope with heavy loads without moving too much. It was a classic step forward in engineering. Take previously successful designs and make them do slightly more while using slightly less building materials. The D bridge fulfilled both these criteria. It opened and it worked fantastically. The British Empire was all about trains and British engineers prided themselves on their stiff upper bridges. In May 1847, the bridge was modified slightly. Extra rock and gravel were added to keep the tracks from vibrating and to protect the bridge's wooden beams from burning embers produced by the steam engines. Stevenson inspected the work and was satisfied that it had been done correctly. The extra weight this put on the bridge was within the expected safety tolerances. However, the first train to cross after the work did not make it to the other side. It was not that the bridge could not support the extra weight, but rather the combination of length and mass opened up a whole new way for bridges to go wrong. It turns out that as well as vibrating up and down and side to side, bridges can also twist in the middle. Six trains had passed over the bridge perfectly safely on the morning of the 24th of May, 1847, before the extra mass of broken rocks were added that afternoon. As the next train was crossing the reopened bridge, the driver felt the bridge moving beneath them. He tried to get across as fast as he could. Steam trains are not known for their acceleration and only just made it. That is to say, the driver and the engine made it. The five carriages he was pulling did not. The bridge twisted to the side and the carriages were dumped into the river below. 18 people were injured and five died. In some senses, a disaster like this is understandable. Obviously, we should do whatever we can to avoid engineering mistakes. But when engineers are pushing the boundaries of what is possible, occasionally a new aspect of mathematical behavior will unexpectedly emerge. Sometimes the addition of a little bit more mass is all it takes to change the mathematics of how a structure behaves. This is a common theme in human progress. We make things beyond what we understand, and we always have done. Steam engines worked before we had a theory of thermodynamics. Vaccines were developed before we knew how the immune system works. Aircraft continue to fly to this day, despite the many gaps in our understanding of aerodynamics. When theory lags behind application, there will always be mathematical surprises lying in wait. The important thing is, that we learn from these inevitable mistakes and don't repeat them. The twisting action of the bridge has since become known to engineers as torsional instability, which means that a structure has the capability to twist freely in the middle. 
I think of torsional instability as the movement no one expects. Most structures don't have the right combination of size and length to twist noticeably. So torsional instability is forgotten about until a new construction dips just below the threshold where it manifests and then suddenly it's back. After debridge and similar accidents, engineers took a long, hard look at the cast iron girders it had been built from and decided to use stronger wrought iron from then on. The official report blamed the disaster on a weakness in the cast iron. Stevenson went with the creative suggestion that the train had derailed on its own, basically arguing that the train broke the bridge, not the other way around. Nobody bought it. But he did raise the very good point that, in all the previous bridges he had built, the cast iron girders were fine. None of their theories had hit upon the true cause. They almost unmasked the true culprit of torsional instability at the end of the report. The civil engineer James Walker and Inspector of Railways J.L.A. Simmons closed their accident report by admitting that Stevenson's other bridges had not fallen down, but they were all of a less span than the Chester Bridge, and the dimensions of the parts were proportionally less. For a brief moment, they admitted that there could be something else going on with the scale of the bridge, but they ended up blaming the weakness of the girders. They didn't make that final step, and the increased reinforcement of future bridges was enough to drive torsional instability back into hiding. For a while, torsional instability came back with a vengeance in the Tacoma Narrows Bridge in Washington State, USA. Designed in the 1930s, it was part of the new Art Deco visual aesthetic. The main designer, Leon Moiseif, said that bridge engineers should Search for the graceful and elegant. And that it was, a thin, ribbon-like, streamlined bridge. It looked incredibly graceful. As well as looking good, it was cheap. By using safe steel, Moisef's design was about half the cost of the bridge proposed by his competitor. Opened in July 1940, the bridge quickly proved that being cheap to build had come at a cost the thin road surface would move up and down in the wind. This was not yet torsional instability, but the classic up and down bounce that had troubled many a bridge. But it seems, in this case, there was not enough bounce for it to be dangerous. People were told that it was perfectly safe to drive across Galloping Gertie, as it had been nicknamed by the locals. It seems Americans are more creative at naming structures than Londoners who probably would have gone with the wavy bridge. Having been reassured by experts that it was safe, people viewed it as a kind of fun ride, while engineers scrabbled to work out how that movement could be damped. Then, in November 1940, the bridge collapsed spectacularly. This has become an iconic example of engineering failure because it happened to be near a local camera shop where the owner, Barney Elliott, had newfangled 16mm Kodachrome colour film. Elliot and his colleague managed to capture the bridge's demise. But the notoriety of this bridge's collapse has come with a downside, the wrong explanation. To this day, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge disaster is held up as an example of the dangers of resonant frequencies. Like the Millennium Bridge, it is argued that the wind travelling down the Tacoma Narrows 
matched a resonant frequency of the bridge and tore it apart. But, unlike the Millennium Bridge, that is not true. It was not resonance that brought down this bridge. It was the other villain of the Millennium Bridge, a feedback loop. A feedback loop which had teamed up not with resonance, but with torsional instability. The sleekness of the design made it very aerodynamic, as in, the air made it dynamic. Whereas other proposed designs for the Tacoma Narrows Bridge had a metal mesh which wind could blow through, the bridge that was built had flat metal sides, perfect for catching the wind. The actual feedback loop was flutter. Under normal circumstances, the bridge would twist in the middle a bit, but quickly spring back to normal. But with enough wind, the flutter feedback loop would drive torsional instability to very noticeable levels. If the side of the bridge, which was upwind, were to lift slightly via some classic torsional twisting, then it would act like an aeroplane wing and be pushed higher by the wind. When it rebounded and dipped down, the wing effect would go the other way, pushing it further down. So each time the twist went up or down, it would be helped along by the wind and the size of the oscillations would increase. If you blow hard enough over a taut ribbon, you can see this effect for yourself. In the wake of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge disaster, similar bridges were reinforced. Aerodynamic flutter was added to the long list of things an engineer had to worry about when designing a bridge. Engineers are now generally aware of torsional instability and design bridges accordingly, which should mean we've seen the last of it. But sometimes lessons learned in one area of engineering don't get passed on to another. It turns out that torsional instability can also affect buildings. The 60-story John Hancock Tower was built in Boston in the 1970s, and it was discovered to have an unexpected torsional instability. The interplay of the wind between the surrounding buildings and the tower itself was causing it to twist. Despite being designed in line with current building codes, Torsional instability found a way to twist the building and people on the top floor started getting seasick. Once again, it was tuned mass dampers to the rescue. Lumps of lead weighing 300 tonnes were put in vats of oil on opposite ends of the 58th floor. Attached to the building by springs, they act to damp any twisting motion and keep the movement below noticeable levels. Now officially named 200 Clarendon Street, the building stands to this day. Apparently building codes, and the building, were strengthened after the building twisting incident. But I have been unable to find any evidence as to whether the building is now also rated to withstand snaps the power. Walking on uncertain ground. This slow advance of mathematics and engineering knowledge has been going on for centuries, and humans are now capable of building some truly amazing structures. After each failure, engineering codes and best practices develop and evolve so we can learn from what went wrong. At the same time, our mathematical knowledge is growing and placing even more theoretical tools at the engineer's disposal. The only downside is that mathematics and experience now allow humans to build structures beyond what our intuition can comprehend. Imagine showing an engineer from the time of the Industrial Revolution 
a modern skyscraper, 828 metres tall, over half a mile, or the 108 metre wide, 420 tonne International Space Station in orbit around the Earth. They would think it was magic. But if we did bring Robert Stevenson back from the 1800s and showed him a skyscraper, but also gave him a course in computer-aided structural engineering design, he would get his head around it pretty quickly. Engineering is easy if you know the maths. In 1980, a walkway was built in Kansas City for the Hyatt Regency Hotel. Intricate calculations had been performed so that the walkway would appear to float in the air, supported by a few slender metal rods at second-story level above the hotel's lobby. Without mathematics, this would be too dangerous. Someone would just have to guess how small the supports could be and still safely hold pedestrians off the ground. But thanks to the certainty of mathematics, the engineers would know the supports would work before even a single bolt had been put in place. This is the difference between how maths and humans go about things. The human brain is an amazing calculation device, but we have evolved to make judgment calls and to estimate outcomes. We are approximation machines. Maths, however, can get straight to the correct answer. It can tease out the exact point where things flip from being right to being wrong, from being correct to being incorrect, from being safe to being dangerous. You can get a sense of what I mean by looking at 19th and early 20th century structures. They are built from massive stone blocks and gigantic steel beams riddled with rivets. Everything is over-engineered to the point where a human can look at it and feel instinctively sure that it's safe. I've actually got a picture in the book of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, which was built in 1932, and just looking at it under construction, it's almost more rivets than steel. I mean, you look at it and you're like, yep, that, that is definitely not going anywhere. With modern mathematics, however, we can now skate much closer to the edge of safety. At the Kansas Hyatt, though, it all went wrong. It was a costly reminder of the risks of building structures beyond what our brains can do intuitively. During construction, a seemingly innocuous change was made to the design and the engineers did not properly redo the calculations. No one noticed that the change would fundamentally alter the underlying mathematics and it pushed the walkway over the edge. The modifications seemed like a good idea. The walkway had two levels on the second and fourth floors of the hotel. The design called for long, slender metal rods to be attached from above and for both levels of the walkway to be suspended from them, one attached partway down the rods, the other at the bottom. Nuts were placed on the rods, which then had box beams, hollow rectangular metal beams, put on them. When it came to the actual building, the length of the rods made things tricky. The upper walkway's nuts would have to be moved all the way along what were effectively super long bolts. And as anyone who has put together flat pack furniture can attest, even winding a nut along a bolt a few centimetres long can be tedious. A simple solution was found. Slice the rods in half and have shorter rods from the top down to the upper walkway and shorter second rods from the upper walkway to the lower one. The setup seems to be identical to what had been planned before, except that now all the nuts sat at the end of a rod within easy winding distance. 
Satisfied with this tweak of convenience, the construction team built the walkway and soon people were using it to rush happily about the hotel. Then on the 17th of July 1981, while a crowd of people were using the walkways as viewing platforms, the bolts tore through the supporting box beams and over a hundred people died. This is a sobering reminder of how easy it can be to make a mathematical mistake and for it to have dramatic consequences. Here, the design had been changed, but the calculations had not been redone. In the original design, each nut had to support the walkway directly above it and any people on that walkway. The subtle change no one had noticed was that, with the modification, the bottom walkway was now directly suspended from the top walkway. So as well as supporting its own weight and the people on it, this top walkway also had the bottom walkway hanging from it. The nuts which previously had to hold only the top walkway were now holding up the entire structure. In the investigation of the Kansas City Hyatt Regency walkways collapse, it was discovered that even the original design did not meet the requirements of the Kansas City Building Code. Tests revealed that the box beams resting on the nuts would be able to hold only 9,280 kilograms of mass each, while the building code required each join to be able to hold 15,400 kilograms. Now, this maximum load is deliberately overkill, so it's guaranteed the walkway will never be loaded to its limit. So even if the walkway was built to withstand only 60% of the required maximum in the code, there is a chance it would never be subject to forces strong enough to break it. At the time of the collapse, each nut on the box beams of the lower walkway was holding 5,200 kilograms, which means that even though they were not as strong as the code specified, they could still hold the crowd which had gathered. In the original design, with the continuous rods, the bolts on the upper walkways would be under a similar load and would also have survived. So if the walkway had been built to the original design, there is a chance no one would have ever noticed it wasn't up to code. But because of the alteration in the design, the upper walkway bolts were under about twice that load, estimated to have been 9,690 kilograms per bolt. This was more than the box beams could handle, so one of the bolts in the middle was ripped out. This meant that the remaining bolts were each bearing even more load, so they all failed in quick succession, causing the walkway to collapse. This was an unfortunate situation in which not only were the initial calculations not done to the correct standards, but also the mass required was later changed and no one rechecked it. Either error on its own might not have resulted in disaster. Both mistakes together resulted in the deaths of 114 people. There are a lot of benefits to letting mass take us beyond our intuition, but it's certainly not without some risks. The vast majority of the time, people cross bridges and walk across walkways blissfully unaware of how much engineering has gone into making it possible. We only really notice when it goes wrong. Chapter 3. Little Data in the mid-1990s, a new employee of Sun Microsystems in California kept disappearing from their database. Every time his details were entered, the system seemed to eat him whole. He would disappear 
without a trace. No one in HR could work out why poor Steve Null was database kryptonite. The staff in HR were entering the surname as Null, but they were blissfully unaware that in a database, Null represents a lack of data. So Steve became a non-entry. To computers, his name was Steve Zero or Steve does not exist. Apparently, it took a while to work out what was going on as HR would happily re-enter his details each time the issue was raised, never stopping to consider why the database was routinely removing him. Since the 1990s, databases have become more sophisticated, but the problem persists. Because computers use null to represent a lack of data, you'll occasionally see it appear when a computer system somewhere has made a mistake and not retrieved the data it needs. I searched my inbox and found a few emails addressed to null and one asking about my TomTom null device. But the holy grail is the hot singles near null pop-up ads. And of course, Null is still a legitimate surname which messes with HR databases. A modern variation on the problem is that a company database will accept an employee with the name Null, but then there is no way to search for them. If you look for people with the name Null, it claims there are, well, Null of them. Whenever it has to enter new videos, it needs to find out where the next blank row is. So the program initially sets a variable called active row equal to one to start at the top row and runs this piece of code. I've tidied it up slightly to make it more human readable. It says that while the data in the row that equals active row and the column that equals one, so the first column, does not equal null, active row should equal active row plus one. So for each row, it checks if the data in the first cell is not equal to null. If it's not equal to null, it adds one to the row and keeps going until the first blank row. If my spreadsheet had rows starting with people's surnames, then Steve Null could have broken my code, depending on how clever the programming language is. Modern employee databases can go wrong during searches because they check if the search term is not equal to null before proceeding. This is to catch all the times people hit search without entering anything to search for. But it also stopped any searches for people named null. And for any programmers thinking there is no way this is still a problem, I'm referring specifically to an XML encoder problem in Apache Flex. If you want, you can check out the bug report, flex-33644. Other legitimate names can be filtered out by well-meaning database rules. A friend of mine worked on a database for a large financial company in the UK, and it would only allow names with three or more letters in order to filter out incomplete entries, which was fine until the company expanded and started employing people from other countries, including China where two character names are perfectly normal. The solution was to assign such employees longer anglicized names that fit the database criteria, which feels far from satisfactory. Big data is all very exciting and there are all sorts of amazing breakthroughs and findings coming out to aid in analyzing massive data sets, as well as a whole new field of mathematical mistakes, which will deal with later. But before you can crunch your big data, you need to collect and store it in the first place. I call this little data. 
looking at data one piece at a time. As Steve Null and his relatives show us, recording data is not as easy as we'd hoped. Carrying on in the same vein as Steve Null, I'd like you to meet Brian Test, Avery Blank, and Jeff Sample. The null problem can be fixed by encoding names in a format for only character data, so it doesn't get confused with the data value of null. But Avery Blank has a bigger problem. Humans. When Avery Blank was at law school, she had difficulty getting an internship because her applications were not taken seriously. People would see blank in the surname field and assume it was an incomplete application. She always had to get in touch and convince the selection committee that she was a real human. Ryan Test and Jeff Sample fell foul of the same problem, but for slightly different reasons. When you set up a new database or way to input data, it's good practice to test it and make sure it's all working. So you feed through some dummy data to check the pipeline. I run a lot of projects with schools and they often sign up online. When I was writing this chapter, I actually opened up my most recent such database and scrolled right to the beginning. The first entry was from a Ms. teacher who works at Test High School on Test Road in the county of Fakenham. She's probably a relation of Mr. Teacher from St. Fakington's Grammar School who seems to sign up for everything I do. To avoid being deleted as unwanted test data, when Brian Test started a new job, he brought in a cake for all his new colleagues to enjoy. Printed on the cake was a picture of his face with the following words written in icing. I'm Brian Test and I'm real. Like a lot of office problems, the issue was solved with free cake and he was not deleted again. It's not just humans who are deleting people like Brian Test. Often, it is automated systems. People enter fake data into databases all the time, so database administrators set up automated systems to try to weed them out. An email address like null at null something something dot whatever, that's a censored version of a real email address belonging to actual human Christopher Null, is often auto-blocked to cut back on spam. Recently, a friend of mine could not sign an online petition because his email address has a plus sign in it, a valid character, but one often used to mass generate email addresses and to spam online polls. So he was locked out. So when it comes to names, if you inherit a database killing last name, you can either wear it as a badge of honor or take some deed poll action. But if you are a parent, Please don't give your child a name which will set them up for a lifetime of battling computers. And given that over 300 children in the USA since 1990 have been named Absidy, which is just A-B-C-D-E, it's worth spelling this out. Don't name your child anything like fake, null, or declare at T varchar255 at C, and then this carries on. There's like several lines of code in the book, finishing with close, table cursor, deallocate, table cursor, semicolon. That, by the way, is not even a joke. It looks like when I was writing the book, I fell asleep on my keyboard, but it's actually a fully functional computer program that will scan through a database without needing to know how it is arranged. 
it will simply hunt down all the entries in the database and make them available to whoever managed to sneak that code into the database in the first place. It share another example of online humans being jerks. Typing it in as someone's name is not a joke either. This is known as an SQL injection attack, named after the popular database system SQL, sometimes pronounced like SQL. It involves entering malicious code by the URL of an online form and hoping whoever is in charge of the database has not put enough precautions in place. It's a way to hack and steal someone else's data. But it relies on the database running the code you've managed to sneak in. It may seem ridiculous that a database would process incoming malicious code, but without the ability to run code, a modern database would lose its functionality. It's a balancing act to keep a database secure, but able to support advanced features which require running code. Just to be completely clear, in my book, I have put real code as the example. Do not find it and type it into a database. It will mess things up. The very code I have was used in 2008 to attack the UK government and the United Nations, except some of it had been converted into hexadecimal values to slip by security systems looking for incoming code. Once in the database, it would unzip back into computer code, find the database entries, then phone home to download additional malicious programs. This is what it looked like when it was camouflaged. And it starts similar, script.asp, question mark, variable equals, and then pretty quickly it goes into 44004500430004C004 and so on, so on, so on. Even in the book, I've skipped 1920 digits. At the very end, you get the final uh, 6F007200% and then a final bit of code to close it off and to execute it. Sneaky, huh? From unfortunate names to malicious attacks, running a database is difficult. And that's even before you have to deal with any legitimate data entry mistakes. When good data turns bad. In Los Angeles, there is a block of land on the corner of West 1st Street and South Spring Street, which houses the offices of the LA Times. It's just down the street from City Hall and directly over the road from the LA Police Department. There may be some rough areas of LA best avoided by tourists, but this is certainly not one of them. The area looks as safe as safe can be. Until you check the LAPD's online map of reported crime locations, between October 2008 and March 2009, there were 1,380 crimes on that block. That's around 4% of all crimes marked on the map. When the LA Times noticed this, it politely asked the LAPD what was going on. The culprit was the way data was encoded before going into the mapping database. All reported crimes have a location recorded, often handwritten, and this is automatically geocoded by computer to latitude and longitude. If the computer is unable to work out the location, it simply logs the default location for Los Angeles, the front doorstep of the LAPD headquarters. The LAPD fixed this with a time-honored method for taking care of a sudden glut of criminals. It transported them to a distant island. Null Island. 
Null Island is a small but proud island nation off the west coast of Africa. It is located about 600 kilometers south of Ghana, and you can find it by putting its latitude and longitude into any mapping software of your choice. Zero, zero. Fun fact, its coordinates look like the facial expression of anyone deported there. For you see, outside of databases, Null Island does not exist. It really does live up to its slogan, like no place on earth. Bad data is the scourge of databases, in particular when the data has been originally written down by fallible humans in their imprecise handwriting. Add to this the ambiguity of place names. For example, I had an office on Borough Road, and there are 42 Borough Roads in the UK alone, not to mention two Borough Road Easts, and you have a roadmap to disaster. Whenever a computer cannot decipher a location, it still has to fill something in, and so 00, zero became the default location, the island where bad data goes to die. Except cartographers took this seriously. Cartography was a rather antiquated and fusty old discipline until it was swept up by the modern tech revolution. Now they have an audience for their own brand of humour. For generations, cartographers have been sneaking fictitious places into real maps, often as a way to expose people plagiarising their work, and it was inevitable that Null Island would take on a life of its own. So they literally put it on the map. If you believe their marketing material, Null Island has a thriving population, a flag, a department of tourism, and the world's highest per capita Segway ownership. To be fair, most online maps do show nothing but water where Null Island should be, except the open source map data Natural Earth, which has included a one meter square spot of land at 00, zero since version 1.3. Even when the data has made it into a database, it is not safe. Which brings us, finally, to Microsoft Excel. My opinion of Excel is a matter of public record. I'm a big fan. It's a fantastic way to do a lot of calculations at the same time, and it's normally the first thing I reach for when I need to do a quick burst of arithmetic. But there is one thing Excel is not, and that's a database system. Yet it is frequently used as one. There is something alluring about the upfront, easy-to-see rows of a spreadsheet that draws people in to use it to store data. I'm as guilty as anyone. Many of my small projects that involve a bit of data are kept in spreadsheets. It's just so easy. Superficially, Excel makes for a great data management system. But so many things can go wrong. For a start, just because something walks like a number and quacks like a number does not mean it is a number. Some things which look like numbers are just not. Phone numbers are a perfect example. Despite being made from digits, they are not actually numbers. When have you ever added two phone numbers together or found the prime factors of a phone number? Mine has eight, four of which are distinct. The rule of thumb should be, if you're not gonna do any maths with it, don't store it as a number. In some countries, phone numbers start with a zero. By default, normal numbers don't have a leading zero on the front. Open up a spreadsheet and type 097 and hit enter. Instantly, the lead zero vanishes. This is quite a personal example because several years ago, I had a credit card with the three security digits on the back with 097. And the important words in this sentence are several years ago. I'm not falling for that one. 
Many a website would remove the leading zero as soon as I entered it in and then claim my card details did not match. It gets worse for a phone number. If you enter the phone number 0141-404-2559, not only does the lead zero disappear, but 1,414,042,559 is a really big number. It's, you know, well over a billion. So if you put it in Excel, it might switch the number to a different way of writing numbers, scientific notation. When I was writing this book, I pasted that number into a spreadsheet and all I could see was 1.414 capital E plus nine. Widening the column in this case will reveal the hidden digits, but if you do this with a longer number, those digits could be lost forever. Scientific notation separates the size of the number from what its specific digits are. Normally the size of a number is indicated by how many digits it has before a decimal point, but when we don't know all the digits, or the digits are simply not important, then the number ends up being mostly zeros. In normal language, we already split the digits from a number's size. For example, the universe is currently 13.8 billion years old. The important digits are 13.8, and billion tells you how big the number is. Much better than writing out 1380000000 and relying on the zeros to indicate the size. Scientific notation just takes that one step further. In normal language, we like round multiples of millions and billions, but in science, the decimal point is moved all the way to the front and then the number of digits is specified. So the age of the universe is 1.38 capital E plus 10. That capital E is actually a lazy way of writing an exponential. The universe is 1.38 times 10 to the power of 10 years old. For a very small measurement, a negative number is used for the size. A proton has a mass of 1.67 capital E negative 27 kilograms. That's much neater than writing 0.00000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000
looking like one, it is a digit. Specifically, it is the digit that represents a value of 12. Just like seven, the digit represents a value of, well, seven. When they ran out of digits, mathematicians realized that letters were a perfect source of more symbols and already have an agreed order. So they conscripted them into number service, much to the confusion of everyone else, including Excel. If you try to use a letter as a digit in Excel, it reasonably assumes you're typing a word, not a number. The problem is that higher base numbers are not just the plaything of mathematicians. If computers are obsessed with binary numbers, their next love is base 16 numbers. It's really easy to convert between binary and base 16 hexadecimal numbers, which is why hexadecimal is used to make computer binary a bit more human friendly. The hexadecimal 4C47 represents the full binary number 01001100010100111, but is much easier to read. You can think of hexadecimal as binary in disguise. It was used in the SQL injection example before to hide computer code in plain sight. The mistake is to try to store computer data which uses hexadecimal values in Excel, a mistake I'm as guilty of as anyone. I had to store hexadecimal values in a spreadsheet of people who had crowdfunded my online videos, and Excel immediately turned them all into text, which would teach me for not using a real database, like a grown-up. To be fair, it is halfway there. Excel has a built-in function that converts between base 10 and base 16 called DEC2HEX. If I ever start a boy band, I'm calling it DEC2HEX. If you type in DEC2HEX of 19527, it will spit out 4C47, then immediately forget it is a number. If you want to add hexadecimal numbers together in Excel, or divide them, or do anything mathematical, you need to convert back into base 10, do your math work, then reconvert back. If you really want to nerd out, too late, we're doing it, there is one special niche case where Excel completely breaks hexadecimal by, ironically, actually treating it as a number. But it's the wrong type of number. For example, the number 489 in base 10 becomes 1E9 in hexadecimal. But when you enter 1E9 into Excel, it sees the letter E between two numbers and realizes it's seen that before. It's scientific notation. Suddenly, your 1E9 has been replaced by 1.00E positive 9, from 489 to a billion in the blink of a format. The same problem occurs in all instances with hexadecimal numbers containing no alpha digits other than a single E, where the E is not the first or last digit. That is the official definition at the online encyclopedia of integer sequences which lists the first 99,999 such cases. A spoiler, the 100,000th case is 3,019,017. You can download them all at the oeis.org website, sequence A262222. Fun fact, they were computed by my mass buddy, Christian Lawson Perfect, of Perfect Herschel Polyhedron fame.
This problem is not only limited to us nerds using hexadecimal. I spoke off the record to a database consultant who was working with a company in Italy. They had a lot of clients and their database would generate a client ID for each one by using something like the current year, the first letter of the client company name, and then an index number to make sure each ID was unique. For some reason, their database kept losing companies which started with the letter E. It was because they were using Excel and it was converting those client IDs to be a scientific notation number which was no longer recognized as an ID. At the time of writing, there is no way to turn off scientific notation by default in Excel. Some would argue it is a simple change that would solve some major database problems for a lot of people. Even more people would argue that, realistically, it's not Excel's fault as it should not be used as a database in the first place. But if we're being honest, it will be, and it can cause problems with far more prosaic features than scientific notation. Spellcheck is bad enough. Gene and gone. I'm no biologist, but a light bit of online research has convinced me that my body needs the enzyme E3 ubiquitin protein ligase MARCH5. Reading biology texts reminds me of what it is like for other people reading maths, a string of words and symbols that looks like normal language, yet transmits no new information to my brain as it parses them. If I fight back the need to process the actual content and just focus on the overall syntax, I can kind of get the gist of what the author is trying to say. Collectively, our data indicate that the lack of MARCH5 results in mitochondrial elongation, which promotes cellular sense by blocking DRP1, I'm not a biologist, activity, and or promoting accumulation of MFN1 at the mitochondria. From the 2010 research publication, Journal of Cell Science. Roughly translated, you need this stuff. Thankfully, on the 10th human chromosome is the gene which encodes for the production of this enzyme. The gene has the catchy name of MARCH5. And if you think that looks a lot like a date, then you can already see where this is going. Over on your first chromosome, the gene SEP15 is busy making some other important protein. Type these gene names into Excel and they'll transform into MAR05 and SEP15 in the UK version of Excel. They are now encoded as the 1st of the 3rd, 2005 and the 1st of the 9th, 2015. All mention of MARCH5 and SEP15 has been obliterated. Do biologists use Excel much to process their data? Well, is the phosphoglycin C-terminal? Yes! Well, I think it is. It was that, or do BPI FB1 genes secrete in the woods? But I wasn't confident about that one either. I am way beyond my limit of biological knowledge trying to look up even obvious microbiology things. Look, the point is, yes, cell biologists use Excel a lot. In 2016, three intrepid researchers in Melbourne analysed 18 journals which had published genome research between 2005 
and 2015 and found a total of 35,175 publicly available Excel files associated with 3,597 different research papers. They wrote a program to auto-download the Excel files and scan them for lists of gene names, keeping an eye out for where they had been auto-corrected by Excel into something else. After checking through the offending files manually to remove false positives, the researchers were left with 987 Excel spreadsheets from 704 different pieces of research which had gene name errors introduced by Excel. In their sample, they found that 19.6% of gene research crunched in Excel contained errors. I'm not sure of the exact impact of having gene names disappearing from your database, but I think we can safely assume it's not good. These problems generally boil down to figuring out what kind of thing a piece of data is. For example, 22 forward slash 12 could be a number. 22 divided by 12, it equals 1.8333. It could be a date, 22nd of December, or a piece of text, just the characters, 22 forward slash 12. So a database has to store not only the data, but also metadata, that is, data about the data. As well as every entry having a value, it is also defined as a type, which is why I can say, again, that phone numbers should not be stored as a number. In Excel, similar distinctions are possible, but they're far from intuitive and far from easy to work with. The default settings for a new spreadsheet are not fit for purpose when it comes to scientific research. When the gene autocorrect research came out, Microsoft was asked for comment, and a spokesperson said, Excel is able to display data and text in many different ways. Default settings are intended to work in most day-to-day -day scenarios. Such a great quote. It comes with a heavily implied, gene research is not a day-to-day -day scenario. Like an exasperated nurse explaining to someone missing several fingers that opening a bottle of beer is not a day-to-day -day scenario use for an axe. I like to imagine the Microsoft spokesperson delivering their reply in a press conference while someone behind the scenes had to physically restrain the Microsoft Access team, which is an actual database system. Through the walls can be heard muffled cries of, tell them to use a real database, like an adult. The end of the spreadsheet. Another limitation of spreadsheets as databases is that they eventually run out. Much like computers having trouble keeping track of time in a 32-digit binary number, Excel has difficulty keeping track of how many rows are in a spreadsheet. In 2010, WikiLeaks presented The Guardian and The New York Times with 92,000 leaked field reports from the war in Afghanistan. Julian Assange delivered them in person to the Guardian offices in London. The journalists quickly confirmed that they seemed to be real, but, to their surprise, the reports ended abruptly in April 2009, when they should have gone through to the end of that year. You guessed it, Excel counted its rows as a 16-bit number, so there was a maximum of 2 to the power of 16, 65,536 rows available. So when the journalists open the data in Excel, all the data after the first 65,536 entries 
vanished. New York Times journalist Bill Keller described the secret meeting where this was noticed and how Assange, slipping naturally into the role of the office geek, explained that they had hit the limits of Excel. Excel has since expanded to a maximum 2 to the power of 20, 1,048,576 rows. But that is still a limit. Scrolling down in Excel can feel like it goes on forever, but if you drag down for long enough, you will eventually hit the end of the spreadsheet. If you'd like to visit the void at the end of the rows, I can confirm it takes about 10 minutes of maximum speed scrolling. When the spreadsheet hits the fan. On the whole, doing any kind of important work in a spreadsheet is not a good idea. They are the perfect environment for mistakes to spawn and grow unchecked. The European Spreadsheet Risks Interest Group, yes, that is a real organization, one dedicated to examining the moments when spreadsheets go wrong, estimates that over 90% of all spreadsheets contain errors. Around 24% of spreadsheets that use formulas contain a direct maths error in their computations. They are able to arrive at such an oddly specific percentage because, occasionally, an entire company's worth of spreadsheets escape at once. Dr. Feline Hermans is an assistant professor at Delft University of Technology, where she runs their spreadsheet lab. I love the idea of a spreadsheet lab columns instead of collimators, if statements instead of incubators, she was able to analyze one of the biggest corpuses of real-world spreadsheets ever captured. In the aftermath of the Enron scandal of 2001, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission published the results of its investigation into the corporation and the evidence behind it, which included around half a million emails from within the company. There were some concerns about publishing the emails of employees who had nothing to do with the scandal, so a sanitized version taking employee concerns into account is now available online. It provides a fantastic insight into how email is used within such a large company. And of course, they were emailing a lot of spreadsheets as attachments. Hermans and her colleagues searched through the email archive and were able to assemble a corpus of 15,770 real-world spreadsheets, as well as 68,979 emails pertaining to spreadsheets. There is some selection bias because these spreadsheets were from a company being investigated for poor financial reporting, which is a shame, but it was still an incredible snapshot of how spreadsheets are actually used in the real world. And the emails showed how those spreadsheets were discussed passed around and updated. Here is what Hermans discovered. The average spreadsheet was 113.4 kilobytes. The biggest spreadsheet was an impressive 41 megabytes. I bet it was a birthday invite with embedded sound files and animated GIFs. Makes me shudder just thinking about it. On average, each spreadsheet had 5.1 worksheets within it. One spreadsheet had 175 worksheets. Even I think that is too much, and that it needs an SQL. The spreadsheets had an average of 6,191 non-empty cells each, of which 1,286 were formulas. So 20.8% of cells use formulas to do a calculation or move data around. 
6,650 spreadsheets, 42.2%, did not contain a single formula. Come on, why even use a spreadsheet? It gets really interesting when you drill down into how these spreadsheets have gone wrong. The 6,650 spreadsheets with no formulas in them are basically being used as a glorified text document listing out numbers. So I'll ignore them. I only care about spreadsheets that are doing some maths, which may go wrong. So that's the remaining 9,120 spreadsheets containing 20,277,835 formulas. Excel does have one good layer of mistake prevention when someone is typing in a formula. It checks that all the syntax is correct. In normal computer programming, you can easily leave a spare bracket somewhere or miss putting in a comma, which leaves you swearing loudly at a semicolon at 3am. What the hell are you doing there? Or, I mean, so I've heard. Excel at least does a cursory check that all your punctuation is in order. But Excel cannot make sure that you use sensible functions or point them at the correct cells to feed the right data into the formulas. In those cases, it executes the commands and returns an error message only if the math goes completely wrong. Hash num! Exclamation mark means the wrong kind of numerical data is being used. Hash null! Exclamation mark means the input data range has not been correctly defined. And there is my favorite. Hash div! Divide zero! Exclamation mark for any attempts to divide by zero. Hermans found that 2,205 spreadsheets had one or more Excel error messages, which means that around 24% of all formula-containing spreadsheets contained an error. And those errors had company. The error-prone spreadsheets had an average of 585 and a half mistakes each. This sounds slightly worse than it is because formulas travel in packs. A single formula can be dragged down to repeat across multiple cells. If you discount duplicates, the spreadsheets had an average of 17 and a half unique mistakes each. An astonishing 755 spreadsheets had over 100 errors, and one spreadsheet took first place with 83,273 errors. At this point, I'm actually just impressed. I couldn't make that many mistakes at once without a separate spreadsheet to keep track of them all. But this is only a tiny subset of mistakes in spreadsheets, the obvious ones. Many more formula errors will be unaccounted for. Without having a deep knowledge of what the creator was trying to do in the first place, there is no easy way to scan spreadsheets and make sure the formulas are all pointing in the right places. This is probably the biggest problem with them. It's easy to select the wrong column accidentally, and suddenly the data is coming from the wrong year. Or the data is gross instead of net. Gross data, indeed. This can lead to real problems. In 2012, the State Office of Education in Utah miscalculated its budget to the tune of $25 million because of what State Superintendent Larry Shumway called a faulty reference in a spreadsheet. In 2011, the village of West Baraboo in Wisconsin miscalculated how much their borrowing would cost by $400,000 because a range being summed missed one important cell. These are just the simple ones which were found out. It's no coincidence that they are both from public bodies in the US. They have a responsibility to the public and cannot easily sweep large mistakes under the rug. 
goodness knows how many minor mistakes there are in the complex webs of formulas that exist in industrial spreadsheets. One Enron spreadsheet had a chain of 1,205 cells that fed directly from one to the next, with a wider net of 2,401 cells feeding in indirectly. One mistake in the weakest cell and the whole thing breaks. This is before we even get to version control, which means making sure everyone knows what the most up-to-date spreadsheet is. Of the 68,979 Enron emails about spreadsheets, 14,084 were about what version of a spreadsheet people were using. And here is a real-world example of that going wrong. In 2011, Kern County in California forgot to ask a company for $12 million tax because they used the wrong version of a spreadsheet, missing $1.26 billion worth of oil and gas producing property. Excel is great at doing a lot of calculations at once and crunching some medium-sized data, but when it is used to perform large, complex calculations across a wide range of data, it is simply too opaque in how the calculations are made. Tracking back and error-checking calculations becomes a long, tedious task in a spreadsheet. It's arguable that almost all my examples stem from when a more appropriate system has been overlooked in favor of Excel, which is let's face it, cheap and readily available. A final warning from finance. In 2012, JP Morgan Chase lost a bunch of money. It's difficult to get a hard figure, but the agreement seems to be that it was around $6 billion. As is often the case in modern finance, there were a lot of complicated aspects to how the trading was done and structured, none of which I claim to understand. But the chain of mistakes featured some serious spreadsheet abuse, including the calculation of how big the risk was and how losses were being tracked. A value at risk, aka VAR calculation, gives traders a sense of how big the current risk is and limits what sort of trades are allowed within the company's risk policies. But when that risk is underestimated and the market takes a turn for the worse, a lot of money can be lost. Amazingly, one specific value-at-risk calculation was being done in a series of Excel spreadsheets with values having to be manually copied between them. I get the feeling it was a prototype model for working out the risk that was put into production without being converted over to a real system for doing mathematical modeling calculations. And enough errors accumulated in the spreadsheets to underestimate the VAR. An overestimation of risk would have meant that more money was kept safe than should have been, and because it was limiting trades, it would have caused someone to investigate what was going on. An underestimation of VAR silently let people keep risking more and more money. But surely these losses would be noticed by someone. The traders regularly gave their portfolio positions marks to indicate how well or badly they were doing. As they would be biased to underplay anything that was going wrong, the Valuation Control Group, the VCG, was there to keep an eye on the marks and compare them to the rest of the market. Except they did this with spreadsheets featuring some serious mathematical and methodological errors. It got so bad, an employee started their own ghost spreadsheet to try and track the actual profits and losses. The JP Morgan Chase & Co. Management Task Force did eventually release a report 
about the whole schmozzle. Here are my favorite quotes about what happened. This individual immediately made certain adjustments to formulas in the spreadsheets he used. These changes, which were not subject to an appropriate vetting process, inadvertently introduced two calculation errors, the effects of which were to understate the difference between the VCG mid-price and the trader's marks. Specifically, after subtracting the old rate from the new rate, the spreadsheet divided by their sum instead of their average as the modeler had intended. This error likely had the effect of muting volatility by a factor of two and lowering the VAR. I find that incredible. Billions of dollars were lost in part because someone added two numbers together instead of averaging them. A spreadsheet has all the outward appearances of making it look as if serious and rigorous calculations have taken place, but they're only as trustworthy as the formulas below the surface. Collecting and crunching data can be more complicated and more costly than people expect. Chapter 4. Out of Shape. The geometry of the football on UK street signs is wrong. It may seem inconsequential, but it really bugs me. If you look at the classic football design, you will find 20 white hexagons and 12 black pentagons. But on the UK street signs for a football stadium, the ball is made entirely of hexagons, no pentagons. The dark pentagons have been replaced by hexagons. Whoever designed it must not have bothered to look at a real football. So I wrote to the government, or more specifically, I started a UK parliamentary petition. This is an official type of petition which you need to apply for, but which guarantees a response from the government if you get 10,000 signatures. My first application was unsuccessful because the petition committee said, and I quote, we think you're probably joking. I had to write back to argue my case. I was serious about accurate geometry. Eventually, the UK government agreed that I'm not funny and allowed the petition. It turns out I was not the only person annoyed by the incorrect football on UK traffic signs. The petition was featured in several national newspapers and on radio stations. I'd never appeared in the BBC News sports section before. I was invited onto different sports-based programs where I spent a lot of time saying things like, Pentagon has five sides, but if you look at the signs, all of the shapes are hexagons with six sides. I was basically making the argument that five is a different number to six. Did I mention that I hold a position at learned institution Queen Mary University of London as their public engagement in mathematics fellow? They must be so proud. But not everyone liked it. Some people got very angry that I was asking the government to do something they did not personally believe in. I'd made it very clear that I did not want to change the old signs. Even I can appreciate that might be a misuse of taxpayer funds. I just wanted them to update Statutory Instrument 2016, number 362, Schedule 12, Part 15, Symbol 38. I did my homework. Told you I was serious. So all future signs would be correct. But that was not enough to please many people. In my interviews, I was very clear that incorrect footballs on signs was not the most pressing issue facing society. But just because I also think we should adequately fund public health, education and so on, does not mean I can't also campaign for the more trivial things in life. 
My main point was that there is a general feeling in society that maths is not that important, that it's okay not to be good at it. But so much of our economy and technology requires people who are good at maths. I thought the government acknowledging that there is a difference between hexagons and pentagons would raise awareness of the value we should place on maths and education. Five is a different number to six. And for the record, the signs are super wrong. This was not just a picture of a different type of football. It could not even be a ball. That sounds like a grand statement, that you could never make a ball out of hexagons. But I can state with complete mathematical confidence that it is impossible to make a ball shape out of only hexagons, even if they are distorted hexagons. It's possible to prove mathematically that the image on the signs could never be a ball. There is something called the Euler characteristic of a surface, which describes the pattern behind how different 2D shapes can join together to make a 3D shape. In short, a ball has an Euler characteristic of 2, and hexagons, on their own, cannot make a shape with an Euler characteristic of more than 0. There are different shapes which have Euler characteristics of 0, such as the torus. So while you cannot make a football out of hexagons, you can make a foot donut. And when I was writing this book, I actually tried to render what a 3D foot donut would look like. I was quite proud of the result. I put it out on my Twitter account. And the internet being the internet, people almost immediately made better versions than I had. So actually, now I don't even use my render. But if you go online, look at my Twitter, you will find incredible renders of realistic looking foot donuts made entirely of hexagons. So now I was able to ask her, who is up? For a game of geometrically plausible foot donut. Hexagons are also fine for a flat surface or a cylinder. A friend of mine hilariously bought me a pair of football socks because they had the classic football sign pattern with all hexagons, but because a sock, ignoring the toe, is a cylinder, that is fine. His gesture was both hilarious and cruel. The sock, his gesture was both hilarious and cruel. The socks were simultaneously right and wrong. I've not been so conflicted about a pair of sports socks since year nine PE lessons. This does not exclude the possibility that the street signs show some exotic shape which appears to be all hexagons on the side facing us, but has some other crazy shapes going on around the back. After I complained about this online, a few people rendered such crazy shapes in the misguided belief it would make me feel better. I appreciate their effort, but it didn't. Through all of this, people were signing the petition and, before long, I hit the 10,000 required signatures and began eagerly waiting the response from the government. When it came, it was not good. Changing the design to show accurate geometry is not appropriate in this context. The UK Government Department for Transport. They rejected my request with a rather dismissive response. They claimed that firstly, the correct geometry would be so subtle that it would not be taken in by most drivers. And secondly, it would be so distracting to drivers that it would increase the risk of an incident. And I felt like they hadn't even read the petition properly. Despite me asking for only new signs to be changed, they ended their reply with, 
Additionally, the public funding required to change every football sign nationally would place an unreasonable financial burden on local authorities. So the signs remain incorrect. But at least now I have a framed letter from the UK government saying that they don't think accurate maths is important and they don't believe street signs should have to follow the laws of geometry. Try hard. There is more than one way to make a geometric mistake. To me, the less interesting way is when the geometry theory is solid, but someone makes a miscalculation when doing the actual working out, even though that kind of error can lead to some pretty spectacular consequences. In 1980, the Texaco Oil Company was doing some exploratory oil drilling in Lake Pignor, Louisiana. They had carefully triangulated the location to drill down to look for oil. Triangulation is the process of calculating triangles from fixed points and distances in order to locate some new point of interest. In this case, it was important because the Diamond Crystal Salt Company was already mining through the ground below the lake and Texaco had to avoid drilling into the pre-existing salt mines. Spoiler, they messed up the calculations, but the results were more dramatic than what you're probably imagining. According to Michael Richard, who was the manager of the nearby Live Oak Gardens, one of the triangulation reference points was wrong. This moved the oil drilling about 120 metres closer to the salt mines than it should have been. The drill made it down 370 metres before the drilling platform in Lake Peñor started to tilt to one side. The oil drillers decided it must be unstable, so they evacuated. Arguably, the salt miners had an even bigger surprise when they saw water coming towards them. The drill hole was only about 36 centimetres across, but that was enough for water to flow from Lake Peñor down into the salt mines. Thanks to good safety training, the mining crew of about 50 people was able to evacuate safely. But how much water could the mine take? The lake had a volume of around 10 million cubic metres of water to give but the salt below had been mined since 1920, and the mines now had a volume greater than the volume of the lake above. As the water gushed down, earth was eroded and salt dissolved. Soon, the 36-centimetre hole had become a raging whirlpool 400 metres in diameter. Not only did the entire lake empty into the salt mine, but the canal joining the lake to the Gulf of Mexico reversed direction and started to flow backwards into the lake, forming a 45-metre waterfall. Eleven barges, which were on the canal, were washed into the lake and dragged down into the mine. Two days later, the mine was completely full and nine of those barges bobbed back to the surface. The whirlpool had eroded away around 70 acres of nearby land, including much of the live oak gardens. Their greenhouses are still down there somewhere. Because of the miscalculation of a triangle, a freshwater lake which was only about three metres deep was completely drained and refilled from the ocean. It's now a 400 metre deep saltwater lake and this has brought a complete change in plants and wildlife. Amazingly, there was no loss of human life, but one fisherman was out on the lake and did have the fright of his life when the peaceful water suddenly opened up into a raging whirlpool. As devastating as a miscalculation like that can be, I'm more interested in geometry mistakes 
where someone has not properly thought through the shapes involved, situations where the geometry itself is wrong, not just the working out. Which brings me to one of my favourite hobbies, finding pictures of the moon which have stars shining through them. Moon Unit The moon may be a sphere, but from where we're standing, it looks like a circle. Or, to be technical, a disc. In maths, a circle and a disc are different things. A circle is just the line around the circumference, and a disc is completely filled in. A frisbee is a disc, a hula hoop is a circle. But I'm going to use them interchangeably as they are in normal language. So, when we look up from the Earth, we can see the disk of the Moon, at least when it is a full Moon. Then the Moon is on the far side of the Earth from the Sun and can be fully lit. Any positions in between mean that the Moon is being illuminated from the side and we only see parts of it in the light. This is the stereotypical crescent Moon of art and literature, but it's just a lighting effect. The Moon is not actually crescent-shaped. Even when we cannot see parts of the moon, they are still physically there. During a new moon, when it is completely lit from behind, it appears only as a black, starless circle in the sky. For while we sometimes cannot see the moon, it is still there as a silhouette. Which is why I get upset when a crescent moon is shown with stars visible through the middle of it. Sesame Street is a repeat offender. In Ernie's book, I Don't Want to Live on the Moon, the cover shows stars shining right through a crescent moon. And in a sea and space segment, the moon looks surprisingly happy, despite the fact that there are stars shining through it. Okay, yes, the moon having a face and emotions is not astronomically accurate either, but there's still no excuse for teaching children inaccurate geometry. I expect more from a supposedly educational program. The only explanation I can think of is that in the extended Sesame Street universe, there are Muppet bases on the moon, and those are the dots of light we are seeing. Worse, there are Texas vehicle registration plates which celebrate NASA's presence in the Lone Star State. The space shuttle taking off on the left is surprisingly accurate, ascending sideways instead of directly up. This may look incorrect, but the space shuttle needed a huge amount of sideways speed to be able to get into orbit. Space is not that far away. When I was writing this, I checked, and the International Space Station was then at an altitude of only 422 kilometers. But for something to stay in that orbit, it needs to be moving around the Earth at about 27,500 kilometers an hour. That is 7.6 kilometers every second. Getting to space is easy. It's staying there that's difficult. But on the right of the plate is a crescent moon, and uncomfortably close to it is a star. At a glance, it looks like that star is shining through what would be the disk of the moon. I had to find out for sure, so I bought some out-of-use Texan license plates online for an up-close inspection. I ended up with plates 99WCD9 and set about scanning and digitally filling in the rest of the moon. Sure enough, that lone star should be hidden by the moon. In this case, WCD stands for Wrong Celestial Design. Doors of Death 
I find the geometry of doors, locks and latches fascinating. You'd think securing property is something to take seriously, but it seems a lot of people don't think through the dynamics of how doors and gates work. I love spotting people who have bought a big lock only to leave the screws holding it in place exposed. Or there's still being enough space to slide the padlock out of the way without having to open it. If you spot any such examples, please do send me a photo. And definitely take a closer look whenever you think something is locked. It might not be. For the book, I actually went and bought some latches so I could incorrectly install one because you are meant to screw it in place. But normally when you close the latch and then padlock it, that covers up the screw heads. Whereas I basically put it on around the wrong way. And so the screws are exposed. Anyone could take a screwdriver and just get in. Hypothetical story. My wife and her family were visiting their hometown and took me to the local cemetery where a beloved family member was buried. Except we'd hypothetically not check the opening hours and the cemetery gate was locked. I looked at the gate and realized that if you lifted a part of the latch, the gates were free to swing away from the padlock. I mean, if that had happened in actual fact rather than hypothetically, I would have been the hero of the day and respectfully relocked the gate after paying our respects, naturally. These are amateur level mistakes where someone has been put in charge of a door and not thought it through. Thankfully, nowadays, an expert will have planned the entrances and exits to a building. But that wasn't always the way. Many lives have been saved or lost as a consequence of the simple geometry of which way a door should open. As a general rule, doors should open in the direction they would need to in an emergency. Because of the location of the hinges, a door opens easily in only one direction. Every doorway has a bias one way or the other. A door either loves letting people into the room or is keen to get everyone out of the room. Most household doors open into rooms to avoid the door blocking a hallway, so it's slightly easier to get into a room than to leave it. Most of the time, this is not a problem. You wait a few seconds to open the door towards you and then step through. We don't even think about it until there are hundreds of other people trying to do the same thing. Now, you're expecting me to tell you a story about a fire and everyone trying to get out of a building quickly, but I'm not going to. The direction a door moves can be important even without a fire to drive the panic. In 1883, the Victoria Hall Theatre in Sunderland near Newcastle was hosting a show by The Phase, which claimed to be the greatest treat for children ever given. Around 2,000 largely unsupervised children between the ages of 7 and 11 were crammed into the theatre. Nothing caught on fire, but equally frenzy-inducing to this age group, there was the sudden promise of free toys. Children on the ground floor were given their toys directly from the stage, but the 1,100 kids on the upper level had to descend the stairs and receive their toys as they left the building, showing their ticket number as they did so. Not only did the doors at the bottom of the stairs open inwards, they had also been bolted slightly ajar so only a single child could exit at a time to make checking the tickets easier. With not enough adults to monitor the queue, the children all rushed down the stairs to be the first one out. 183 kids died in the crush against the doors. 
It took half an hour for all the children to be evacuated from the stairwell. Rescuers frantically tried to remove the kids one by one through the gap in the doors. They were unable to open the door back into the stairwell to allow the children to get out. The deaths were all the result of asphyxiation. As is common in human stampede situations, the kids pushing forward at the top of the stairs had no idea the people at the bottom had nowhere to go. It's easy, perhaps, to distance ourselves from these children. They died over a century ago. To remind myself that they were real people, I looked up the list of their names. Looking through, I found Amy Watson, a 13-year-old who took her youngest siblings, Robert, who was 12, and Annie, 10, to the show. Their house was a half-hour walk through town and over the river to the theatre. All three died in the tragedy. If the doors had had the capacity to swing open in an emergency, then the casualties could have been far fewer. Maybe there wouldn't have been any. This, of course, occurred to everyone at the time, and after a national outcry, two investigations failed to attribute any blame, the UK Parliament passed laws requiring exit doors to open outwards. Directly inspired by the Victoria Hall incident, the crash bar was invented so a door could be locked from the outside for security reasons, but be opened from the inside with a simple push. The US followed with its own disasters, and these were fires, not the promise of free toys. A fire in Chicago's Iroquois Theatre in 1903 killed 602 people, and is to this date the deadliest single building fire in US history. The material and design of the building made for a rapidly advancing blaze, but the limited usable exits, which opened inwards, added to the death toll. Subsequent changes to the fire code required outward opening doors in public buildings, but it took a while for it to be widely implemented. In the 1942 fire that swept through Boston's Coconut Grove nightclub, 492 people died. Fire officials directly attributed 300 of those deaths to the inward opening doors. The question of which way doors should open in other situations is not always so clear-cut. How about a spacecraft? During the Apollo program, NASA had to decide if its spacecraft cabin hatches should open inwards or outwards. A door that opened outwards would be easier for the crew to operate and could be rigged with explosive bolts that could blow the hatch off in an emergency, so that was the initial choice. But after the ocean splashdown of NASA's second human spaceflight, Mercury Redstone 4, the hatch unexpectedly opened, and astronaut Gus Grissom had to get out as seawater started flooding in. So the first Apollo spacecraft cabin had a hatch that opened inwards. The cabin was kept slightly above atmospheric pressure, and this pressure difference helped to hold the hatch shut. Exiting the spacecraft involved releasing the pressure, then pulling the hatch inwards. But during a plugs-out launch dress rehearsal, where the spacecraft was unplugged from support systems and fully powered up to test everything except the actual liftoff, a fire broke out. An oxygen-rich environment and combustible nylon and Velcro used to hold equipment in place, caused the flames to spread rapidly. The heat from the fire increased the air pressure in the cabin to the point where it was impossible to open the hatch. All three astronauts inside, Gus Grissom, Edward White II, and Roger Chafee, were trapped and died of asphyxiation from the toxic smoke. 
It took five minutes for the rescue crew to open the cabin hatch. It later came to light that the Apollo astronauts had already requested outward opening hatches as they would make leaving the cabin for spacewalks far easier. After the inquiry into the fire, as well as changing the concentration of oxygen and the materials used in the cabin, in all future NASA human spaceflights, the hatches were changed to open outwards for safety reasons. This tragedy led to a numerical quirk of the Apollo missions. Even though the spacecraft never launched, the mission with Gus Grissom, Edward White II and Roger Chafee was retrospectively named Apollo 1 out of respect for them rather than keeping its code name AS-204. Officially, the first actual launch should have been named Apollo 1, but in the event, AS-204 was declared to be the first official Apollo flight, despite the fact that it failed on ground test. This had a weird knock-on effect, because now, two previous crewless launches, AS-201 and AS-202, AS-203 was a payloadless rocket test and so not an official launch, were also retrospectively part of the Apollo program, even though they were never given Apollo names. The first human launch thus became known as Apollo 4, giving us the niche bit of trivia that Apollo 2 and Apollo 3 never existed. More than just O-rings. When the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded shortly after launch on the 28th of January 1986, killing all seven people on board, a presidential commission was formed to investigate the disaster. As well as including Neil Armstrong and Sally Ride, the first American woman in space, the commission also featured Nobel Prize-winning physicist Richard Feynman. The Challenger exploded because of a leak from one of the solid rocket boosters. For takeoff, the Space Shuttle had two of these boosters, each of which weighed over 500 tonnes and amazingly used metal as fuel. They burned aluminium. Once the fuel was spent, the solid rocket boosters were jettisoned by the shuttle at an altitude of over 40 kilometres and eventually deployed a parachute so they would splash down into the Atlantic Ocean. Reuse was the name of the shuttle game, so NASA would send boats out to collect the boosters and take them off to be reconditioned and refueled. As they slammed into the ocean, the boosters were basically empty tubes. They were built with a perfectly circular cross-section, but the impact could distort them slightly, as could transporting them on their sides. As part of the refurbishment, they were dismantled into four sections, checked to see how distorted they were, reshaped into perfect circles and put back together. Rubber gaskets called O-rings were placed between the sections to provide a tight seal. It was these O-rings that failed during the launch of Challenger, allowing hot gases to escape from the boosters and start the chain of events which led to its destruction. Famously, during the investigation, Richard Feynman demonstrated how the O-rings lost their elasticity at low temperatures. It was vital that, as the separate sections of the booster moved around, the O-rings sprang back to maintain the seal. In front of the media, Feynman put some of the O-ring rubber in a glass of iced water and showed that it no longer sprang back. And the 28th of January launch had taken place on a very cold day. Case closed. 
But Feynman also uncovered a second problem with the seals between the booster sections, a subtle mathematical effect which could not be demonstrated with the captivating visual of distorted rubber coming out of a glass of cold water. Checking if a cross-section of a cylinder is still circular is not that easy. For the boosters, the procedure for doing this was to measure the diameter in three different places and make sure all three were equal. But Feynman realized that this was not sufficient. Writing about his investigation, Feynman recalled as a child seeing in a museum non-circular, funny-looking, crazy-shaped gears, which remained at the same height as they rotated. He did not note their name, but I immediately recognized them as shapes of constant width. I love these shapes and have written about them extensively before. You can see my previous book, Things to Make and Do in the Fourth Dimension, for a guide to making your own. Despite not being circles, they always have the same size diameter from any direction you wish to measure it. In his report, Figure 17 is a shape Feynman has drawn, which is obviously not a circle, but does have three identical diameters. He could have gone one step further. You could make thousands of diametric measurements of a shape of constant width, such as a Rolio triangle, and they would all come out exactly the same, despite the shape being very much not circular. If a booster had been distorted into a Rolio triangle cross-section, then the engineers would have been able to spot this easily. But this kind of distortion could happen on a much smaller scale. It might not be visible to the naked eye, but still be enough of a distortion to change the shape of the seal. Shapes of constant width often have a bump on one side and a flat section on the other to compensate. Feynman managed to sneak some time alone with the engineers who worked on these sections of the boosters. He asked if, even after the diameter measurements had been completed, allegedly confirming the shape was perfectly circular, they still had these bump flat distortions. Yes, yes, they replied. We get bumps like that. We call them nipples. This was in fact a problem that occurred regularly, but it didn't seem like anything was being done about it. We get nipples all the time. We've been trying to tell the supervisor about it, but we never get anywhere. The final report bears all this out. The performance of the rubber O-rings was definitely the primary cause of the accident and remains the headline finding that most people remember. But as well as the O-ring findings and recommendations for how NASA should handle communication between engineers and management, there is a finding number five. Significant out-of-round conditions existed between the two segments. NASA undone by simple geometry. For the love of COG. As an ex-high school teacher, I have a frame poster in my office claiming that education works best when all the parts are moving. It shows three COGs labeled teachers, students, and parents all linked together. This poster has become an internet meme with the description mechanically impossible yet accurate because three COGs meshed together cannot move at all. They're locked in place. If you want some movement, one of the three needs to be removed. In my experience, parents. Also in my experience, inspirational posters work best when all the parts are geometrically plausible. The problem is that if a cog is going clockwise, any other cog it is meshed with will have to spin anti-clockwise. The teeth lock together 
So if the teacher's cog is going clockwise, the teeth on the right will push the left side of the student's cog down, turning it anti-clockwise. The problem is that the teeth of the parent's cog links with both the other cogs, grinding the whole thing, as well as parent-teacher interview night, to a halt. For a three-cog mechanism like this to work, two of the cogs would need to be unmeshed from each other. The Manchester Metro released a poster to represent the parts of the city working together, and I put a picture of it in the book, which is the classic three cogs all meshed together, none of them can move. But people redesigned the cogs in 3D such that they could all spin in unison. And so next to it, I put a 3D picture so you can see cogs two and three no longer touch each other, and so everything is now free to move. They just look like they're meshed when viewed in 2D. If only public transport in Manchester was as easy to fix. But sometimes it is unfixable. The newspaper USA Today ran a story in May 2017 reporting President Trump's decision to renegotiate the North American Free Trade Agreement between the US, Canada and Mexico. In this case, the COGS are already in 3D, and so the three of them are unambiguously in deadlock. The article discussed both how beneficial a trade agreement could be to all the member countries and how hard it is to get three countries to simultaneously work together. So I'm still undecided whether the three locked cogs were deliberate or not. And I'm particularly disappointed the newspaper didn't capture them, making cogs great again. More cogs only makes things worse. Never put teamwork cogs as a search term into a stock image website. For a start, if you're not used to the cheesetastic world of inspirational work posters, what you see will come as a shock. The next shock is that a lot of the diagrams supposed to be showing a team working like a well-oiled machine use a mechanism which would be permanently seized in place. Cogs and clockwork-like mechanisms are a stock example of things working together in unison. That's why they are used in so many inspirational workplace posters. But here's the thing. Clockwork mechanisms are hard. They are difficult to build. One part in the wrong place and the whole thing stops working completely. You know, the longer I think about it, the more I'm convinced that this does actually make a great analogy for workplace teamwork. In 1998, in the lead-up to the millennium, a new £2 coin was released in the UK. There was a competition to design the back of the new coin. The Queen, by default, gets to design the front of the coin with her face. And it was won by Bruce Russian, an art teacher in Norfolk. Bruce designed a series of concentric rings, each representing a different technological age of humankind. The one for the Industrial Revolution was made from a ring of 19 cogs. You can see where this is going, or rather, not going anywhere. A chain of cogs will spin clockwise, anti-clockwise, clockwise, anti-clockwise, and so on. So if they loop back on themselves, there needs to be an even number of cogs so that a clockwise cog meets an anti-clockwise one. Any odd number of cogs in a loop will come to a standstill. The 19 cogs on the £2 coin would be completely locked up and unable to move at all. Of course, the internet spotted pretty quickly that the new £2 coin suffered from the same problem. The people complaining about it online ran the usual gamut of the curious to the insufferably smug. 
someone even managed to get an official response out of the Royal Mint about the implausibility of the design. The idea behind the design is to represent the development of technology throughout the ages, but is not directed at doing this in a literal way. The artist wanted to convey this theme symbolically, and so the number of cogs in one of the rings of the design was not a key consideration in his mind. The Royal Mint. This all seems like a straightforward, closed case. I can accept that when it comes to an artistic decision, checking that something works physically is not an artist's top priority. I don't complain that Picasso's works are biologically impossible or send Salvador Dali angry letters about the melting point of clocks. But still, my curiosity about how these sorts of trivial mistakes happened tugged away at me. I thought I'd just quickly research the artist and see if I could politely inquire whether the physical functionality of the design had even crossed their mind. What I found shocked me. On Bruce Russian's website is the original design which won the competition back in the late 1990s. It has 22 cogs. It would have worked. Somewhere in the design process, three cogs fell out. I spoke to Bruce, and he had actually been worried about the number of cogs, even though he did not think it was that important. He made his design mechanically correct, not because he thought that was better, but rather to avoid angry emails. When the Royal Mint turned Bruce's plate-sized design into an actual coin only 28.4 millimeters across, they had to lose some of the finer details, and three cogs were the victim of this simplification. Bruce told me, I did think about it, in that if one cog turns in a clockwise direction, the adjacent cogs will turn in an anti-clockwise direction. However, as, after all, it is a design, not a working blueprint, it didn't really matter. I did guess that someone out there might notice, so I stuck to an even number. It also seems to me to sum up the difference between artists and engineers. I have artistic license. I can't decide whether I'm pleased or embarrassed that Bruce had to check the implications of his artistic vision because he knew he would get complaints otherwise. I'm a pretty big supporter of the notion that constraints help encourage creativity, so on balance, I'm okay with it. There is always room for creativity to flourish even if it is pedants creatively complaining about trivial problems. Chapter 5. You can't count on it. Counting is arguably the easiest thing to do in mathematics. It's where math started with the need to count things. Even people who claim they are bad at maths accept that they can count, albeit on their fingers. We've already seen how complicated calendars can get, but we can all count and agree on how many days there are in a week. Or can we? One of the greatest internet arguments of all time started with a simple question about going to the gym and ended with a virtual shouting match over how many days there are in a week. On the discussion board of bodybuilding.com, someone with the username Mindless, spelt with a one instead of the I, asked about how many times a week it was safe to do a full body workout. It seems they used to do their upper and lower body workouts on alternate days, but now, due to a lack of time, they wanted to know if there was any risk in doing it all on the same day, making for fewer trips to the gym. I know how they feel. 
I split my days between geometry and algebra. The general advice from users AllPro and Vermontar seemed to be that most beginner bodybuilding routines involved three full body workouts a week, so that should be fine at a more advanced, strenuous level. Mindless seemed happy with this advice and had only the one follow-on point that they work out every second day, so that meant they will be at the gym four to five times a week. User StevieKM3 pointed out that there are only seven days in a week. If you go every other day, that is three and a half times a week. And all seem to be well with the world. We never hear from Mindless again. Because then, in walked the Josh. They were clearly not happy with Stevie KM3's statement that every other day corresponds to three and a half times a week. In their experience, training every second day would mean they would find themselves in the gym four times a week. The Josh said, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, that is four days. How do you go three and a half times? Do a half workout or something? Lol. Before Stevie KM3 could defend himself, Justin27 came sweeping into the rescue, pointing out that the correct answer was indeed three and a half times a week on average. Seven times in two weeks equals 3.5 times a week, genius. And he chipped in that three workouts a week should be fine, the last bit of bodybuilding advice we were to see in this thread. The Josh was not happy with newcomer Justin27 disagreeing with him, and he decided to spell out exactly how every other day is four times a week. Stevie KM3 did briefly reappear to back up Justin27 and defend his original statement, but he left again in a hurry. Then the Josh and Justin27 proceeded to argue about how many days there are in a week. Soon, new people joined the argument, amazingly, from both sides, and it sprawled over five pages worth of message board, five of the funniest pages on the internet. But how can something as obvious as the number of days in the week spawn such vitriol across five pages, 129 posts, and two days of constant arguing? Well, it does, and it is spectacular. The language is also highly creative and contains some well-known expletives and some new ones created via the clever mashup of classic swear words, which is why I cannot quote much of it now. Reading it online is not for the faint-hearted. Justin27. In case you forget, one week is Sunday-Saturday, not Sunday-Sunday. That's eight days, moron. The Josh. A week is Sunday-Sunday. I think you just don't know how to count. It's all right. I won't tell anyone. Lol. Sunday-Saturday is only six days. Do you have six days weeks where you live? Also, the Josh. You don't start counting on Sunday. It hasn't been a day yet. You don't start counting till Monday. You can't count the day that it is. Did you never take basic elementary math? Monday is one day, Tuesday is two days, Wednesday is three days, Thursday is four days, Friday is five days, Saturday is six days, Sunday is seven days. Justin27. What do you mean you don't start counting on Sunday? It's a... Oh, expletive. Day. How do you deny the four weeks I posted? Tell me this, smart guy. How many times would you train in four weeks? 
Look at your cute calendar and tell me it's not 14 in one month. As with all the greatest online arguments, deep down, I suspect that Josh is a troll, stringing Justin27 along for the fun of seeing how irate he can get. For a long time, the Josh doesn't break character. Before a quick, you took me way too serious rant, then he seamlessly goes back into his earnest argument. So we cannot rule out the possibility that he was genuine. I like to believe he was. Troll or genuine, either way, the Josh has taken a perfect stance, which is wrong, yet supported by enough plausible misconceptions that it is possible to argue about it at length, which he does, utilising two classic mass mistakes, counting from zero and off by one errors. Counting from zero is a classic behaviour of programmers. Computer systems are often being used to their absolute limit, so programmers are sure not to waste a single bit. This means counting from zero instead of one. Zero is, after all, a perfectly good number. It's like counting on your fingers, which is indeed the mascot of the easiest maths possible. But people still find it confusing. When asked what number you can count to on your fingers, most people say 10. But they're wrong. You can count 11 distinct numbers with your fingers, 0 to 10. And this is without cheating, for example, by using different number systems and holding your fingers in ridiculous positions. If you go from holding none of your fingers up to holding all 10 up normally, there are 11 distinct positions your fingers can be in. The only downside is that you break the link between the number you are using to keep track of your counting with the number of things you are counting. The first object corresponds to zero fingers, the second object to one finger, and all the way up to the eleventh object being represented with ten fingers. As the Josh said in post number 14, if you work out on the eighth, you wouldn't start counting the days till the ninth, because that is one day, then the tenth would be two days, and so on, until you get to the twenty-second, which is 14 days. This is counting from zero in disguise. The Josh has taken the eighth of the month as day zero, which makes the ninth of the month the first day he is counting. In which case, yes, the 22nd of the month is the 14th day to be counted. But that does not mean it is a total of 14 days. Counting from zero breaks the link between what you've counted to and what the total is. Counting from 0 to 14 is a total of 15. This type of mistake is so common that the programming community has a name for it. OBOE, or off by one errors. Named after the symptom and not the cause, most off by one errors come from the complications of convincing code to run for a set number of times or count a certain number of things. I'm obsessed with one specific species of off-by-one error, the fence post problem, which is the second weapon in Josh's arsenal. This mistake is called the fence post problem because it is quintessentially described using the metaphor of a fence. If a 50-metre stretch of fence has a post every 10 metres, how many fence posts are there? The naive answer is five, but there would actually be six. The inbuilt assumption is that for every section of fence, there is a matching fence post, which is true for most of the fence, 
but ignores the extra fence post needed to put one at each end. It's such a crisp example of our brains jumping to a conclusion, which can be easily disproved by maths. I am always looking out for interesting examples. Once I was coming up the escalator at a tube station in London and I saw a sign which caught my eye. It was a real-world fence post problem. There is always some part of the tube under repair and Transport for London try to put up signs explaining why your journey is even more unpleasant than usual. On this particular morning, I gave the sign on the closed escalator a glance as I had to walk up the hundreds of stairs next to it. It said that most escalators on the tube were refurbished twice, which gives them twice the life. This is perfect fence post problem territory. There is something alternating, escalator is used, escalator is refurbished, repeat, and it must begin and end with the same thing, escalator being used. If an escalator is refurbished twice, then it will be in use for three times as long compared to if it was never refurbished at all. The people who run the tube forgot to mind the gap. To make it totally clear, escalators are used, refurbished, used, refurbished, used, refurbished twice, used three times. Off by one errors also explain a struggle I always had with music theory. Moving along piano keys is measured in terms of the number of notes encompassed. Hitting C on a piano, skipping D, and then hitting E is an interval called a third, because E is the third note on the scale. But what really matters is not how many notes are used, but the difference between them. This is the reverse fence post problem. Music intervals count the posts when they should count the fence. And I appreciate some of this weirdness comes down to semitones and the definition of a major scale, but they're only semi to blame. So, when playing the piano, going up a third means going up two notes, and going up a fifth is going up only four notes. Put together, the whole transition is a seventh, giving us three plus five equals seven. Counting the dividers and not the intervals means that the note between the transitions is double counted. It is also why an octave of seven notes and seven intervals is named oct for eight. The upside is that I can blame my terrible lack of music ability on the numbers not behaving normally. When it comes to measuring time, we use a weird mix of counting posts and counting the sections of the fence. Or we can look at it in terms of rounding. Age is systematically rounded down. In many countries, a human is age zero for the first year of their life, and increments to being one year old only after they have finished that whole period of their life. You are always older than your age, which means that when you are 39, you are not in your 39th year of life, but in your 40th. If you count the day of your birth as a birthday, which is hard to argue against, then when you turn 39, it is actually your 40th birthday. True as that may be, in my experience, people don't like it written in their birthday card. Days and hours are also done differently. I love the example of someone who starts work at 8am and by 12pm they need to have cleaned floors 8 to 12 of a building. Setting about cleaning one floor per hour would leave a whole floor still untouched come noon. And other countries might designate their floors differently from the way your country does. 
Some countries count building floors from zero, sometimes represented by a G for archaic reasons, lost to history. And some countries go for one. And days are counted in a different way to hours. If floors 8 to 12 have to be deep cleaned between the 8th of December and 12th of December, there would be enough time for one floor per day. This problem has been going on for a very long time. It is why, 2,000 years ago, the new leap years introduced by Julius Caesar were put in after three years rather than four. The pontifices in charge were using the start of the fourth year. It's as if you need to leave some beer to ferment for the first four days of the month and you stop it on the morning of the fourth day. It has only been going on for three days. The pontifices did the same thing, but with years instead of beers. If you start counting from the beginning of year one instead of year zero, then the start of year four is only three years later. Coincidentally, if you drink my homebrew beer, you will also feel like a year of your life is missing. I call it leap beer. This is certainly not the only mass mistake from the classical era. People 2,000 years ago were just as good at making mass mistakes as we are. It's just that most of the evidence has since been destroyed. And I think that's what modern mistake makers would like to see happen as well. But digging through old records, some mistakes do come to light, including what is believed to be the oldest example of a fence post error. Marcus Vitruvius Pollio was a contemporary of Julius Caesar, and we know of him largely through his extensive writing about architecture and science. Vitruvius's works were very influential in the Renaissance, and Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man is named after him. In the third book of his ten-book series, De Architectura, he talks about good temple building, including always using an odd number of steps, so when someone places their dominant foot on the first step, they will use the same foot when they reach the top. He also talks about an easy mistake to make when positioning your columns. For a temple twice as long as it is wide, those who built twice the number of columns for the temple's length seem to have made a mistake because the temple would then have one more intercolumniation than it should. In the original Latin, as well as having the columns as columni, Vitruvius talks about the intercolumnia, or the spaces between the columns. Doubling the length of the temple does not need twice as many columns, but rather twice as many between-column spaces. Vitruvius's warning, those building a temple not to make a fence post mistake and end up with one column too many. If anyone can find an older example of a fence post or any off-by-one error, I'd love to hear about it. The problem continues to inconvenience people. At 5pm on the 6th of September 2017, mathematician James Propp was in a Verizon wireless phone shop in the US buying a new phone. It was for his son and, thankfully, it came with a no-questions-asked refund policy if returned within 14 days. As it turns out, the phone was not what his son was after, so two weeks later, on the 20th of September, Prop Senior went back to return it. But despite it being less than 14 days since he had bought the phone, the store could not complete the return as it was now technically 
day 15 of the contract. It seems that Verizon started counting at day one and not at day zero, and they used the day number as a way to measure the passing of time. So as soon as James received the phone, Verizon already figured he'd owned it for a whole day. By the start of day two in Verizon's system, he'd had the phone for two days, even though he'd only received it about seven hours before, and so on and so on, eventually leading to James holding a phone he'd had for less than 14 days and Verizon claiming he'd owned it for 15. In the store, there was nothing the manager could do because the Verizon system considered James to be on day 15 of his contract and had blocked any option to return the product. But when James went home and looked through the contract small print, he found that there was no wording to indicate that the first day of the contract would count as day one. Some of his relatives, who were lawyers, pointed out that this problem had happened before and that legally it is important to remove the day zero ambiguity. In their home state of Massachusetts, the court system has to deal with this problem when it comes to court orders, and so it has defined. In computing any period of time prescribed or allowed by these rules, by order of court, or by any applicable statute or rule, the day of the act, event, or default, after which the designated period of time begins to run, shall not be included. Massachusetts Rules of Civil Procedure Civil Procedure Rule 6, Time, Section A, Computation James appreciated that there had probably not been enough people falling afoul of Verizon's abuse of the number zero to get a class action lawsuit together. In his case, he was able to argue the mathematics and threatened to cancel his other contracts until they were worn down enough to credit his account accordingly. But not everyone has the mathematical confidence or the spare time to argue their case. James proposes a day zero rule, which would mean that all contracts are required to acknowledge day zero, an initiative I fully support. But I don't think it is a change we will see. Off by one errors have been a problem for thousands of years, and I suspect they will continue to be a problem for thousands more. Much like the thread on bodybuilding.com, which looks like it was eventually locked down, I'm going to give the final word to the Josh. The Josh, post number 129. My point was proved by smarter people. If you take a single week, not two weeks, just a single week, and work out every other day, you can work out four days a week. The end. Stop bitching. Combo Breaker Counting combinations can be a daunting task because the options add up very quickly and produce some astoundingly big numbers. Since 1974, LEGO has claimed that a mere six of their standard 2x4 bricks can be combined an astounding 102,981,500 different ways. But to get that number, they had to make a few assumptions and one mistake. Their calculation assumes that all the bricks are the same color and also identical in every other way, and that they are stacked one on top of each other to make a tower six bricks high. Starting with a base brick, there are 46 different ways to place each subsequent brick on top for a total of 46 to the power of five 
which equals 205,962,976 towers. Of those towers, 32 are unique, but the other 205,962,944 pair up into copies of each other. Any of these towers can be spun around to look just like another tower. Half of that 205 million number plus the 32 gives a grand total of 102,981,504. The one mistake is that the 1974 calculator this was crunched on was not able to handle that many digits, so the answer was rounded down by four. To convince myself the 46 different ways to stack two Lego bricks was correct, I bought some Lego bricks. So you can either stick the two pieces together so they are parallel or orthogonal, so at right angles. If they're parallel, the one on top can be at the top, middle or bottom one way, and then the other orientation, it's got seven different possible positions. So that's 21 different ways for every combination. And when they're at right angles, there are five options in each direction. So that's 25. And the 25 plus the 21 is the total of 46. Then one day, mathematician Sharon Eilers was walking around Legoland in Denmark and was unsatisfied with the 102 million number he saw on display. Sometime later, in his office at the University of Copenhagen, he set about working out the number for combining six 2x4 Lego bricks, but factoring in that the bricks could be placed next to each other as well as on top of each other. This was not a calculation that could be done by hand. Even with six Lego bricks, the number of ways they can be attached to each other is too great to be counted by a human. A computer would have to explore all the possible options and keep count of them. This was 2004 and computers were a lot more powerful than in 1974, but it still took half a week to produce the answer. 915,103,765. To make sure his number was right, Eilis gave the problem to a high school student, Miguel Abrahamson, who was looking for a mathematics project. The code Eilers used was written in the Java programming language and run on an Apple computer. Abrahamson came up with a new way to explore the combinations and programmed it in Pascal to run on an Intel machine. Both completely different methods gave the same answer of 915,103,765, so we can be fairly confident it is correct. Because calculating combinations can give such large numbers, they are often used in advertising. But very rarely do companies bother trying to get the answer correct. When combinatorist, a mathematician who studies combinatorics, Peter Cameron went to a pancake restaurant in Canada, he noticed that they advertised a choice of 1,001 toppings. Being a combinatorist, he recognized that 1001 is the total number of ways to pick four things out of a total of 14 options. So he figured they had 14 toppings and customers could choose four. Actually, the restaurant had 26 toppings, he asked, and they had picked 1001 just because it sounded big. Had they done the math correctly, those 26 toppings in fact allowed for 67 million. 108,864 options, a rare case of marketing understatement. Similarly, in 2002, 
McDonald's ran an advertising campaign in the UK to promote its McChoice menu, which consisted of eight different items. Posters around London promised that this gave the customer a choice of 40,312 options, a number that is not only wrong, but comes with a side order of extra wrong. But what makes this a special case is that when its errors were pointed out, McDonald's did not admit its mistake, but doubled down on trying to justify its bad maths. Calculating the number of combinations of eight menu items is reasonably straightforward. Imagine being offered each of the options one at a time. Do you want a burger? Yes or no. Do you want fries with that? Yes or no. There are going to be eight yes or no choices. So you have two times 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 two. Two to the power of eight, which is 256 total options. This includes choosing to eat nothing from the menu, choosing to eat everything from the menu, and every combination in between. If eating nothing does not technically count as a meal, then that leaves 255 meal options. Although some people would argue that the null meal is their favorite thing to order from McDonald's. The number McDonald's used was the result of a very different calculation. It's the answer to the question of how many different ways you could arrange eight menu items. In this case, imagine that you have to eat all eight items in front of you and you need to eat them one at a time. You have eight options for what you eat first, seven options for what you eat second, and so on. Eight times seven times six times five times four times three times two times one equals eight factorial, which equals 40,320 ways to eat a meal of eight parts. It's a bit optimistic of McDonald's to assume that people will simply order all eight menu items and then try to find their favorite order to stuff it all into their face. At three meals a day, it would take nearly 37 years to try them all. That is a long time to spend in the house of Ronald. Then came the extra mistake on the side, which I think was actually the one moment of clarity McDonald's had. They decided that a combination requires at least two items to be combined, so they subtracted eight from their total to remove the one item options. Of course, the calculation they originally did was not in any case the number of combinations, so the end result was meaningless. And even if they had got all that correct, they forgot to remove the null meal from their count. In reality, the number of combinations of two or more items from a menu of eight things is 247, much smaller than 40,312, like a kind of anti-supersizing. So much smaller that 154 people complained to the UK Advertising Standards Authority that McDonald's was grossly overstating how much choice its McChoice menu really offered. Now obliged to argue their case, McDonald's did not admit its maths was wrong. Instead, the company did the classic, definitely innocent move of coming up with two mutually exclusive excuses. Like a guilty child saying there never was a hamburger, and besides, it was their sibling who ate it. First, when confronted with the information that the number of ways you can arrange a meal is irrelevant, McDonald's declared it wasn't from the Advertising Standards Authority ruling. The advertisers said that they were aware that some people might consider a double cheeseburger and milkshake to be the same permutation 
as a milkshake and double cheeseburger, but they believed that each permutation could be considered a different eating experience. I'm not even going to address their use of the word permutation here because it would distract from the fact that McDonald's seriously argued that eating the burger or drinking the milkshake first makes the experience two different meals. Don't anybody tell them that rather than eating their meals in series, some people consume the items in parallel, allowing for a gastronomical number of possible meals. Having committed to the fact that the company definitely wanted to calculate the number of arrangements of the meal, its reply even used the technical name for that calculation, a factorial. McDonald's also decided that 40,312 was not the result of a calculation, it was merely illustrative. They argued that the real calculation would involve the different flavour variations of some of the menu items for a new total of 16 distinct meal components, giving a total number of combinations greater than 65,000, which is correct. 2 to the power of 16 is 65,536, but it includes things like walking into McDonald's and ordering one of every flavour of milkshake and calling that a meal. The Advertising Standards Authority eventually ruled in favour of McDonald's and did not uphold the complaints. They noted that McDonald's had put an incorrect number on its advertising, but decided that the company was intending only to indicate that there were a lot of choices, and the number of over 65,000 was bigger than the actual number of combinations promised. But some people were not loving it. An appeal was lodged to complain that an advertiser should not be able to retrospectively change the calculation behind a number used in an advertisement. The appeal was denied. And that was that. Always ready for a challenge, mathematicians have since given the name combination to any value of n factorial subtract n. It is sequence A005096 in the online encyclopedia of integer sequences. And mathematicians are trying to find a use for these numbers. No such use has yet been found. And even though decades have passed, I'm going to reopen this cold case. It probably hasn't gone off. To take one last look at the facts. I'm going to count sensible meals only. The eight items on the McChoice menu could be combined in different types of snacks and meals as would be enjoyed by one person. I think we can cover every reasonable meal with drink options, four soft drinks, four milkshakes, or no drink at all. Total of nine. Meal options, cheeseburger, filet o fish or a hot dog. Actually, the McChoice menu was one of the few times McDonald's sold hot dogs, and somehow that wasn't the biggest mistake in all of this. So I'm allowing people to have no main, that's one option, uh, one of those, that's three options, or two of those if they're really hungry, and possibly the same thing twice for six options, and one plus three plus six is a total of ten. Would you like fries with that? Well, that's yes or no. Two. Dessert options, apple pie, three flavours of McFlurry, or the four milkshakes. Even if they had a milkshake for their main drink, I'm not going to judge anyone who wants another milkshake for dessert. With skipping dessert as an option, that's one plus three plus four plus one, a total of nine. So that gives us nine times ten times two times nine, one thousand 
620. Removing the null meal leaves 1,619 legitimate combinations of items from the menu. It's possible to argue I've missed some combination people might actually order, but I'm pretty sure McDonald's doesn't want to be using their advertising to suggest people walk in and eat seven hot dogs in a row. That would be a very unhappy meal. Is your perm big enough? Sometimes the number of options allowed can result in serious limitations. In the US, zip codes are five digits long and go from 00000 to 99999, a total of just 100,000 options. Given the US has a total land surface area of 9,158,022 square kilometers, this gives just under 100 square kilometers per potential zip code. They can never be more accurate than that on average. This does help narrow down the delivery of mail, but the rest of the address is needed for finer resolution. It can be worse. Australia uses four-digit postcodes with an area comparable to the US, 7,692,024 square kilometers. So each postcode has on average 769 square kilometers to deal with. But thanks to a small population, that is only around 2,500 people per postcode, whereas the US has around 3,300 humans per zip. Those numbers assume an evenly distributed population, and in my experience, people like to clump, which will mean more humans per postcode. I just looked up the Australian postcode where I grew up, 6023, and as of 2011, there were 15,025 people living in 5,646 different dwellings. Now I live in the UK, and if I look up my home postcode, there are only 32 addresses. That's it, all on the same street. UK postcodes have much finer resolution than Australia or the US. The building my office is in has a postcode all to itself, a postcode that points at a single building. I can give my address as just my name and my postcode. To Americans and Australians, that sounds ridiculous. Although to be fair, in 1983, the US did expand its zip codes to be nine digits with zip plus four, but freedom-loving Americans did not take kindly to being assigned specific numbers. It was all a bit 1984. So since then, the public-facing postcodes have stayed a mere five digits, but Behind the scenes, the mail barcodes printed on letters use ZIP plus 6 to assign an 11-digit code to every building in the country. The UK makes it work by having longer postcodes and allowing letters, digits, and strategic spaces. There are some limitations on where letters and digits can be positioned, but this system allows for a staggering 1,755,842,400 possible postcodes. To be fair, that is an overestimate because some of the letters in the UK postcode describe the geographic area. The uh, GU in a postcode is for the Guildford area. SW and E are the southwest and east parts of London, respectively. If the UK wanted to really max out its postcode format by allowing all letters and digits in any positions, 
of two groups of three or four symbols each, then there would be two trillion nine hundred and eighty billion fifteen million seventeen thousand nine hundred and eighty four enough for one unique code for each patch of ground of about 30 square centimeters. I think that's a great idea. When I do my online grocery shopping, I could give each thing I'm ordering the delivery address of the exact cupboard it needs to end up in. Phone numbers solve the same problem of assigning numbers to people, but in this case, we really do need a one-to-one -one matchup. Originally, there was one phone number per house, and now, with mobile phones, we're down to a number per human. But there are not enough numbers to go around. Back in the past, calling long distance or international was outrageously expensive. So phone companies would try to undercut the rates of other companies in ways that avoided customers having to change provider. They'd provide a toll-free number to ring, after which an ID code could be entered, and then the number you actually wanted to call. The cost of this second call, now bouncing via the intermediate company, would be charged to the account matching the ID code. The problem was that these intermediate companies did not pick long enough codes. People talk online about how some companies would only use five-digit codes, despite having tens of thousands of customers. Five digits allows for 100,000 possible codes, and 10,000 customers would use 10% of those. In maths, we'd say that the space of possible codes is saturated to the rather high proportion of 10%. At fewer than 10 possible codes per customer, it would not take long to guess a valid one and make a free call. This kind of security through obscurity works only if the number of possible codes swamps the ones which are valid. It even seems that the number of humans on Earth is at a high saturation rate of the number of possible phone numbers. If there were way more phone numbers than people, they would be disposable. I mean, the phone numbers, not the humans. But because phone numbers, historically, needed to be memorized, there has been pressure to keep them short. Thus, there are not enough of them to throw away, so phone numbers get recycled. When you cancel a phone contract, your number is not deleted, it's given to someone else. The chance of a number directly linked to your personal information eventually being reallocated to someone is a definite security risk. My favorite recycled phone number story comes from the Ultimate Fighting Championship. The UFC is a mixed martial arts competition, which I am vaguely aware of, only because the fighting ring is an octagon and directly referred to as such. I'd say calling a television show Road to the Octagon and then just showing a bunch of fighters is false advertising. And don't get me started on how few higher polygons there were in Beyond the Octagon. Welterweight UFC fighter Rory McDonald noticed that whenever he walked out before a fight, they would not play the walkout song he requested. His opponents were picking aggressive songs to get them in the mood, and these were being played. But his choices seemed to be disregarded. I imagine trying to get in the zone before a fight is not helped by the unexpected blasting of MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This. Other fighters were making fun of his music choices. This carried on until one day before a fight, the producer came up to Rory and apologized for not being able to play the Nickelback song he had requested. 
Rory claimed he had never asked for such a thing, and the producer showed him the text messages where he had. An old phone number of Rory's had been recycled and accidentally given to a UFC fan who had been happily picking Rory's music for him. It's a great story about the limitations of number combinations and the first recorded time Nickelback caused someone to stop suffering. Chapter 6 Does Not Compute Gandhi is famous as a pacifist who led India to independence from the UK. But since 1991, he has also gained a reputation as a warmonger leader who launches unprovoked nuclear strikes. This is because of the Civilization computer games, which have sold over 33 million copies. They pit you against several world leaders from history in a race to build the greatest civilization, one of whom is the normally peace-loving Gandhi. But ever since early versions of the game, players noticed that Gandhi was a bit of a jerk. Once he developed atomic technology, he would start dropping nuclear bombs on other nations. This was because of a mistake in the computer code. The game designers had deliberately given Gandhi the lowest non-zero aggression rating possible, a score of one. Classic Gandhi. But later in the game, when all the civilizations were becoming more, well, civilized, every leader had their aggression rating dropped by two. For Gandhi, dropping from one, this calculation played out as one subtract two equals 255, suddenly setting him to maximum aggression. Even though this error has since been fixed, later versions of the game have kept Gandhi as the most nuke-happy leader as a tradition. The computer was getting an answer of 255 for the same reason computers have trouble keeping track of time. Digital memory is finite. The aggression ratings were stored as an eight-digit binary number. Starting at 0000001 and counting down two gave 0000000000 and then 11111111 which is 255 in normal base 10 numbers. Instead of becoming negative, a number stored in a computer will wrap around to being the maximum possible value. These are called rollover errors, and they can break computer code in really interesting ways. Trains in Switzerland are not allowed to have 256 axles. This may be a great obscure fact, but it is not an example of European regulations gone mad. To keep track of where all the trains are on the Swiss rail network, there are detectors positioned around the rails. They are simple detectors which are activated when a wheel goes over a rail, and they count how many wheels there are to provide basic information about the train which has just passed. Unfortunately, they keep track of the number of wheels using an eight-digit binary number. And when that number hits 11111111, it rolls over to 00000000. Any trains which bring the count back to exactly zero move around undetected as phantom trains. I looked up a recent copy of the Swiss train regulations document and the rule about 256 axles is in there between regulations about the loads on trains and the ways in which the conductors 
are able to communicate with drivers. Roughly translated, Regulation 4.7.4 Zugbildung is in order to avoid the danger of an unintentional all-clear signal for a railway section because of the reset to zero of the axles counter, a train must not have an effective total number of axles equal to 256. I guess they had so many inquiries from people wanting to know exactly why they could not add that 256th axle to their train that a justification was put in the manual. This is apparently easier than fixing the code. There have been plenty of times where a hardware issue has been covered by a software fix, but only in Switzerland have I seen a bug fixed with a bureaucracy patch. There are ways to mitigate rollover errors. If programmers see a 256 problem coming, they can put a hard limit in place to stop a value going over 255. This happens all the time, and it's fun spotting people getting confused at the seemingly arbitrary threshold. When messaging app WhatsApp increased the limit of how many users can be in the same group chat from 100 to 256, it was reported in The Independent with the description, it's not clear why WhatsApp settled on the oddly specific number. A lot of people did know why, though. That comment quickly disappeared from the online version with a footnote explaining, a number of readers have since noted that 256 is one of the most important numbers in computing. I feel sorry for whoever was staffing their Twitter account that afternoon. I call this the brick wall solution. If you're in a WhatsApp group with 256 people, you and 255 friends, and you try to add a 257th person, you will simply be stopped from doing so. But given you're pretty much claiming to have 255 better friends than them, they're probably a tenuous enough associate that they're not going to take it personally. The threat of a rollover error is also why the game of Minecraft has a maximum height limit of 256 blocks, which is an actual brick wall solution. A different way to deal with rollover errors is to loop around so that 0000000, 000, 000 follows 11111111. This is exactly what happens in civilization and on Swiss railways. But in both of those cases, there were unintended knock-on effects. Computers just blindly follow the rules they are given and do the logical thing with no regard for what may be the reasonable thing. This means that writing computer code involves trying to account for every possible outcome and making sure the computer has been told what to do. Yes, programming requires being numerate, but in my opinion, it is the ability to think logically through scenarios which most unites programmers with mathematicians. The programmers behind the original arcade version of Pac-Man had set the level number to be stored as an eight-digit binary number, which would loop around when it rolled over. But they forgot to follow through all the consequences of that decision, and a convoluted chain of computer glitches are initiated on level 256, causing the game to fall apart. I actually used an emulator on my computer to play level 256 of the arcade version of Pac-Man, and it completely falls apart. I can confirm that level 256 is all out of whack. Or, strictly speaking, all out of whacka-whacka-whacka. Not that it's a big loss. 
Even having 255 working levels feels a bit like overkill, seeing how many people only ever see the first one. But for those with time and coins to spend, there are hundreds of levels to explore. Admittedly, they are all identical, apart from the behaviour of the ghosts. That said, my best is level 7. I need to up my game. The game does not fail on level 256 because it cannot store the level number. As always, programmers start counting from 0. So level 1 is stored as index 0, level 2 is index 1, and so on. I use index to refer to the number stored as opposed to the actual level number. Level 256 is stored as index 255, which is 111111 in binary. No problem. Even moving on to level 257, we just roll the index over to zero and drop Pac-Man back into the first maze. The game should be playable forever. So why does level 256 break? The problem is the fruit. To add some variety to Pac-Man's diet of dots and ghosts, there are eight different types of fruit dropped in twice per level, including a bell and a key, which... Pac-Man seems to eat with the same ease as he does an apple or a strawberry. Each level is assigned a specific fruit, which is shown at the bottom of the screen, along with Pac-Man's recent fruit consumption. It is this ornamental fruit parade that causes the complete meltdown of the game. Digital space was at such a premium in old computer systems that there are only three numbers stored in the game of Pac-Man as you play. What level you are on? how many lives remain, and what your score is. Everything else is wiped clean between levels. At every level, you are playing against ghosts with amnesia who have no recollection of the hours you have already been doing battle. So the game needs to be able to reconstruct from scratch what fruit Pac-Man must have consumed recently. There is only room to depict seven pieces of fruit, so the game needs to show the fruit from the current level and up to six levels before that, depending on how many levels have been played. In the computer memory, there is a menu of the fruit and the order in which it can appear. So if the level is below seven, it draws as many pieces of fruit as the level number. Above that, it draws the most recent seven. The problem occurs when the code takes the level index and converts it into a level number by adding one. Level 256 is index 255, which increases by one to be level zero. Zero is below seven, so it tries to draw as many pieces of fruit as the level number, which would be fine if it drew zero pieces of fruit, but sadly, it draws first and counts second. The code would draw fruit and then subtract one from the level number until it hit zero. This is not actual Pac-Man computer code, but to give you an idea, it's roughly first step, draw fruit. Next step, subtract one from level number. Next step, stop if level number is zero. Otherwise, keep on fruiting. The computer is now going to try to draw 256 pieces of fruit instead of the normal seven or fewer. Well, I say fruit, but the fruit menu runs out after only 20 rows. For the 21st piece of fruit, the code looks at the next bit of the computer's memory and tries to interpret it as a piece of fruit. It then keeps rolling through the memory, 
as if it were some exotic table of alien fruit and draws it all as best it can. Some of this does match other symbols to be displayed in the game and so, as well as colourful noise, the screen is filled in with letters and punctuation marks. Because of a quirk of the Pac-Man coordinate system, after the fruit fills the bottom of the screen right to left, it then moves to the top right corner of the screen and starts filling the screen column by column. By the time 256 pieces of fruit have been drawn, half the screen is completely covered. Unbelievably, the game then starts to play the level, but the system does not complete a level until Pac-Man has eaten 244 dots. On this last, broken level, the mutant fruit has obliterated loads of the dots, so Pac-Man can never eat the required 244 dots and is doomed to wander what is left of his broken maze until boredom sets in and he succumbs to the ghosts pursuing him. Which, coincidentally, is almost exactly how a lot of programmers feel as they try to finish writing their code. Deadly Code the most dangerous 256 error I have found so far occurred in the Therac 25 medical radiation machine. This was designed to treat cancer patients with bursts of either an electron beam or intense x-rays. It was able to achieve both types of radiation from the one machine by either producing a low current electron beam, which the patient was directly exposed to, or a high current electron beam which was aimed at a metal plate to produce x-rays. The danger was that the beam of electrons required to produce x-rays was so powerful that it could do severe damage to a patient if it hit them directly. So if the electron beam's power was increased, it was vital to make sure the metal target and a collimator, a filter to shape the x-ray beam, had been placed in between the electron beam and the patient. For this, and a host of other safety reasons, the Therac 25 looped through a piece of setup code, and only if all the systems are verified as being in the correct settings could the beam be turned on. The software had a number stored with the catchy name of Class 3. That's just how creative programmers can be when naming their variables. Only after the Therac 25 machine had verified that everything was safe would it set Class 3 equal to zero. To make sure that it was checked every time, the setup loop code would add one to class three at the beginning of each loop so it started at non-zero. A subroutine with the slightly better name of check col would activate whenever class three was not zero and then check the collimator. After the collimator and the metal target was checked and seemed to be in the right place, class three could be set to zero and the beam could be fired. Unfortunately, the class three number was stored as an eight digit binary number which would roll over back to zero after it had maxed out. And the setup loop would be running over and over while waiting for everything to be ready, incrementing class three each time it ran. So every 256th time the setup loop ran, class three would be set to zero, not because the machine was safe, but merely because the value had rolled over from 255 back to zero. This means that roughly 0.4% of the time, a Therac 25 machine would skip running check coal because class three 
was already set to zero as if the collimator had already been checked and verified as being in the correct position. For a mistake with such deadly consequences, 0.4% is a terrifying amount of time. On the 17th of January, 1987, in Yakima Valley Memorial Hospital in Washington State, U.S., now Virginia Mason Memorial, a patient was due to receive 86 RADs from a Therac-25 machine. RADs is an antiquated unit of radiation absorption. Before the patient was to receive their dose of X-rays, however, a metal target and collimator had been moved out of the way so the machine could be aligned using normal visible light. They were not put back. The operator hit the set button on the machine at the exact moment class 3 had rolled over to zero, check coal was not run, and the electron beam fired with no target or collimator in place. Instead of 86 rads, the patient may have received around 8,000 to 10,000 rads. He died in April that year from complications because of this radiation overdose. The fix to the software was disturbingly simple. The setup loop was rewritten so it would set class 3 to a specific non-zero value each time instead of incrementing its previous value. It's a sobering thought that neglecting the way computers keep track of numbers can result in preventable deaths. Things computers do not excel at. What is 5 subtract 4 subtract 1? It's not a trick question, the answer is zero, and it's not always as easy as it looks. Excel can get this wrong. The system of binary digits used by computers to store numbers in digital memory not only causes rollover errors, but can break even the easiest looking maths. If I change that 5, subtract 4, subtract 1 to be 0 0.5, subtract 0 0.4, subtract 0 0.1, the correct answer is still zero, but the version of Excel I use thinks that it is negative 2.77556E negative 17. And while that value of negative 0.0000, a lot of zeros, 27756, may not be exactly zero, it is still exceedingly close to zero. So Excel is doing something right, but something is also going fundamentally wrong. In short, some numbers cause different base system grief. Our human base 10 numbers are terrible at dealing with thirds, but we've become used to it and can compensate. Quick maths. What's 1? Subtract 0 0.666666. Subtract 0 0.333333. Your instinct may be that it is 0, because 1 subtract 2 thirds, subtract a third, equals 0 but those digits do not actually represent two-thirds and one-third because, in their true form, they require infinitely many sixes and threes. The real answer is 0 0.000001, which is slightly non-zero because I had only limited space for the decimal expansions of two-thirds and one-third. If you add 0 0.666666 and 0 0.333333, you only get 0 0.999999, not 1. Binary has the same problem trying to store some fractions. Adding 0 0.4 to 0 0.1 does not give you 0 0.5 in binary, 
0.4 in binary starts 0.011 and then it's 0011 repeating forever. 0.1 starts 0.0 and then is 0011 repeating forever. So when you add them together, you get 0.0111111 and then infinitely many ones. A computer cannot store the infinitely many digits of the binary versions of 0.1 and 0.4, so their total is just short of a half. But just as humans we have become accustomed to the limitations of base 10, computers have been programmed to correct the mistakes introduced by binary calculations. If you just enter 0.5, subtract 0.4, subtract 0.1, equals into Excel, it will get it right. It knows that the total of 0.01111 so on should be exactly a half. However, if you enter it with brackets, so it's open brackets, 0.5 subtract 0.4 subtract 0.1 close brackets times one, that freezes the error in place. Excel does not check for these sorts of errors during the calculation, only at the end. By making the final step an innocuous multiplication by one, we've lulled Excel into a false sense of security, and so it doesn't scrutinize the answer before releasing it for us to see. The programmers of Excel claim they are not directly to blame. They adhere to the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers standards for arithmetic done by computers, with only a few minor variations in how they handle unusual cases. The IEEE set out standard 754 in 1985, most recently updated in 2008, to agree how computers should ideally deal with the limitations of doing maths with finite precision binary numbers. Oh, and the number 754 is not significant. The IEEE just number their standards sequentially in the order they were requested. Right before this one was number 753, functional methods and equipment for measuring the performance of dial pulse address signaling systems. And after it, 755, trial use extending high level language implementations for microprocessors. Because it is baked into the standards, you will see the same kind of problem popping up whenever you get a computer to do some maths for you, including in a modern phone. Imagine you're planning a schedule. What would you do if you needed to know how many fortnights there are in 75 days? Most people would reach for a calculator app, but I can guarantee that you are better at solving this problem than a calculator. Grab your phone and open up the calculator app. If you enter 75 divided by 14, the answer, 5.3571426, so on, so on, so on, will appear instantly on the screen. So 75 days is just over five fortnights. To work out how many extra days there are, subtract five and multiply the remaining 0.3571426 of a fortnight by 14. What your calculator now shows you is wrong. On some phones, you'll be looking at the answer 5.00000001 or similar. Other phones give things like 4.999999994 is the answer. iPhone users will see the correct answer 5, but this gives it no right to feel smug. 
tilt the iPhone sideways so it goes into scientific calculator mode, and in older versions of iOS, the full answer will be revealed. 4.9999999999. When I was writing this, I fired up the calculator program on my laptop, and it gave an answer of 5.0000000000004. Because of the limitations of binary, computers are consistently close but not quite. Like any food product with diet in the title, it's always a bit off. The Dangers of Truncation In the life and death theatre of war, any simple mistake can result in the loss of many lives. And while wars are inextricably entangled with politics, I think we can still objectively examine how otherwise small mass errors can have disastrous results in terms of the cost in human life. Even a mass mistake as small as 0.00009536 of an error. On the 25th of February, 1991, in the first Gulf War, a Scud missile was fired at US Army barracks near Duran, Saudi Arabia. This was not a surprise for the US Army, who had set up a Patriot missile defense system to detect, track, and intercept any such missiles. Using radar, the Patriot would detect an incoming missile, calculate its speed, and use that to track its movements until a counter-missile could be fired to destroy it. Except a mathematical oversight in the Patriot code meant that it missed. Originally designed as a portable system to intercept enemy planes, the Patriot battery had been updated in time for the Gulf War so that it could defend against the much faster Scud missiles, which could travel at blistering speeds of around 6,000 kilometers an hour. The Gulf War Patriots were also placed in static positions instead of being moved around a lot like they had been designed to do. Remaining stationary meant that the Patriot systems were not routinely turned on and off. This, as we have already seen, can lead to some issues with internal timekeeping. The system used a 24-digit binary number, that's three bytes, to store the time in tenths of a second since it was last turned on, meaning it could run for 19 days, 10 hours, 2 minutes, and 1.6 seconds before there would be a rollover error, which must have seemed like a long time when they were being designed. The problem was how that number of tenths of seconds was converted into a floating point value of exact seconds. The math for this is easy enough. You multiply by 0.1 to effectively divide by 10. But the Patriot system stored one-tenth as a 24-bit binary number, creating exactly the same problem Excel has when you subtract 0.4 and 0.1 from 0.5. It's off by a tiny amount. The absolute difference between the true value of one-tenth and one-tenth stored as a 24-bit binary number gives an error of 0.00009536743164062562565%. That error may not feel like much, it's only off by one part in a million, and when the time value is small, the error is also small. But the problem with a percentage error is that as the value gets bigger, the error grows with it. The longer the Patriot system was running, the larger the time value became, 
and the bigger the error accumulated was. When the Scud missile was launched that day, the nearby Patriot system had been on for about 100 continuous hours, roughly 360,000 seconds. That's about a third of a million seconds. So the error was about a third of a second. A third of a second does not feel very long until you're tracking a missile going 6,000 kilometers an hour. In a third of a second, a Scud missile can move more than 500 meters. It is very hard to track and intercept something which is half a kilometer away from where you expect it to be. The Patriot system was unable to stop the Scud missile and it hit the US base, killing 28 soldiers and injuring about 100 other people. It's yet another costly lesson in the importance of knowing the limits of binary numbers. But this time, there is an added lesson when it comes to fixing mistakes. When the system was upgraded to track the much faster Scud missile, the time conversion method had been upgraded as well, but not consistently. Some time conversions in the system still use the old method. Ironically, if the system had consistently been off from the correct time, it could still have worked okay. Tracking a missile requires accurate tracking of time differences, so a consistent error would cancel out. But now different parts of the system were using different levels of precision in their conversion and a discrepancy slipped in. The incomplete upgrade is why the system could not track the incoming missile. Even more depressing is that the US Army knew about this problem and on the 16th of February 1991, it had released a new version of the software to fix it. As this would take a while to distribute to all of the Patriot systems, a message was also sent out to warn Patriot users not to let the system run continuously for long periods of time. But what constituted a long period of time was not specified. As well as the mathematical problems, those 28 deaths were also the result of poorly fixed code and the lack of a message simply saying to restart once a day. The software fix arrived at the base in Duran on the 26th of February, the day after the missile attack. Nothing to worry about. In mathematics, it is impossible to divide numbers by zero. Many an internet argument has raged over this with well-meaning people maintaining that the answer to dividing by zero is infinity. Except it is not. The argument is that if you take one divided by x and let x get closer and closer to zero, the value shoots off to be infinitely large. Which is half true. It only works if you come at it from the positive direction. If x starts negative and then approaches zero from below, the value of one divided by x races off towards negative infinity, completely the opposite direction to before. If the limiting value is different depending on the direction you approach it from, then, in mathematics, we say the limit is undefined. You cannot divide by zero. The limit does not exist. But what happens when computers try to divide by zero? Unless they have been explicitly told that they can't divide by zero, they naively give it a go. And the results can be terrifying. Computer circuits are very good at adding and subtracting. So the math they do is built up from there. Multiplication is just repeated addition, which is easy enough to program in. Division is only slightly more complicated. It is repeated subtraction, and then there may be some remainder. So dividing 
42 by 9 requires subtracting as many 9s as possible, effectively counting down by 9s, 42, 33, 24, 15, and 6. That took 4 steps, so 42 divided by 9 equals 4, with a remainder of 6. Or we can convert 6 ninths to a decimal and get 42 divided by 9 equals 4.66666 and so on. If a computer is given 42 divided by 0, this system for division breaks. Or rather, it never breaks, but goes on forever. I have a Casio personal mini calculator from 1975. If I ask it to calculate 42 divided by 0, the screen fills with zeros and it looks like it has crashed. Until I push the View Extra Digits button and the calculator reveals that it is trying to get an answer and that answer is continuing to rocket up. The poor Casio is continually subtracting 0 from 42 and keeping count of how many times it has done so. Even older mechanical calculators had the same problem, except they had a hand crank and required a human to keep literally crunching through the calculation as they continued their futile quest of subtracting zeros. For the truly lazy people of the past, there were electromechanical calculators which had a motor built in to drive the calculation crank automatically. There are videos online of people performing a division by zero on these. It results in them spinning through numbers forever, or until the power is pulled out. An easy way to fix this in modern computers is to add an extra line to the code telling the computer to not even bother. If you are writing a computer program to divide the number A by the number B, this is some pseudocode of how the function could be defined to avoid the problem. Define dividing A and B. If B equals zero, return error. Else, return a divided by B. The most recent iPhone, when I was writing this book, must have something almost exactly like this. If I type in 42 divided by 0, it puts the word error up on the screen and refuses to go any further. The built-in calculator on my computer goes one step further and displays all of, not a number. My handheld calculator, a uh, Casio FX991EX, gives Math error. I make calculator unboxing videos where I open and review calculators. Over 3 million views and counting. One of the tests I always perform is to divide by zero and check what the calculator does. Most are very well behaved. But, as always, some calculators slip through the gaps. And not just calculators. US Navy warships can get division by zero wrong too. In September 1997, the cruiser USS Yorktown lost all power because its computer control system tried to divide by zero. It was being used by the Navy to test their smart ship project, putting computers running Windows on warships to automate part of the ship's running and reduce the crew by around 10%. Given it left the ship floating dead in the water for over two hours, it certainly succeeded in giving the crew some time off. The prevalence of military examples of maths going wrong is not because the armed forces are particularly bad at mathematics. It's partly because the military are big on research and development, so they are at the bleeding edge of what can be done, which tends to invite mistakes, 
Moreover, they have some level of public obligation to report on things which go wrong. Obviously, a lot of undoubtedly fascinating maths mistakes never get declassified. But within a private company, even more mistakes are completely hushed up. I'm largely limited to talking about mistakes which have been openly reported on. In the case of the USS Yorktown, the details are still a bit hazy. It's not clear whether the ship had to be towed back to port or if it eventually regained power in the water, but we do know it was a divide-by-zero error. The mistake seems to have started when someone entered a zero in a database somewhere, and the database treated it as a number, not a null entry. When the system divided by this entry, the answer started racing off like a cheap calculator. This then caused an overflow error when it became bigger than the space within the computer memory allocated to it. It took a supergroup of mass mistakes, led by division by zero, to take down a whole warship. Chapter 7. Probably Wrong Unlikely events can happen. On the 7th of June 2016, Colombia were playing Paraguay in the 2016 Copa America. The referee flipped a coin to see which football team got to choose which end of the field their goal would be, except the coin landed perfectly on its edge. After only a moment's hesitation and a few laughs from the nearby players who saw it happen, the referee picked the coin up and managed to flip it successfully. I will accept that falling into grass makes an edge landing more probable. A coin landing on its edge on a hard surface is almost impossible. I believe the coin with the highest chance of landing on its edge is the UK old-style one-pound coin in circulation from 1983 to 2017, which is the thickest coin I've seen in daily use. To check how likely it is to land on its edge, I sat down and spent three days flipping one. After 10,000 flips, it had landed on its edge 14 times. Not bad. I suspect the new one-pound coin will have similar odds, but I'll leave those 10,000 flips to someone else. For something like the much thinner US nickel, I suspect it would take tens of thousands of flips for even a single edge case. But it is still possible. If you want something unlikely to occur, you simply need the patience to create enough opportunities to allow it to happen. Or, in my case, patience, a coin, a lot of free time, and the kind of obsessive personality that keeps you sitting in a room flipping a coin by yourself despite the desperate pleas of your friends and family to stop. Sometimes the repeated attempts are not so obvious. One of my favourite photos of all time is of someone called Donna, taken when she visited Disney World as a child in 1980. Many years later she was about to marry her now husband Alex and they were looking through old family photos. Donna showed this photo to Alex who noticed that one of the people in the background with a pushchair looked like his dad. And it was his dad, and he was the child in the pushchair. Donna and Alex had been photographed together by chance 15 years before they would meet again and eventually marry. Obviously, this caught the attention of the media. It had to be fate which caused them to be photographed together. They were destined to marry each other. 
But it's not fate. It's just stats. It's like flipping a coin which lands on its edge. The odds of it happening might be incredibly low, but if you heroically try for long enough, you can expect that it will eventually happen. The odds of any one couple being photographed together by chance in their youth is incredibly small, but it's not zero. And I think that is big enough that we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. Think about how many unknown random people there are in photographs of yourself. Hundreds? Thousands? With cameras ubiquitous in modern phones, I don't think it is a stretch to estimate that a young person today could be photographed with 10 different random people per week. That's 10,000 people they're in photographs with by the age of 20. Of course, there will be some overlap and not everyone in the background of the photo is someone they could go on to marry. So let's be conservative and say an average human will have been photographed with at least a few hundred anonymous potential marriees. The chance that a specific person will go on to have a meaningful relationship with one of those few hundred people is incredibly small. There are billions of other people in the world to marry. For someone who does go on to marry, there's a probability of a couple hundred out of potentially billions. Those are not good odds. They're comparable, if not worse, to the probability of winning the lottery. And like winning the lottery, people such as Donna and Alex should be amazed at how lucky they are. But like the lottery, we should not be amazed that someone wins. It's incredible if you win the lottery, but it's not amazing that someone wins the lottery. You never see newspaper headlines saying, incredible, someone won the lottery again this week. Because so many people play the lottery, it's not surprising that people win fairly regularly. We would not care about Donna and Alex if this coincidence had not happened. They are two arbitrary people living in North America. We only care about them because this photo exists. Even though the chance of this happening to you might only be a hundred out of billions, there are still billions of people it could happen to. My argument is that a population a person could marry and the population this could happen to cancel out. By my logic, across any population, would expect about as many of these miracle photos as the number of times we estimate the average person in that population has been photographed with strangers. There should be hundreds of these photos out there. I tested this when I was on tour back in 2013 with my show Matt Parker, Number Ninja. I told the story of Donna and Alex and said there should be more bizarre coincidence photographs. And sure enough, after one show, someone came up to tell me about a new one that happened to a friend of theirs. This wasn't a massive tour either, about 20 shows with a total audience of maybe 4,000 people and I still found a new example from someone in the crowd. In 1993, Kate and Chris met while studying at Sheffield University in the north of England, and a few years later decided to go on a world trip. They spent some time on a farm in the middle of Western Australia that was owned by Johnny and Jill, distant relatives of Kate. Their nearest relative was her great-great-grandfather, but the families had kept in touch. Jill got out a photo album of her only ever trip to England because there was an image taken somewhere she could not identify. All the other photos in the album had been labelled with where they were taken, but this was the one photo where Jill did not know the location. She showed it to them, and Chris recognised it as Trafalgar Square in London. He continued, blimey, 
that bloke looks like my dad. And that looks like my mum. And that's my sister. And there's me. The photo had been taken on one of his only two childhood visits to London. Kate and Chris have now been together for over two decades and told the story about their photo at their wedding as proof that they were meant to be together. I think they should be amazed that they have a photo and a story like this. Most of us do not, but we should not be amazed that it happened at all. As a depressing bonus thought, don't forget that for every one of these photos that is found, there are many more that no one will ever notice. And many, many more which were close to being taken, but someone snapped the photo a few seconds before or after the perfect moment. Don't be disappointed that you don't have one of these miracle photos. Be disappointed that you are much more likely to have walked past a future partner without ever knowing it happened. Likewise, just because something happens once does not mean it is likely to happen again. It may have just been a lucky sighting of an unlikely event. There was a short-lived game show in the UK a few years ago which was built on uncertain mathematical foundations and in which an early test accidentally worked. I will not name the show or the mathematical friend of a friend of mine who advised on it, but the story is still worth telling. In the game, each contestant was given a target amount of prize money, which they needed to earn through some convoluted process. When the mass consultant ran the numbers, they found that the outcome of each game was almost entirely determined by the size of the target. If the target was too high, then there was a very small chance that the contestant would win, even using an optimal strategy. If the target was low, then the contestant would win easily. It would not be much fun to watch a game show where the strategy used by the contestant does not make a difference. However, the producers decided to ignore the maths. One producer said that he had tried the game at a recent family gathering and his granny had a great time playing it and won the higher amounts a few times. And which should you believe? A comprehensive analysis of the probabilities and expected results of the game show or a few games played by someone's grandmother? They went with the granny and the show was cancelled mid-season after only the first few episodes had aired because no one ever won the higher prize money. So it turns out the optimal strategy is to listen to the mass consultant you have hired to crunch the probabilities for you because you might just have a lucky grandmother. A serious statistical error. In 1999, a British woman was sentenced to life in prison for the murders of two of her children. However, the two deaths could have been entirely accidental. Every year, just under 300 babies in the UK die unexpectedly from sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS. During the trial, the jury had to decide if she was guilty of murder beyond reasonable doubt. Was she the perpetrator or the victim? in this emotionally charged case. The jury was presented with stats which seemed to imply that two siblings, both dying of SIDS, was extremely rare. They returned a verdict of guilty with a majority of 10 to 2, but the defendant's conviction was later overturned. At the trial, erroneous statistics were presented which gave the false impression that there was only a 0 0.0000 0.14% chance around 1 in 73 million of two babies in such a family dying from SIDS. 
the Royal Statistical Society claimed that there was no statistical basis for this figure and was concerned by the misuse of statistics in the courts. Upon a second appeal in 2003, the conviction was quashed, the woman having already spent three years in prison. How could maths have gone so far wrong as to convict an innocent woman? The prosecution had taken the probability of a cot death in a family such as this woman's at 1 in 8,543 and multiplied 1 over 8,543 by 1 over 8,543 to estimate the probability of two cot deaths. There is a long list of reasons why this is not valid, but the main one is that the two cot deaths are not independent. In mathematics, if two events are independent, then you can multiply their probabilities to find the chance of both of them occurring. The chances of pulling the ace of spades from a deck of cards is 1 over 52, and the chance of getting heads when you flip a coin is 1 over 2. Flipping the coin in no way affects the deck of cards, so we can multiply 1 over 52 by 1 over 2 to get the combined probability for both happening of 1 over 104. If two events are not independent, then all bets should be off, or at least all bets should be thoroughly re-examined. Less than 1% of the US population is taller than 6 feet 3 inches, about 190 centimeters. So if you pick random humans in the US, fewer than 1 in 100 will be that tall. But if you pick a random professional basketball player in the NBA, the probability is very different. Height and playing professional basketball are definitely linked. 75% of NBA players are over 6 foot 3 inches tall. Probabilities change if a related factor has already been selected for. SIDS involves possible genetic and environmental factors, so the probability of it happening to a family who has already suffered such a tragedy will be different to the probability in the general population. And probabilities which are not independent cannot be multiplied together to get the combined probability. Around 0.00016% of the people living in the US play in the NBA. That's 522 players in the 2018-19 season versus a population of 327 million. Naively multiplying that with the 1% probability of being over 6 foot 3 inches tall gives the combined odds of 1 in 63 million of a random population member both being in the NBA and being that tall. But the probabilities are not independent, and that figure incorrectly portrays it as being much less likely than it really is. The actual probability is 1 in 830,000. The jury was told by an expert witness that the combined probability of two cases of SIDS in the same family was 1 in 73 million, so they convicted a woman who was later exonerated. That expert witness has since been found guilty of serious professional misconduct by the General Medical Council for incorrectly implying that the deaths were independent. Getting our heads around probabilities is very hard for humans, but in high-stakes cases like this, we have to get it right. Flipping difficult. It is easy to trick humans with probability. Here are two games which people consistently get wrong. Feel free to use them to trick any humans of your choosing. The first is based on a completely fair coin flip. 
In this case, fair means that heads and tails are both exactly equally likely. Any perfect edge balance would require a reflip. So if we had bet on the coin with you winning on heads and me winning on tails, that is entirely fair. We both have the same chance of winning. But a single flip is a bit boring. So let's make it interesting. Let's bet on three flips in a row. Say you take heads, tails, heads, and I'll have tails, heads, heads. Now the fair coin is repeatedly flipped until either of those sequences occurs. Don't like heads, tails, heads as your prediction? No problem. In the book, I have put a table with all eight possible combinations of heads and tails that you can choose, and next to them are my corresponding predictions. Start flipping a coin. If I win, be sure to post my winnings to me. Also in the table, I have put a list of percentages on the right, and there's no need to bother yourself with those. They are just the probabilities that you will win, and they are 12.5%, 25 percent, 33 and a third percent, 33 and a third, 33 and a third, 33 and a third, 25 percent, 12 and a half percent. You may have noticed they are all below 50 percent. Yes, as long as you choose first, I can always make a prediction which has a better chance of winning. The best case scenario for me is when my opponent always goes for heads, 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 or tails, tails, tails which gives them a 12.5% chance of winning and me an 87.5% chance of success. Even if I assume my opponent chooses their sequence at random, I have a 74% chance of winning on average. When I first saw this game, it did not make sense to my poor brain. Each coin flip was independent, yet something strange was going on with predictions of three flips in a row. The sneakiness is in how the coin is continually flipped until one of the predicted runs of three occurs. If the coin was flipped three times to get one result, then flipped a whole new three times for the next result, then the outcomes would be independent. But if the last two flips of one run of three form the first two flips of the next result, the results overlap each other, then they are no longer independent. If you were to look up all of my predictions in that table, you would see that the final two choices of mine are always the same as the first two of my opponent. My goal is to cut them off at the pass. Sure, one player could win on the very first three flips of the coin, a 12.5% chance for each person. But after that, the winning run of heads and tails will be preceded by a run of three which overlaps it. I want to choose that preceding group. For something like Tails, 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 it either has to be the first three flips or it will definitely be beaten by Heads, Tails, Tails coming directly before it. A mid-sequence run of three tails will always have a head directly before it, giving Heads, Tails, Tails before Tails, Tails, Tails. The game is rigged. This is a game known as Penny Ante and it has been used to separate humans from their cash for years. In the game of penny ante, people get thrown because every option of three heads and tails has a different combination which is more likely to win. It is unsettling that there is no best option to pick which is more likely to win than all the others, but this exact oddity is the basis of the game Rock, Paper, Scissors. 
any option picks can be beaten by one of the other options. This is the difference between transitive and non-transitive relations. A transitive relation is one that can be passed along a chain. The size of real numbers is transitive. If 9 is bigger than 8 and 8 is bigger than 7, then we can assume that 9 is bigger than 7. Winning in rock, paper, scissors is non-transitive. Scissors beats paper and paper beats rock, but that does not imply that scissors can beat rock. The second probability game you can use to trick humans was invented by mathematician James Grime. He developed a set of non-transitive dice which now bear his name, Grime Dice, which is the second best boy band name in this book. They come in five colours, red, blue, green, yellow and magenta, and you can use them to play a game of highest number wins. You and your opponent choose a dice each and roll them at the same time to see who gets the highest number. But for every dice, there is a different coloured dice which will beat it more often than not. On average, red beats blue, blue beats green, green beats yellow, yellow beats magenta, and then magenta beats red. My contribution to the dice was to wait for James to work the numbers out and then suggest a range of colours to help remember the red, blue, green, yellow, magenta order. Each colour is one letter longer than the previous one. Now you let your opponent choose their colour first and you pick the dice with one fewer letters. Uh, red 3 rolls over to magenta 7. If you use these dice to win drinks and money off your friends and family, you may eventually have to come clean about their non-transitiveness. Maybe even teach them the order of the dice. But then suggest doubling the dice up and rolling two of each colour together, because when the dice are rolled in pairs, it perfectly reverses the order of which beats which. Instead of red beating blue, blue now beats red more often than not, and so on. If you go first, your opponent will still be using the single dice system and select the colour which is likely to lose to yours. Non-transitive dice are a relative newcomer to the world of mathematics. They appeared on the math scene only in the 1970s, but they quickly made a big impact. Multi-billionaire investor Warren Buffett is a big fan of non-transitive dice and brought them out when he met also multi-billionaire computer guy Bill Gates. The story goes that Gates' suspicion was aroused when Buffett insisted he pick his dice first and upon closer inspection of the numbers, he in turn insisted Buffett choose first. The link between people who like non-transitive dice and billionaires may only be correlation and not causation. James Grimes' contribution to the non-transitive world was to make it so that his dice have two possible cycles of non-transitiveness, but with only one of them reversing when you double the dice. Well, almost. In the cycle which does not reverse, there's one pair up of green beating red, which does just flip to a 49% chance of red winning, still slightly in green's favour. There is now a second version of Grime Dice, which fixes this problem so it stays in red's favour, but it loses subsets of dice, which function as smaller non-transitive sets. We've also renamed the dice, so the green dice is now Olive. The second cycle can be remembered as the alphabetical order of the colours. 
Using both cycles, in theory, you can let two other people choose their dice colors, and as long as you can then choose the one or two dice version of the game, you can beat both opponents simultaneously more often than not. I wish I could say there are some amazing mathematics going on behind the scene which makes grime dice work, but there isn't. James decided the properties he wanted the dice to have and then spent ages working out what numbers would allow that to happen. If you were to give me two different six-sided dice with whatever random numbers from zero to nine you want on them, I can find a third dice to complete a non-transitive loop more than one time in three. The math is only amazing because it catches the human brain off guard. But be warned, human brains are quick to hold a grudge if you win too many drinks off them. You've got to be in it to not win it. There is nothing you can do to increase your chances of winning the lottery other than buying more tickets. Oh wait, I should specify, buy more tickets with different numbers. If you buy multiple tickets with identical numbers, then you don't increase your chances of winning. But if you do win with multiple tickets and have to share the prize, you'll get a bigger portion. So it's a way to win more money, but not to win more often. But surely no one has ever won the lottery with multiple identical tickets, except Derek Ladner, who in 2006 accidentally bought his tickets for the UK lottery twice. Three other people also won, so instead of getting a quarter of the two and a half million pound jackpot, he took home two fifths. He had claimed the first fifth before realizing he had one of the other winning tickets. And Mary Wallens, who deliberately bought two identical tickets for a Canadian lottery, also in 2006, and took home two thirds of the $24 million instead of half. And the husband and wife, in 2014, who each bought their regular UK lottery ticket without telling the other. They matched five out of six numbers and the bonus ball. And Kenneth Stokes in Massachusetts, who played his regular numbers on the Lucky for Life lottery despite his family buying him an annual ticket. But if you want to increase your chances of winning, you need to buy two different tickets. Now, that's not a financially smart decision. On average, every time you buy a lottery ticket, you lose money. The current license issued by the UK Gambling Commission to Camelot UK Lotteries Limited stipulates that 47.5% of the money spent on lottery tickets needs to be given back as prizes. That's on average. Actual prizes fluctuate week to week. This is the expected return in black and white. For every one pound a player spends on a lottery ticket, they can expect to get 47 and a half pence back in prizes. But people do not gamble because of the expected return. Running a lottery is actually about skewing the distribution of prizes as far from the expected return as is feasible. I could put in a competing bid for the National Lottery License and undercut Camelot by having dramatically lower admin costs. My plan is that when people buy a £2 ticket, the person at the point of sale just gives them their expected 95 pence prize there and then. It cuts back on admin, and I wouldn't even need to bother drawing the numbers twice a week. It's a ridiculous and extreme example, but it gets the point across. People do not want their expected return, 
they want a chance to get back more than they put in. All right, so now every third customer gets £2.85 back and everyone else gets nothing. Or every fourth ticket pays out £3.80. When is it skewed enough? Should every hundredth customer get £95? There are things like scratch cards which operate around this value of prize and, in fact, have higher expected returns. But the lottery has decided to really skew us. In 2015, Camelot made it harder to win the lottery. Instead of choosing six numbers from a total of 49 numbers, they changed it to choosing six numbers from 59. In one of my favourite bits of PR spin ever, they sold it as more numbers to pick from. That's brilliant. The reality is that there were now more numbers a player wasn't going to choose, dramatically lengthening the odds. Picking six numbers from 49 gave a 1 in 13,983,816 probability of winning the top prize, whereas choosing six from 59 now gives a 1 in 45,057,474 chance. If you factor in that one of the new lower prizes was a free ticket in the next draw, I did, the odds of winning per ticket purchase was 1 in 40,665,099. At the time, I described it as being more likely that a UK citizen picked at random would have Prince Charles as their dad. It's exceedingly unlikely. However, despite all of this, I would argue that the new reduced odds of winning actually made the lottery better value. The average payout had not changed, they just decided to hand it out in bigger lumps to fewer people. The rule changes have resulted in more jackpot rollovers, which make for bigger prizes, the sorts of prizes that get media attention. And people are not buying tickets for the expected value, they are buying the permission to dream. Having a non-zero chance of winning a life-changing amount of money allows someone to dream about that version of their life. The more publicity a lottery draw gets and the more life-changing the prizes are, the bigger those dreams can be, which is arguably better value. A load of balls. There are people online trying to sell their secrets to winning the lottery. Much of the pseudoscience around lottery draws tries to cloak itself as being mathematical and is normally a variation of the gambler's fallacy. This logical fallacy is that if some random event has not happened for a while, then it is due. But if events are truly random and independent, then an outcome cannot be more or less likely based on what has come before it. Yet people track which numbers have not come up in the lottery recently to see which ones are due in appearance. This reached fever pitch in Italy in 2005 when the number 53 had not been seen for a very long time. The Italian lottery in 2005 was a bit different to that in other countries. They had 10 different draws named after different cities, in each of which participants choose five numbers from a possible 90. Unusually, players don't have to choose a complete set of numbers. They can opt to bet on a single number coming out of a certain draw. 
and the number 53 had not come out of the Venice draw for nearly two years. Loads of people felt that the Venice 53 ball was due. At least 3.5 billion euros were spent buying tickets with the number 53. That's 227 euros per family in Italy. People were borrowing money to place bets as 53 continued not to get drawn and so was, apparently, more and more overdue. Those with the system kept increasing their stake each week, so when 53 finally arrived, they would recoup all previous losses. Players were going bankrupt, and in the lead-up to 53 finally being drawn, on the 9th of February 2005, four people died. One lone suicide, and a second suicide, who took their families' lives as well. Italy even has a cult-like collection of people who believe that no number can take longer than 200 and 20 draws before coming out. They call this the maximum delay, or rather, ritardo massimo, and base it on the early 20th century writings of Samaritani. The mathematician Adam Atkinson, with other Italian academics, was able to reverse engineer the Samaritani formula to show that Samaritani had worked out a good estimate of what the expected longest run should be between draws of any given number for the lottery at the time. Somehow, this estimate transformed over the generations into a supposed magical hard limit for any lottery. Another thing that happened is that people mistakenly think that recent results are unlikely to happen again. I've seen advice online like, don't choose numbers which have won the big jackpot before. And using a combination that has gone through the system already will stack the odds even higher. And it is all rubbish. In 2009, the Bulgarian lottery drew the same numbers, 4, 15, 23, 24, 35, and 42, two draws in a row on the 6th and 10th of September. They were drawn in a different order, but for a lottery, the order does not matter. Amazingly, no one won the jackpot the first time they were drawn. But the following week, 18 people had chosen them in the hope they would come up again. The Bulgarian authorities launched an investigation to check nothing untoward was going on, but the lottery organisers said it was just random probability. And they were right. The only legitimate mathematical strategy you have is to choose numbers that other people are less likely to have also picked. Humans are not very creative at choosing their numbers. On the 23rd of March, 2016, the winning UK lottery numbers were 7, 14, 21, 35, 41, and 42. Only one off from a run of all multiples of 7. An incredible... 4,082 people matched five numbers that week, presumably the five multiples of seven. Camelot don't release that data. So the prize money had to be shared between about 80 times more people than normal. They only got £15 each, less than the £25 people with three balls correct received. It is believed that in the UK, around 10,000 people all choose 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 every week. If they do ever come up, 
the winners will not get much each. They will not even get a unique funny story to tell. Top tips are to choose numbers which are not in an obvious sequence, aren't likely to be numbers from dates, people choose birthdays, anniversaries, and so on, and don't conform to any misguided expectations of which numbers are due. Then, if you play the lottery weekly for millions of years, you'd expect to win the UK lottery once every 780,000 years. On the occasions you do win, you will have to share the prize less on average. Sadly, it's not a strategy that helps much on the timescale of a human lifetime. So, topest tip is, if you do play the lottery, just choose whatever numbers you want. I think the only advantage of choosing really random numbers with high entropy is that they look like the winning numbers most weeks, which helps keep the illusion alive that you could have won. And at the end of the day, that illusion of maybe winning is what you are really buying. Probably in conclusion. I have an uneasy relationship with probability. There is no other area of mathematics where I am as uncertain about my calculations as I am when I'm working out the chances of something happening. Even for something which has a calculable probability, like the chance of a complicated poker hand, I'm still always worried that I've missed thinking about a certain case or nuance. To be honest, I'd be a lot better at poker if I looked up from my calculations and noticed the other players. They could be sweating profusely and I'd not notice as I'm too busy trying to estimate what 52 choose 5 is. And probability is an area of maths where not only does our intuition fail us, it is also generally wrong. We've evolved to jump to probabilistic conclusions which give us the greatest chance of survival not the most accurate results. In my imaginary cartoon version of human evolution, the false positives of assuming there is a danger when there isn't are usually not punished as severely as when a human underestimates a risk and gets eaten. The selection pressure is not on accuracy. Wrong and alive is evolutionarily better than correct and dead. But we owe it to ourselves to try and work out these probabilities as best we can. This is what Richard Feynman was faced with during the investigation into the shuttle disaster. The managers and high-up people in NASA were saying that each shuttle launch had only a 1 in 100,000 chance of disaster. But to Feynman's ears, that did not sound right. He realised it would mean that there could be a shuttle launch every day for 300 years with only one disaster. Almost nothing is that safe. In 1986, the same year as the disaster, there were 46,087 deaths on roads in the US. But Americans drove a total of 1,838,240,000,000 miles in that year which means a journey of around 400 miles had a 1 in 100,000 chance of ending in a fatal disaster. For comparison, in 2015, it was 882 miles. The shuttle was cutting-edge space travel, which was always going to be more dangerous than driving 400 miles in a car. 
the odds of 1 in 100,000 was not a sensible estimate of the probability. When Feynman asked the actual engineers and people working on the space shuttle what they thought the chance of disaster was on any given flight, they gave answers of around 1 in 50 to 1 in 300. This is very different to what the manufacturers, 1 in 10,000, and NASA management, 1 in 100,000, believed. In hindsight, we now know that of the 135 flights before the shuttle program was ended in 2011, two of them ended in disaster, a rate of 1 in 67.5. Feynman came to realise that the 1 in 100,000 probability was more the result of wishful thinking by management than a ground-up calculation. The thinking seemed to be that if the shuttle was going to transport humans, it needed to be that safe so everything would be engineered to that standard. Not only is this not how probabilities work, but how could they even calculate such long odds? From the final report to the President by the Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger Accident, Feynman, in Appendix F, notes, It is true that if the probability of failure was as low as 1 in 100,000, it would take an inordinate number of tests to determine it. You would get nothing but a string of perfect flights from which no precise figure, other than that the probability is likely less than the number of such flights in the string so far. Far from getting a string of faultless test flights, NASA was seeing signs of possible failure during tests. There were also some non-critical failures during actual launches, which did not cause any problems with the flight itself, but showed that the chance of things going wrong was higher than NASA wanted to admit. They had calculated their probabilities based on what they wanted and not what was actually happening. But the engineers had used evidence from testing to try to calculate the actual risk, and they were about right. When humankind puts its mind to it and doesn't let its judgment be clouded by what people want to believe, humans can be pretty good at probability. If we want to. Chapter 8. Put your money where your mistakes are. What counts as a mistake in finance? Of course, there are the obvious ones where people simply got the numbers wrong. On the 8th of December 2005, the Japanese investment firm Mizuho Securities sent an order to the Tokyo Stock Exchange to sell a single share in the company JCOM Co. Limited for 610,000 yen, which was around £3,000 at the time. Well, they thought they were selling one share for 610,000 yen, but the person typing in the order accidentally swapped the numbers and put in an order to sell 610,000 shares for one yen each. They frantically tried to cancel it, but the Tokyo Stock Exchange was proving resistant. Other firms were snapping up the discount shares, and by the time trading was suspended the following day, Mizuho Securities were looking at a minimum of 27 billion yen in losses, well over a hundred million pounds at the time. It was described as a fat fingers error. I would have gone with something more like distracted fingers or 
should learn to double-check all important data entry, but is probably now fired anyway. Fingers. The wake of the error was wide-reaching. Confidence dropped in the Tokyo Stock Exchange as a whole, and the Nikkei index fell 1.95% in one day. Some, but not all, of the firms which bought the discount stock offered to give them back a later ruling by the Tokyo District Court put some of the blame on the Tokyo Stock Exchange because their system did not allow Mizuho to cancel the erroneous order. This only serves to confirm my theory that everything is better with an undo button. This is the numerical equivalent of a typo. Such errors are as old as civilization. I'd happily argue that the rise of civilization came about because of humankind's mastery of mathematics. Unless you can do a whole lot of maths, the logistics of humans living together on the scale of a city are impossible. And for as long as humans have been doing mathematics, there have been numerical errors. The academic text, Archaic Bookkeeping, came out of a project at the Free University of Berlin. It is an analysis of the earliest script writing ever discovered, the proto-cuneiform texts made up of symbols scratched on clay tablets. This was not yet a fully formed language, but rather elaborate bookkeeping system, complete with mistakes. The clay tablets are from the Sumerian city of Uruk in modern-day southern Iraq. They were made between 3400 and 3000 BCE, so over 5000 years ago. It seems the Sumerians developed writing not to communicate prose, but rather to track stock levels. This is a very early example of maths allowing the human brain to do more than it was built for. In small groups of humans, you can keep track of who owns what in your head and have basic trade. But when you have a city with all the taxation and shared property that it requires, you need a way of keeping external records and written records allow for trust between two people who may not personally know each other. Ironically, online writing is now removing trust between humans, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Some of the ancient Sumerian records were written by a person seemingly named Cushum and signed off by their supervisor, Nisa. Some historians have argued that Cushum is the earliest human whose name we know it seems the first human whose name has been passed down through millennia of history was not a ruler, a warrior, or a priest, but an accountant. The 18 existing clay tablets which are signed Cushum indicate that their job was to control the stock levels in a warehouse which held the raw materials for brewing beer. I mean, that is still a thing. A friend of mine manages a brewery and does exactly that for a living. His name is Rich, by the way, just in case this recording is one of the few things to survive the apocalypse and he becomes the new oldest named human. Cushum and Nisa are particularly special to me, not because they are the first humans whose names have survived, but because they made the first ever mathematical mistake, or at least the earliest one that has survived. At least, it's the earliest one I've managed to find. Let me know if you locate an earlier error. Like a modern trader in Tokyo, incorrectly entering numbers into a computer, Cushum entered some cuneiform numbers into a clay tablet incorrectly. From the tablets, we can find out a bit about the math that was being used so long ago. 
For a start, some of the Bali records cover an administrative period of 37 months, which is three 12-month years plus one bonus month. This is evidence that the Sumerians could have already been using a 12-month lunar calendar with a leap month once every three years. In addition, they did not have a fixed number-based system for numbers, but rather a counting system using symbols, which were three, five, six, or ten times bigger than each other. Once you get through the alien number system, the mistakes are so familiar they could have been made today. On one tablet, Kushim simply forgets to include three symbols when adding up a total amount of barley. On another one, the symbol for one is used instead of the symbol for ten. I think I've made both those mistakes when doing my own bookkeeping. As a species, we are pretty good at maths, but we haven't got any better over the last few millennia. I'm sure if you checked in on a human doing maths in 5,000 years' time, the same mistakes will be being made. And they'll probably still have beer. Sometimes when I drink beer, I like to remember Kushim working away in the beer warehouse with Nisa checking up on them. What they and others like them were doing led to our modern writing and mathematics. They had no idea how important they and beer ended up being for the development of human civilization. Like I said before, living in cities was one of the things which caused humans to rely on maths. But which part of city living is recorded in our longest surviving mathematical documents? Brewing beer. Beer gave us some of humankind's first calculations, and beer continues to help us make mistakes to this very day. Computerized money mistakes. Our modern financial systems are now run on computers, which allows humans to make financial mistakes more efficiently and quicker than ever before. As computers have developed, they have given birth to modern high-speed trading, where a single customer within a financial exchange can put through over 100,000 trades per second. No human can be making decisions at that speed, of course. They are the results of high-frequency trading algorithms where traders have fed requirements into the computer programs they have designed to automatically decide exactly when and how to make purchases and sales. Traditionally, financial markets have been a means of blending together the insight and knowledge of thousands of different people all trading simultaneously. The prices are the cumulative results of the hive mind. If any one financial product starts to deviate from its true value, then traders will seek to exploit that slight difference, and this results in a force to drive prices back to their correct value. But when the market becomes swarms of high-speed trading algorithms, things start to change. In theory, the results of high-frequency trading algorithms should be the same as the results gained by high-frequency trading people to synchronize prices across different markets and reduce the spread of values, but on an even finer scale. Automatic algorithms are written to exploit the smallest of price differences and to respond within milliseconds. But if there are mistakes in those algorithms, things can go wrong on a massive scale. On the 1st of August 2012, the trading firm Knight Capital had one of its high-frequency algorithms go off script. The firm acted as a market maker, which is a bit like a glorified currency exchange, but for stocks. A high-street currency exchange makes money because currencies would be sold at a lower price for the convenience of a quick sale. 
the exchange will then hang on to that foreign money until it can sell it at a higher price to someone who comes in later and asks for it. This is why you will see tourist currency exchanges with rather different buy and sell prices for the same currency. Knight Capital did the same thing, but with stocks and could sometimes resell a stock it had just purchased in under a second. In August 2012, the New York Stock Exchange started a new retail liquidity program, which meant that, in some situations, traders could offer stocks at slightly better prices to retail buyers. This retail liquidity program received regulatory approval only a month before it went live on the 1st of August. Knight Capital rushed to update its existing high-frequency trading algorithms to operate in this slightly different financial environment. But during the update, Knight Capital somehow broke its code. As soon as it went live, the Knight Capital software started buying stocks across 104 different companies on the New York Stock Exchange for more than it could sell them for. It was shut down within an hour, but once the dust had settled, Knight Capital had made a one-day loss of $461.1 million, roughly as much as the profit they had made over the previous two years. Details of what went wrong have never been made public. One theory is that the main trading program accidentally activated some old testing code which was never intended to make any live trades. And this matches the rumor that went around at the time that the whole mistake was because of one line of code. Whatever the case, an error in the algorithms had some very real, real-world consequences. Knight Capital had to offload the stocks it had accidentally bought to Goldman Sachs at discount prices and was then bailed out by a group including investment bank Jefferies in exchange for 73% ownership of the firm. Three quarters of the company gone because of one line of code. But that is just the result of some bad programming. And let's be honest, finance is not the only situation where poorly written code can cause problems. Bad code can cause problems almost anywhere. Automatic trading algorithms get extra interesting in a financial setting when they start to interact. Allegedly, the complex web of algorithms or trading between themselves should keep the market stable until they get caught in an unfortunate feedback loop and a new financial disaster is produced. The flash crash. On the 6th of May, 2010, the Dow Jones index plummeted by 9%. Had it stayed there, it would have been the biggest one-day percentage drop in the Dow Jones since the crashes of 1929 and 1987. But it didn't stay there. Within minutes, prices bounced back to normal, and the Dow Jones finished the day only 3% down. After a bumpy start to the day, the crash itself happened between 2.40pm and 3pm local time in New York. What a 20 minutes it was! 2 billion shares with a total volume of over 56 billion US dollars were traded. Over 20,000 trades were at prices more than 60% away from what the stock was worth at 2.40pm. And many of these trades were at irrational prices as low as 1 cent or as high as $100,000 per share. The market had suddenly gone mad. But then, almost as quickly, it got a hold of itself and returned to normal. A burst of extreme excitement which ended as fast as it started, it was the Harlem shake of financial crashes. People are still arguing about what caused the flash crash of 2010. 
There are accusations of a fat finger error, but no evidence of this has come to light. The best explanation I can find is the official joint report put out by the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission and the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission on the 30th of September, 2010. Their explanation has not been universally accepted, but I think it's the best we've got. It seems that a trader decided to sell a lot of futures on a Chicago financial exchange. Futures are contracts to buy or sell something in the future at a pre-agreed price. These contracts can themselves be bought and sold. They're an interesting derivative financial product, but the complexities of how futures work is not relevant here. What is relevant is that the trader decided to sell 75,000 such contracts called e-minis, worth around 4.1 billion US dollars, all at once. This was the third biggest comparable sale within the previous 12 months. But while the two biggest sales have been done gradually over the course of a day, this sale was completed in 20 minutes. Sales of this size can be made a few different ways, and if they are done gradually, as overseen by a manual trader, they are normally fine. This sale used a simple selling algorithm for the whole lot, and it was based solely on the current trading volume with no regard for what the price may be or how fast the sales were being made. The market was already a bit fragile on the 6th of May 2010 with the Greek debt crisis growing and a general election taking place in the UK. The sudden blunt release of the e-minis slammed into the market and sent high-frequency traders haywire. The futures contracts being sold soon swamped any natural demand and the high-frequency traders began to swap them around among themselves. In the 14 seconds between 245.13 and 245.27, over 27,000 contracts were passed between these automatic traders. This alone equaled the volume of all other trading. The chaos leaked into other markets, but then, almost as quickly as it started, the markets bounced back to normal as the high-frequency trading algorithms sorted themselves out. Some of them had safety switch cutoffs built in, which suspended their trading when prices moved around too much and would only restart after what was going on had been checked. Some traders assumed something catastrophic had happened somewhere in the world which they had not yet heard about. But it was just the interplay of automatic trading algorithms. The big short circuit. The fly in the algorithm. I own a copy of the world's most expensive book. Sitting on my shelf at home is a copy of The Making of a Fly. It is a 1992 academic book about genetics and was once listed on Amazon at a price of $23,698,655.93 plus $3.99 postage. But I managed to buy it at a pretty serious discount of 99.9999423%. As far as I know, the making of a fly never sold for $23 million. It was merely listed at that price. And even if it had sold, a lot of people consider one of Leonardo da Vinci's journals, which Bill Gates purchased for $30.8 million as the most expensive book ever sold. Clearly, as well as having a penchant for non-transitive dice, Bill and I also share one for expensive reading material. I believe that The Making of a Fly holds the record for the highest ever legitimate asking price for a not-one-of-a-kind 
book. Thankfully, my copy only cost me £10 and 7 pence, about 13 US dollars 68 cents at the time, and shipping was free. The Making of a Fly hit its peak price in 2011 on Amazon when new copies were available for sale in the US only by two sellers, Bordy Book and Prof Nath. There are systems which let sellers set a price algorithmically on Amazon, and it seems that Prof Nath entered the simple rule make the price of my book 0.07% cheaper than the next cheapest price. They most likely had a copy of The Making of a Fly and had decided they wanted to sell it by being the cheapest listing on Amazon by a small margin, like a Price is Right contestant who guesses $1 more than someone else. They're a jerk, but they're within the rules. The seller Bordy Book, however, wanted to be more expensive by a decent margin. Their rule was probably along the lines of make the price of my book 27% more than the cheapest other option. A possible explanation for this is that Bordy Book did not actually have a copy of the book, but knew that if anyone purchased through them, they would have enough of a margin to be able to hunt down and buy a cheaper copy, which they could then resell. Sellers like this rely on their excellent reviews to attract risk-adverse buyers happy to pay a premium. Had there been one other book at a set price, this would all have worked perfectly. Prof Nace's book would be slightly cheaper than the third book, and Bordy books would be way more expensive. But because there were only two books, the prices formed a vicious cycle, ratcheting each other up. 1.27 times 0.9983 equals 1.268. So the prices were going up by about 26.8% each time the algorithms looped, eventually reaching tens of millions of dollars. Evidently, neither of the algorithms had an upper limit to stop if the price became ridiculously high. Finally, Prof Nath must have noticed, or their algorithm did have some crazy high limit because their price went back down to a much more normal $106.23, and Bordy Book's price quickly fell into alignment. The outrageous price for the making of a fly was noticed by Michael Eisen and his colleagues at the University of California, Berkeley. They used fruit flies in their research and so legitimately needed this book as an academic reference. They were startled to see two copies for sale at $1,730,000 and $2,198,000 and every day the prices were going up. Biology research was evidently put to one side as they started a spreadsheet to track the changing Amazon prices, untangling the ratios Prof Nath and Bordy Book were using. Bordy Book was using the oddly specific ratio of 27.0589%, once again proving that there are very few problems in life which cannot be solved with a spreadsheet. Once the making of a fly market had corrected, Einstein's colleagues were able to buy a copy of the book for a normal price, and the lab went back to trying to understand how genes work instead of reverse engineering pricing algorithms. And I'm left with my copy of The Making of a Fly, which I bought secondhand. Even normal price US textbooks are beyond my budget. I even did my best to read it. I figured there must be some link between what happened to the book's price and how genetic algorithms cause flies to grow. I could give the last word to the book itself. This is the best I could find.
Studies of growth of this type give the impression of some mathematically precise control which operates independently in different body parts. The Making of a Fly by Peter Lawrence, page 50. I think we can all take something away from that, and it makes my purchase of the book now technically tax deductible, although probably not at the original price. And they would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for the meddling laws of physics. In high-speed trading, data is king. If a trader has exclusive information about what the price of a commodity is likely to do next, they can place orders before the market has a chance to adjust. Or rather, that data can go straight into an algorithm that can make the order, placing decisions at incredible speeds. These times are measured in milliseconds. In 2015, Hibernia Networks spent $300 million laying a new fiber optic cable between New York and London to try to reduce communication times by 6 milliseconds. A lot can happen in a thousandth of a second, let alone 6. For financial data, time is literally money. The University of Michigan publishes an index of consumer sentiment, which is a measure of how Americans are feeling about the economy produced after phoning roughly 500 people and asking them questions. And this information can directly impact financial markets. So it was important how this data was released. Once the new figures were ready, Thomas Reuters would put them on its public website at 10 a.m. precisely so everyone could access them at once. In exchange for this exclusive deal to release the data for free, Thomas Reuters paid the University of Michigan over $1 million. Why were they paying? to give the data away for free. In the contract, Thomas Reuters was allowed to give the numbers out five minutes early to its subscribers. So anyone who paid to subscribe to Thomas Reuters would get the data five minutes before the rest of the market and start trading accordingly. And subscribers of their ultra-low latency distribution platform received the data two seconds earlier at 9.54.58 or minus half a second, ready to be fed straight into trading algorithms. In the first half a second after this data is released, more than $40 million worth of trades can already have occurred in a single fund. The chumps who wait to get the data for free at 10 a.m. will find that the market has already adjusted. The ethics, and probably legality, are a bit blurry. Private institutions are able to release their own data however they want as long as they are transparent about it. And Thomas Reuters was able to point to a page on its website which outlined these times, the website equivalent of crossing your fingers behind your back. The practice only really came to public consciousness when CNBC, Consumer News and Business Channel, ran a story on it in 2013, and not long after that, the practice came to an end. The release of government data is far more cut and dried. Absolutely no one is allowed to trade on it before it is released to everyone simultaneously. When the US Federal Reserve is announcing something, for example, if it will continue with a bond buying program, that news can have a big impact on prices in the financial markets. If anyone knew the news in advance, they could start buying things that were destined to jump in value. So the Fed tightly controls the release of such information from within its headquarters in Washington, D.C. 
For instance, when an announcement was due to go out on the 18th of September 2013 at exactly 2pm, journalists had to go into a special room in the Fed's building, which was locked at 1.45pm. Printed copies of the news were then handed out at 1.50pm and people were given time to read them. At 1.58pm, TV journalists were allowed to go to a special balcony where their cameras were set up. Moments before 2pm, print journalists could open a phone connection to their editors but not yet communicate with them at exactly 2pm. As measured by an atomic clock, the information could be released. Financial traders all around the world want to be the first to get data like this. If one trader in Chicago can get the data even milliseconds before their competitors, that will give them an advantage. But how fast can the data travel? The two competing technologies are fiber optic cables and microwave relays. Light going down a fiber optic cable travels at about 69% of the maximum speed of light in a vacuum, which is still blisteringly fast, covering around 200,000 kilometers every second. Microwaves move through the air at almost the full 299,792 kilometers per second, maximum speed of light, but they have to be bounced from base station to base station to allow for the curvature of the Earth. There are also problems about where microwave base stations can be built and where fiber optic cable can be laid. So the path from DC to Chicago taken by the data would not be the shortest possible route. But to get a lower limit, we can assume the data follows the shortest line between the Fed building in DC and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange building, 955.65 kilometers, at the full speed of light. And new hollow core fiber optic cables can reach 99.7% of the speed of light and calculate a time of 3.19 milliseconds. A similar calculation for the shorter DC to New York City journey gives 1.09 milliseconds. These times assume the data is racing down a fiber optic cable following the curvature of the Earth. Straight line travel would be slightly faster. There are already line of sight laser communication systems for financial data where the beginning and end points have nothing but air between them. For example, those that relay information between buildings in New York and buildings in New Jersey. To travel between Washington DC to Chicago, this would require going through the Earth. But this is not out of the question. Physicists have discovered exotic particles such as neutrinos, which can move through normal matter almost unimpeded. Detecting them at the far end would be a major technological challenge, but such a system to fire data through the planet at the full speed of light is physically plausible. However, this shaves only about three microseconds off the DC to Chicago travel times and even less for New York. The fastest times possible for data to travel from the Fed building, as allowed by the laws of physics, are 3.18 milliseconds to Chicago and 1.09 milliseconds to New York. Which makes it mighty suspicious that trades happened in both Chicago and New York simultaneously at 2 p.m. when the Federal Reserve's data was released on the 18th of September 2013. But if the data was coming from DC, then the New York market should have flinched slightly before the Chicago markets. It looked as though people had been given the data early 
and tried to make it appear like they were merely trading at the first possible instant, except they had forgotten about the laws of physics, fraud exposed because of the finite speed of light. Well, I say fraud exposed, but nothing has ever come of it. It was not discovered who was making these trades and who sent the data to them. And there was some unresolved confusion over whether moving data to an off-site computer, but not releasing it until 2pm, was strictly disallowed by the Fed's regulations. It seems the laws of finance are much more flexible than the rules of physics. Maths Misunderstandings it would be remiss of me to not say something about the global financial crisis of 2007 and 8. It was kicked off with the subprime mortgage crisis in the US, then rapidly spread to countries all around the world. And there are some interesting bits of mathematics which fed into it. My personal favourites are Collateralized Debt Obligation, CDO, Financial Products. A CDO grips a bunch of risky investments together on the assumption that they couldn't possibly all go wrong. Spoiler, they all went wrong. Once CDOs could themselves contain other CDOs, a mathematical web was built which few people understood. I love my maths, but looking back at the global financial crisis as a whole, I don't claim to understand what went wrong. If you want to look into it in greater depth, there are countless books out there dedicated to just this one topic. Or, if you're old enough, watch the film The Big Short. I'm not going to say anything about it. Instead, I'll talk about a more interesting and concrete example of people not understanding maths. Company boards giving chief executive officers, that is, the people in charge of companies, pay awards. A CEO in the US can today earn incredible amounts of money, sometimes tens of millions of dollars a year. Before the 1990s, only CEOs who founded or owned a company would earn super salaries. But between 1992 and 2001, the median CEO pay for companies in the S&P 500 index in the US rose from $2.9 million a year to $9.3 million, inflation adjusted to $2011, a threefold real increase in a decade. Then the explosion stopped. A decade later, in 2011, the median CEO pay was still around $9 million. Some researchers at the University of Chicago and Dartmouth College noticed that, during the pay explosion, actual salaries and even the values of stocks given to CEOs did not increase similarly. The boom was coming from the remuneration paid to CEOs in one particular form, stock options. A stock option is a contract that allows someone to buy a certain stock in the future at a pre-agreed strike price. So if you get a stock option to buy a certain company's stock at $100 in a year's time, and the stock price goes up during that year to $120, it means you can now exercise your option and buy the stock for $100 and immediately sell it on the open market for $120. If the stock price goes down to $80, then you tear up your stock option and don't buy anything. So a stock option has some value in itself. They can only make money or break even, which is why they cost money to buy in the first place and can then be traded. The calculation 
for the value of stock options is not straightforward and was developed only relatively recently, in 1973, with the Black, Scholes, Merton formula. Black passed away, but Scholes and Merton won the 1997 Nobel Prize for Economics for their formula. Pricing options involves factoring in things like estimating how likely it is that the value of stock will change and how much interest could have been made with the money spent on the option, which is all doable. It just ends up with a complicated-looking formula. And this is where company boards started to go wrong. It was not immediately obvious to all directors how the number of stock options directly related to the value being paid to the CEO. Look what happens when comparing other types of compensation to their true values. The value of a salary equals the number of dollars times $1 each. The value of stock equals the number of shares times the value per share. The value of options equals number of options times S times, all in brackets, N of Z subtract E to the power of negative R times T times N of Z minus sigma square root of t, where z equals t times r plus sigma squared over 2, all divided by sigma times the square root of t, where s equals the current stock price, t equals the time before the option can be exercised, r equals the risk-free interest rate, n is the cumulative standard normal distribution, and sigma is volatility of returns on the stock, estimated with standard deviation. Even though that sounds complex, the short story is that the S at the front means that the value of stock options scales with the current stock value. But while company boards would decrease the number of shares they gave a CEO as the value of those shares went up, the University of Chicago and Dartmouth College research showed that company boards experienced a kind of number rigidity in granting stock options. The number they granted was surprisingly rigid. Even after a stock split, when CEOs were given twice as much stock to compensate for the stock now being worth half as much, the number of stock options would not change. Boards just kept giving the same number of stock options, seemingly ignoring their value. And during the 1990s and early 2000s, that value went up a lot. Then, in 2006, a change in regulations meant that companies had to use the Black Skulls Merton formula to declare the value of the stock options they were paying their CEOs. Once the mass was compulsory and board members were forced to look at the actual value of stock options, the number rigidity went away and options were adjusted based on their value. The explosion in CEO pay stopped. This is not to say it decreased back to pre-explosion levels. Once established, market forces would not let the level drop. The massive CEO pay packages still awarded today are a fossil of when company boards didn't do the maths. Chapter 9. A Roundabout Way In the 1992 Schleswig-Holstein election in Germany, the Green Party won exactly 5% of the votes. This was important because any party getting less than 5% of the total vote was not allowed any seats in Parliament. With 5% of the vote, the Green Party would have a Member of Parliament. 
there was much rejoicing. At least, everyone thought they had won 5% of the vote, as was published at the time. In reality, they had won only 4.97% of the vote. The system that presented the results had rounded all the percentages to one decimal place, turning 4.97% into 5.0%. The votes were analysed, the discrepancy was noticed, and the Greens lost their seat. Because of this, the Social Democrats gained an extra seat which gave them a majority. A single rounding changed the outcome of an election. Politics seems to contain all the motivating forces for people to try to bend numbers as far as they will go. And rounding is a great way to squeeze out a bit more give from an otherwise inflexible number. As a teacher, I used to give my Year 7 students questions like, if a plank is 3 metres to the nearest metre long, how long is it? Well, it could be anything from 2.5 metres to 3.49 metres, or maybe something like 2.500 metres to 3.499 metres, depending on rounding conventions. It seems some politicians are as smart as a kid in Year 7. In the first year of Donald Trump's presidency, his White House was trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, as it had been branded. When doing this through legislation proved harder than they seemed to have expected, they turned to rounding. For while the Affordable Care Act laid down the official guidelines for the healthcare market, the Department of Health and Human Services was responsible for writing the regulations based on the Affordable Care Act. In February 2017, the now Trump-controlled Department of Health and Human Services wrote to the US Office of Management and Budget with proposed changes to the regulation. It seems that if the Trump administration couldn't change the Affordable Care Act itself, it was going to try to change how it was interpreted. It's like trying to adhere to the conditions of a court order by changing your dog's name to probation officer. According to industry consultants and lobbyists who contacted the Huffington Post, one of those changes was to increase how much insurance companies could charge older customers. The Affordable Care Act had laid down very clear guidelines stating that insurance companies could not charge older people premiums that were more than three times the premiums paid by younger people. Healthcare itself should be a game of averages, with the goal being that everyone should share the burden equally. The Affordable Care Act tried to limit how much insurance companies could stray from that ideal. It seems the Trump administration wanted to allow insurance companies to charge their older customers up to 3.49 times as much as younger people using the argument that 3.49 rounds down to 3. I'm almost impressed at their mathematical audacity. Just because a number can be rounded down to a new value does not make it the same number. They may as well have crossed out 13 of the 27 constitutional amendments and claimed that nothing had changed, provided you rounded to the nearest whole constitution. This proposed change by the Trump administration was never adopted. But it does raise an interesting point. If the Affordable Care Act had explicitly said multiple of three rounded to one significant figure, they would have had an argument on their hands. There is an interesting interplay between the laws of mathematics and the actual law. I received a phone call from a lawyer a few years ago who wanted to talk about rounding and percentages. They were working on a case involving a patent for a product 
which used a substance with a concentration of 1%. Someone else has started making a similar product, but using a 0.77% concentration of the substance instead. The original patent holder was taking them to court because they believed that the figure of 0.77% rounds to 1% and therefore violates their patent. I thought this was super interesting because if the rounding was indeed naively to the nearest percentage point, then yes, 1% would include 0.77%. Everything between 0.5% and 1.5% rounds to 1% using that system. But given the scientific nature of the patent, I suspected that it was technically specified to one significant figure, which is different. Rounding to one significant figure sends everything between 0.95% and 1.5% to 1%. By changing how the rounding is defined, the lower threshold is suddenly a lot closer and now excludes 0.77%. And sure enough, 0.77% rounded to one significant figure is 0.8%. It would not be in violation of the patent. It was a lot of fun explaining to a lawyer how rounding to significant figures causes an asymmetric range of values to all round to the same number. It's a quirk of how we write numbers down. When a number goes up a place value in our base 10 system, numbers up to 50% bigger than it, but only 5% smaller, round to it. Everything between 99.5 and 150 round to give 100. So if someone promises you 100 pounds to one significant figure, you can claim up to 149 pounds 99 pence. From now on, I'm calling that doing a Donald. Having at least pretended to understand what I was saying, the lawyer was very professional and didn't even tell me which side of the case they were arguing. It was merely an impromptu lesson in rounding. But a few years later, I remembered that phone call and was curious about what had happened. To get closure, I hunted around until I found the trial and the final ruling. The judge had agreed with me. The number in the patent was deemed to have been specified to one significant figure, and so 0.77% was different to 1%. It was the end of the biggest case of my career. Rounded up to the next whole case. The point 49ers. The Trump administration considered a ratio of 3.49 for a very good reason. Even though 3.5 would have allowed even more leeway, it would have been ambiguous whether it should round up or down, whereas 3.49 definitely rounds down. When rounding to the nearest whole number, everything below 0.5 rounds down and everything above 0.5 goes up, but 0.5 is exactly between the two possible whole numbers, so neither is an obvious winner in the rounding stakes. Most of the time, the default is to round 0.5 up. If there was originally anything after the 5, for example, if the number was something like uh, 0.5000001, then rounding up is the correct decision. But always rounding 0.5 up can inflate the sum of a series of numbers. One solution is to round to the nearest even number, with the theory that now each 0.5 has a random chance of being rounded up or rounded down. This averages out the upward bias, but does now bias the data towards even numbers, which could, hypothetically, 
cause other problems. I used a spreadsheet to see how bad this could be. If you add all the numbers, 0.51, 1.5, going up in steps of a half, to 10, they sum to 105. If you go through and round them systematically up to get the nearest whole number, you end up with a total of 110. It's increased by five just because of rounding. If the numbers are consistently rounded to the nearest even number, that does keep the sum at 105. However, now three quarters of the numbers are even. Fixing the glitch. In January 1982, the Vancouver Stock Exchange launched an index measure of how much the various stocks being traded were worth. A stock market index is an attempt to track the change in prices of a sample of stocks as a general indication of how the stock market is doing. The FTSE 100 index is a weighted average of the top 100 companies by total market value on the London Stock Exchange. The Dow Jones is calculated from the sum of the share prices of 30 major US companies, with General Electric going back to the early 1900s and Apple added only in 2015. The Tokyo Stock Exchange has the Nikkei Index. Vancouver wanted its own stock index. So the Vancouver Stock Exchange Index was born. Not the most creative name for a stock market index, but it was comprehensive. The index was an average of all one and a half thousand or so companies being traded. The index was initially set to a value of 1,000, and then the movement of the market would cause the value to fluctuate up and down. Except it went down a lot more than it went up. Even when the market seemed to be doing great, the Vancouver Stock Exchange Index continued to drop. By November 1983, it closed one week at 524.811 points, down by almost half its starting value. But the stock market had definitely not crashed to half its value. Something was wrong. The error was in the way computers were doing the index calculations. Every time a stock value changed, which happened about 3,000 times a day, the index would be used in a calculation to update its value. This calculation produced a value with four decimal places, but the reported versions of the index used only three. The last digit was dropped. Importantly, the value was not rounded. The final digit was simply discarded. This error would not have occurred if the values had been rounded, which goes up as often as it goes down, instead of truncated. Every time there was a calculation, the value of the index went down by a tiny amount. When the exchange worked out what was going on, they brought in some consultants who took three weeks to recalculate what the index should have been without the error. Overnight, in November 1983, the index jumped from the incorrect 524.811 up to the newly recalculated 1098.892. That is an increase of 574.081 overnight with no corresponding change in the market. I have no idea how stock traders respond to such an unexpected jump up, like some kind of anti-crash. I assume they jumped back in through windows and blew cocaine out of their noses. You can use rounding in your own little mini scam. 
Let's say you borrowed £100 of someone and promised to pay it back a month later with 15% interest. That would be a total of £15 interest. But because you're super generous, you offer to compound the interest once a day for all 31 days in the month that you have the money. And to simplify things, because who wants too much complicated maths, all calculations will be rounded to the nearest pound. Without rounding, the compound interest over the month would be £16.14. pence, And with rounding to the nearest pound, it's zero pounds. No interest at all. Split over 31 days, 15% is 0.484% per day. So after the first day, the money you owe goes up to £100.48.4. But because you're rounding to the nearest pound, that 48.4 pence disappears and you once again only owe £100. This repeats every single day and your loan never accrues any interest. It does also have the side effect of rounding down the number of people who will lend you money to zero. If there are enough numbers being rounded a tiny amount, even though each individual rounding may be too small to notice, there can be a sizable cumulative result. The term salami slicing is used to refer to a system where something is gradually removed one tiny, unnoticeable piece at a time. Each slice taken off a salami sausage can be so thin that the salami does not look any different. So, repeated enough times, a decent chunk of sausage can be subtly sequestered. Salami is also a great analogy because it is already made of minced up meat. So many slices of salami could be mushed back together into a functional sausage. And I'd like to make it clear, I'm not just trying to get the phrase functional sausage into this book because of a bet. A salami slicing, rounding down attack, was part of the plot of the 1990 film Office Space, just like Superman 3. The main characters altered the computer-coded company so that whenever interest was being calculated, instead of being rounded to the nearest penny, the value would be truncated and the remaining fractions of a penny deposited into their account. Like the Vancouver Stock Exchange Index, this could theoretically carry on unnoticed as those fractions of pennies gradually added up. Most real-world salami slicing scams seem to use amounts greater than fractions of a penny but still operate below the threshold where people will notice and complain. One embezzler within a bank wrote software to take 20 or 30 cents out of accounts at random, never hitting the same account more than three times in a year. Two programmers in a New York firm increased the tax withheld on all company paychecks by two cents each week, but sent all the money to their own tax withholding accounts, so they received it all as a tax refund at the end of the year. There are rumours that an employee of a Canadian bank implemented the interest rounding scam to net $70,000 and was discovered only when the bank looked for the most active account to give them an award. But I cannot find any evidence to back that up. This is not to say that there are not salami slicing effects which can cause problems. Companies in the US have to withhold 6.2% of their employee's salary as social security tax. If a company has enough employees calculating the 6.2% they owe individually and rounding each payment could give a slightly different total 
than if the total payroll amount was multiplied by 6.2%. Never one to miss a trick, the IRS has a fractions of cents adjustment option on company tax forms so it can make sure every last penny is accounted for. Exchanging currencies can also cause problems as different countries have different smallest values. Much of Europe uses euros as currency. Each euro is made up of 100 cents, but Romania still uses the leu, each split into 100 bani. As I type, the exchange rate is about 4.67 to 1 in the euro's favour, which means that each euro cent is worth more than a bani. If you were to take two bani to a currency exchange, it would be rounded down to zero cents and you'd get nothing back. Or it is possible to make the rounding go in your favour and hide it in a less suspicious transaction. 11 leu is equal to 2.35546 euro, which would be rounded up and you would get 2.36 euro. Change it back and you now have 11.02 leu. Provided there are no transaction charges, that Tubani is pure profit. In 2013, Romanian security researcher Dr. Adrian Fortuna tried something similar to put currency exchange transactions through a bank where the euro rounding would net him half a cent each time. But the bank Fortuna was using required a code from a security device for each transaction. So he built a machine to automatically type the numbers required into his device for each transaction and read the code it returned. This meant he could put through 14,400 transactions a day, gaining him 68 euros daily. Not that he ever did it. Fortuna had been hired by the bank to test its security and he did not have permission to try it with the live banking system. I, on the other hand, did try my own salami slicing in the real world when I lived in Australia. Back in 1992, Australia removed the one cent and two cent coins from circulation, so the smallest denomination usable when paying in cash is now the five cent coin. So when paying cash, the total cost is rounded up or down to the nearest five cents, except bank accounts still operate to an exact number of cents. My scheme was simple. I would pay in cash whenever the rounding went down in my favour and pay by card when it would have rounded up. On about half of my purchases, I was saving ones of cents. I was a tiny fraction of a criminal mastermind. Racing Mistakes The world record for the 100-metre sprint is one of the world's most prestigious sporting achievements and the International Association of Athletics Federations, the IAAF, has been tracking it for over a century now. When the IAAF started keeping track of times in 1912, the men's record was 10.6 seconds, and it has been falling ever since. By 1968, it had come down to 9.9 .9 seconds, finally breaking the 10-second mark. Then, US sprinter Jim Hines beat the world record again with a time of 9.95 seconds, which was slower than the previous record. Jim Hines' time in 1968 of 9.95 seconds was the first world record to use two decimal places, 
and so usurped the previous record of 9.9 seconds set four months earlier. Electronic timing had just been introduced, which allowed for a new level of precision, hundredths of a second. The previous record of 9.9 seconds was also held by Heinz, so it seems that when electronic timing came in, they changed his record to be the worst it could have been while still being recorded as 9.9 seconds to the nearest tenth of a second. The timing equipment has always had an impact on the records. Back in the 1920s, three different hand-operated watches were used to avoid any timing mistakes, but they were only precise to the nearest fifth of a second. So the record of 10.6 seconds was set in July 1912, and 10.4 seconds was not achieved until April 1921. Assuming sprinters were getting better at a regular rate, I've calculated that around June 1917, some poor runner probably ran 100 meters in 10.5 seconds, but no one's watch was good enough to notice. And for the record, I haven't just split the difference between the two dates. This is the prediction from a line of best fit of all records between the 6th of July 1912 record of 10.6 seconds and the 20th of June 1936 record of 10.2 seconds. There was also a change in accuracy when going from hand-operated stopwatches to electronic timing. The automatic start and stop of an electronic timer is more accurate than relying on humans with their sloppy reaction times to do the job. Precision and accuracy often get jumbled together, but they are two very different things. Precision is the level of detail given, and accuracy is how true something is. I can accurately say I was born on Earth, but it's not very precise. I can precisely say I was born at latitude 37.229 north, longitude 115.811 west, but that is not at all accurate, which gives you a lot of wriggle room when answering questions if people don't demand that you be accurate and precise. Accurately, I can say that someone drank all the beer. Precisely, I can say that an Albanian, who holds several Tetris world records, drank all the beer. But I'd rather not be precise and accurate at the same time, as it may incriminate me. So while increases in accuracy give us correct world records for the 100 meters, increases in precision give us more records. 11 different people had 100 meter times of 10.2 seconds across the two decades from 1936 to 1956 before someone finally cracked 10.1 seconds. With the extra precision of modern timing, many of those people might have achieved their own world records. There is no reason why we couldn't have more precise timing systems in the future and have the same situation going from hundredths of a second to milliseconds or down to nanoseconds. I suspect this will happen when the records plateau at the limit of human ability. While humans may not get better forever, no matter how long we have sprints and how close in ability the performers become, there will always be another decimal place of precision to compete for. And yes, I appreciate there are physics problems with this theory. Maybe one day the regulations for wind assistance will also apply to Brownian motion. The 100 meter record is not the only impact rounding time has had on racing. I've come across a scam 
people were able to pull when betting on dog racing sometime before 1992. As it was an illegal scam, I've not had much luck trying to verify the story. All I have to go on is an anonymous posting from the 6th of April 1992 to the forum on risks to the public in computers and related systems. The Risks Digest is an early internet newsletter which has existed since 1985 and is still going. I've generally avoided unsubstantiated stories, but this one is too much fun to leave out. If anyone can confirm or disprove it, I'd love to hear from you. The story goes that bookmakers in Las Vegas were using a computer system to take bets on dog races. The system would allow bets to be placed until the official cutoff time, which Nevada law stated was a few seconds before the gates opened and released the dogs. After this time, the race was considered to have started, so no further betting was allowed. Once the race was over, the winner would be announced. So the key steps here are, the betting would close, the race would start, and the winner would be posted. The problem was that the software had been adapted from horse racing software. In the state of Nevada, the close time for a horse race was when the first horse enters the gates, which could be a few minutes before the race itself started. After the start time, the horse race itself would then take a few minutes before it was over and the winner posted. The system stored the time only in hours and minutes, but that was precise enough to guarantee that no one could continue to place bets after a horse race had begun. In the high-speed world of dog racing, the betting for a race could be closed, the race started and the winner posted all within a minute. So dog races could already have been won, but the system would not yet have registered the close of bets because the minute had not changed. Some savvy people noticed this and realized that they could wait to see which dog won the race and still be able to enter a bet on it. The Significance of Figures Humans are very suspicious of round numbers. We are used to data being messy and not very neat. We take round numbers as a sign of rounded data. If someone says their commute to work is one and a half kilometers, then you know it is not exactly 1,500 meters, but rather they have rounded to the nearest half a kilometer. However, if they were to say that their walk to work is 149,764 centimeters, then you know they have taken procrastination to record levels. In 2017, it was reported that if the US switched all of its coal power production to be solar power, it would save 51,999 lives every year. An oddly specific number. It clearly sounds like it has not been rounded. Check out all of those nines. But to me, it sounds like two numbers of different sizes have been combined and have produced an unnecessary level of precision as a result. I've mentioned in this book that the universe is 13,800 million years old. But if you're listening to this three years after it was released, that does not mean that the universe is now 13,800,003 years old. Numbers with different orders of magnitude, sizes of the numbers, cannot always be added and subtracted from each other in a meaningful way. The figure of 51,999 was the difference between lives saved not using coal 
and deaths caused by solar. Previous research in 2013 had established that the emissions from coal-burning power stations caused about 52,000 deaths a year. The solar photovoltaic industry was still too small to have any recorded deaths, so the researchers used statistics from the semiconductor industry, which has very similar manufacturing processes and utilizes dangerous chemicals, to estimate that solar panel manufacture would cause one death per year. So, 51,999 lives saved per year. Easy. The problem was that the starting value of 52,000 was a rounded figure with only two significant figures, and now suddenly it had five. I went back to the 2013 research, and the original figure was 52,200 deaths a year. And that was already a bit of a guess. For all you stats fans, the value of 52,200 had a 90% confidence interval of 23,400 to 94,300. The 2013 research into coal power deaths had rounded this figure to 52,000. But if we unround it back to 52,200, then solar power can save 52,199 lives. We just saved an extra 200 people. I can see why, for political reasons, the figure of 51,999 was used to draw attention to the single expected death from solar panel production and so to emphasize how safe it is. And that extra precision does make a number look more authoritative. The reduced precision in a rounded number makes them also feel less accurate, even though that is often not the case. Those zeros on the end may also be part of the precision. One in a million people will unknowingly live exactly a whole number of kilometers door to door from work accurate to the nearest millimetre. The first official height of Mount Everest was 29,002 feet. This is the kind of specific figure you would expect after decades of measurement and calculation. The Great Trigonometrical Survey, the GTS, had been started by the British in 1802 as a comprehensive survey of the Indian subcontinent. In 1831, Radhanath Sikta, a promising math student, from Kolkata, who excelled at the spherical trigonometry required for geodetic surveying, joined the GTS. In 1852, Sikdar was working his way through the data from a mountain range near Darjeeling. Using six different measurements to calculate the height of peak 15, the number dropped out to be around 29,000 feet. He burst into his boss's office to tell him he had discovered the tallest mountain in the world. The GTS was then run by Andrew Waugh, who, after a few years of double-checking the height, announced in 1856 that Peak 15 was the tallest mountain on Earth and named it after his predecessor, George Everest. But the rumour is that Sikdar's original number was 29,000 feet exactly. In this case, all those zeros were significant figures, but the public would not see them as such, they would assume the value was about 29,000 feet. And people might not accept a new claim for the title of tallest mountain on the planet if the calculations looked like they were insufficiently precise. So an extra two fictitious feet were added. At least, that is how the story goes. 
The official recorded height in 1856 was definitely 29,002 feet, but I cannot find any evidence that the initial calculations gave 29,000 feet exactly, or even where the original rumour about the rounding started. But even if this specific case is not true, I have no doubt that many seemingly precise values have been subtly changed away from an accidentally round number to make them look as precise as they truly are. Significant Significance In February 2017, the BBC reported a recent Office for National Statistics report that in the last three months of 2016, UK unemployment fell by 7,000 to 1.6 million people. But this change of 7,000 is well below what the number 1.6 million had been rounded to. Mathematician Matthew Scroggs was quick to point out that the BBC was basically saying that unemployment had gone from 1.6 million to 1.6 million. A change below the precision of the original number is meaningless. Some people pointed out that a change of 7,000 jobs was within the scope of a single company shutting down and not a meaningful number for looking at changes in the economy as a whole. This is true, and is why the Office for National Statistics was rounding unemployment numbers to the nearest 100,000 in the first place. The BBC story was later updated with more details about the statistics the Office for National Statistics had actually released. The ONS is 95% confident that its estimate of a fall in unemployment of 7,000 is correct to within 80,000, so the drop is described as not being statistically significant. So, in reality, the Office for National Statistics was confident that unemployment had changed somewhere between an increase of 73,000 and a decrease of 87,000. In other words, the unemployment levels had not changed much, and it appeared they were maybe a little bit better rather than a little bit worse. That is a different message to the takeaway stat of unemployment fell by 7,000, and I'm glad the BBC updated the article to add more details. Lumped together. Changing the clocks at daylight saving time can cause people a lot of stress. Forget about it and you'll either show up at work an hour early and embarrassed or an hour late and fired. I actually look forward to the clocks going back because of that extra hour of sleep. Except I don't squander it right away. I save it up for a few days until I really need it. I have seriously considered taking an hour off every Friday night when it will barely be noticed and spending it on Mondays with an extra hour's lie-in. The clocks going forward an hour does not have the same advantages. An hour of your life vanishes. But being a bit sleepy is not as bad as it gets. The Monday after the clocks go forward, there is a 24% increase in heart attacks. Daylight saving time is literally killing people. Or rather, it is literally killing people on that one specific day. The Monday after clocks go forward and people lose an hour of sleep does show an increase in heart attacks above the average expected for a Monday, which is already peak heart attack time. And on the Tuesday, after the clocks go back, gifting us a bonus hour of sleep, heart attacks go down by 21%. It's a matter of timing. This is not a case where combining numbers and rounding has caused a problem, but rather 
by lumping all the data together, it has revealed what is actually going on. There had been some prior research showing that heart attacks seem to be linked to daylight savings, so the University of Michigan got their best cardiovascular people onto it. They crunched the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan Cardiovascular Consortium database for all the time changes between March 2010 and September 2013. The study which found this result did a good job for controlling for all sorts of factors, including compensating for the fact that a day of 25 hours is going to have an extra 4.2% of everything. But what makes the results misleading is how big the window is. That 24% increase is lumping all heart attacks over the one day into the same category. The researchers looked at what the average number of heart attacks on a Monday would be for different times across the year, and the Monday after daylight savings is 24% above what is to be expected. But if you go from looking at one day to a whole week, the effect disappears completely. The weeks after changes in daylight saving time had the expected number of heart attacks. They were just distributed differently within the week. It seems the clocks going forward and depriving people of sleep did cause extra heart attacks, but only in people who would have had a heart attack at some point anyway. The heart attack merely happened sooner. And likewise, the clocks going back gave people a rest and bought them a few more days until their heart turned on them. This could be relevant information for hospitals planning its staffing around when clocks go forward, but it does not mean daylight saving time is net dangerous. So we now know that the clocks going forward and back does not increase the number of heart attacks, but rather a lack of sleep can bring on a heart attack that would have happened anyway. It angers me that whenever daylight saving time is discussed in the media, this statistic about heart attacks is brought up with no mention that it is misleading and that the total count for the week should be used. It's happened once on a BBC radio program, even as I was writing this book, and it causes me a lot of stress. Ironically, the misuse of this statistic in the media each time we have daylight saving probably does increase my personal chance of having a heart attack. Chapter 9.49 Too Small to Notice Sometimes the seemingly insignificant bits which get rounded off or averaged out are actually very important. As the precision in modern engineering gets ever finer, humans find themselves working with machines that require tolerances beyond what our eyesight can manage and our sense of touch can handle. When the Hubble Space Telescope was put into orbit in 1990, at a cost of about one and a half billion US dollars, the first images which came back were disappointing. They were out of focus. At the heart of the telescope was a 2.4 meter wide mirror, which was supposed to be able to focus at least 70% of the incoming starlight to a focal point, giving a sharp image. But it appeared to be bringing only 10% to 15% of the light into focus, leaving a blurry mess. NASA frantically set about trying to work out what was going wrong. After much head-scratching from the engineers and optics experts, it was deduced that the mirror must be the wrong shape. When it was being made, the mirror was ground into a paraboloid shape and it was slightly off. 
Much like a reflective building in the hot sun, a paraboloid is the perfect shape to direct all the incoming light onto one small spot. But creating a sharp image required more accuracy than merely hitting a lemon with enough light to burn it. The mirror needed to be an exact paraboloid of a very specific type. The team investigating the problem considered all sorts of other errors, including the fact that the mirror was made under 1G of gravity and was now operating in 0G. It turns out that the mirror was made and assembled perfectly. It had just been made to the wrong paraboloid. After much analysis, it was determined that the primary mirror in Hubble had a conic constant, a measure of parabolableness of negative 1.0139 when it needed to be negative 1.0023. Not that you could tell by looking at it, the edges of the 2.4 meter mirror were 2.2 micrometers lower than they should have been. That's 2.2 thousandths of a millimeter. To construct the mirror to such ridiculous accuracy in the first place, beams of light had been bounced off the surface, forming complex interference patterns which changed with the slightest variation in distance. This was such a delicate operation that the wavelength of light had to be used to measure the shape. The error was in the optics which shone the light on the mirror to analyze its shape. They had been set up in a way which would give the wrong conic constant. The official report said that it was a 1.3 millimeter misplacement. News coverage said the error was a spare washer in the wrong place, but that isn't in the official report. A repair mission was flown to the Space Telescope to add in corrective optics, a space telescope contact lens of sorts. Mecca for mistakes. Many systems are accurate enough most of the time, but break in edge cases where errors can be amplified. An app which points towards Mecca has to know where both the phone and Mecca are to a low degree of accuracy to point in the right direction from most places on the planet. Until the phone is held right next to the Kaaba, a building at the center of Islam's most important mosque, then it can go wrong. There are loads of photos online of people taking an app which is meant to point to Mecca, photographing it in front of the Kaaba, and it's pointing off to the side. I put my favorite in the print version of the book, and I captioned it, I would lose all faith in that app. Thank you very much. If the bolt fits. I have ordered some strange things off the internet over the years, but nothing was quite as difficult to track down from obscure specialist websites as the two piles of bolts I now keep on my desk. On the left, I have A2117D bolts, and on the right, I keep A2118C bolts. I acquired them as a result of me contacting several suppliers of aerospace parts and equipment. I've had to be careful to keep close track of them as it is hard to distinguish between them. The packages they came in are labelled, but once you take them out, there are no markings on either of the bolts to say if it is a 7D or an 8C. 
In theory, the 7C is 0.026 inches wider, about 0.66 millimeters, than the 8C. But when I roll the two bolts between my fingers, it is fairly hard to tell which is which. The thread on the 7D is also finer than on the 8C, but that is hard to spot. Thankfully, the 8C are 0.1 inches, around 2.5 centimeters, longer, which a careful alignment can reveal. So I certainly feel sorry for the shift maintenance manager working the night shift on the 8th of June 1990 for British Airways in Birmingham Airport. He removed 90 bolts from the windscreen of a BAC 111 jet airliner and noticed they would need replacing but they were unmarked. Taking one bolt with him, he climbed back down the safety riser and elevator platform used to reach the front of the plane and headed off to the storeroom. After painstakingly comparing the bolt he was holding to all the other various bolts in the parts carousel, he correctly identified it as an A211-7D bolt. I now appreciate what a feat that was. He reached in to get more and discovered there were only four or five left. I can really empathize with the guy. It wasn't even his job to replace the windscreen, but because they were short staff that night and he was the manager, he stepped in to avoid further delays. It had been a few years, but he had done these windscreen changes before while working for BA, and a quick flick through the aircraft maintenance manual had assured him that it was as straightforward as he remembered. In the Aircraft Accident Report, which was published just over a year and a half later, our friend, the shift maintenance manager, is never named, and rightfully so. I like to think of him as Sam, shift maintenance manager. I imagine Sam standing there at 3am working on a job that wasn't really his to do, holding about four of the bolts he needed 90 of. So Sam gets into a car and drives out of the hangar and over to a second parts store under the International Pier across the airport. It's raining. He's still clutching one of the bolts he removed from the windscreen. Unlike the main store, which has a store's supervisor, this second store is unstaffed. Sam pulls up and finds the carousel, but the whole area is dimly lit. He would normally wear glasses for close-up reading, but he didn't bother at work because his eyesight was good enough. But now, to access the bolt drawers, he blocks the only light source. The drawers were not even properly labelled. Sam resorts to comparing bolts manually. Eventually, he manages to find some matching bolts. They must be A217Ds. Spoiler, they were not. Wait, Sam thinks. Part of the windscreen has an extra fairing strip of metal to improve the aerodynamics, making it slightly thicker. Six of the bolts have to be longer. Damn it, why did he only bring one random bolt? Sam makes a call and grabs enough of what he thinks are A2117Ds, along with six A2119Ds, which are a bit longer. Back in the car and back out in the rain. He gets to the main hangar and goes to grab the torque wrench he needs to put the bolts in with. Torque wrenches are designed to disengage when a bolt has reached the correct tightness to avoid over-tightening. But it's not on the tool board. It has gone missing. 
Sam, if you ever listen to this, I feel for you, man. The store manager does have a torque-limiting screwdriver, though, except it has not been properly calibrated and so they are not supposed to use it. Sam and the store supervisor set it to release at 20 foot-pounds of turning force and give it a few test goes. It seems fine. Sam can finally get to work. Except the screwdriver has a socket which does not match the screwdriver bit Sam needs to use. So he has to hold a number two Phillips screwdriver bit into the screwdriver's socket while he works. And it does not clip in place. If he lets go, it will fall out. Several times, the screwdriver bit fell to the ground and Sam had to clamber down to retrieve it. Leaning out from the safety riser, he can just reach the windscreen to screw in the bolts, which is now a two-handed job. Using both hands means that Sam can no longer tell if the screwdriver is releasing because the correct torque has been achieved or slipping because the bolt is the wrong size. It's nearly 5am and Sam is almost done. But the longer A211 9D bolts he grabbed for the thicker section don't fit. I like to imagine Sam banging the torque screwdriver against the side of the aircraft as he weeps quietly. Maybe he invented some new swear words. In the end, he decided that the bolts he originally took out were not that bad after all. He grabbed six of them and put them back in. At last, he had finished. 27 hours after Sam had been probably swearing at the BAC-111 jet airliner, it was sitting on the runway as flight BA-5390, ready to take 81 passengers and six crew members to Malaga in Spain. I don't know if you have ever been to Birmingham, England or Malaga, Spain, but I have, and I can confirm that Malaga is a significant upgrade. Everyone on board was in high spirits. 13 minutes after takeoff, the airliner was at around 17,300 feet altitude and the stewards were about to start the food and drink service. There was a loud bang as the windscreen fails and explodes outward, causing the cabin to decompress in under two seconds. The air became foggy from the rapid change in pressure. Steward Nigel Ogden rushed back onto the flight deck to find the co-pilot trying to regain control of the aircraft because the pilot had been sucked out of the window, colliding with the control column on the way out and disengaging the autopilot. Well, he's almost out of the window. He's caught on the windscreen frame, so his legs are still inside the aircraft. Ogden managed to grab the pilot's legs to stop him from flying out the window completely. The co-pilot, Alistair Aitchison, was able to regain control of the aircraft and land it with Captain Tim Lancaster dangling half out of the window. The crew had taken it in turns to hold on to his legs. Everyone survived, including Captain Lancaster, who spent 22 minutes outside the aircraft, made a full recovery, and went back to being a pilot. It's an incredible story, an amazing tale of a crew responding to a sudden and catastrophic disaster and managing to land the aircraft with no lives lost. But I'm equally amazed at how the windscreen could fail in the first place. There are so many checks in place that something like that should not be able to happen. The short and unfair answer is that Sam used the wrong bolts. 
when he was fumbling around in the unstaffed parts carousel under the International Pier at Birmingham Airport, he did not pull out A2117D bolts, as he thought, but rather A2118Cs. The 8C bolts had a slightly different diameter, which meant they could be ripped out of the thread designed to hold 7D bolts in place. When I look at both bolts in the clear light of day in my office, I can easily make that mistake without the extra pressure Sam was under. It's in our nature to want to blame a human when things go wrong, but individual human errors are unavoidable. Simply telling people not to make any mistakes is a naive way to try to avoid accidents and disasters. James Reason is an emeritus professor of psychology at the University of Manchester whose research is on human error. He put forward the Swiss cheese model of disasters, which looks at the whole system instead of focusing on individual people. The Swiss cheese model looks at how defences, barriers and safeguards may be penetrated by an accident trajectory. This accident trajectory imagines accidents as similar to a barrage of stones being thrown at a system. Only the ones which make it all the way through result in disaster. Within the system are multiple layers, each with their own defences and safeguards to slow mistakes. But each layer has holes. They are like slices of Swiss cheese. I love this view of accident management because it acknowledges that people will inevitably make mistakes a certain percentage of the time. The pragmatic approach is to acknowledge this and build a system robust enough to filter out mistakes before they become disasters. When a disaster occurs, it is a system-wide failure and it may not be fair to find a single human to take the blame. As an armchair expert, it seems that the disciplines of engineering and aviation are pretty good at this. When researching this book, I read a lot of accident reports, and they were generally good at looking at the whole system. It is my uninformed impression that in some industries, such as medicine and finance, which do tend to blame the individual, ignoring the whole system can lead to a culture of not admitting mistakes when they happen, which, ironically, makes the system less able to deal with them. But much like actual Swiss cheese, sometimes all the holes do randomly line up. I mean, of course, if you start with a solid block of Swiss cheese and slice it, the holes will line up because they were formed by bubbles in the cheese. So assume the Swiss cheese slices have been adequately shuffled. Unlikely events happen occasionally, which is what happened with the flight BA5390 disaster. All of the following things had to go wrong for the window to explode outwards. Problem one, Sam chose the wrong bolts. The main store did not have enough of the parts Sam needed. If the carousel had been restocked properly, he could have grabbed the 7D bolts he was after and just got on with it. The unstaffed store was disorganized. In the investigation, it was discovered that of the 294 drawers which contained stock, 25 were missing labels, and of the 269 which did have labels, only 163 contained only the correct parts. The store was poorly lit, and Sam did not have his glasses to notice he had picked the wrong bolts. Problem 2. 
Sam did not notice that the bolts did not fit properly. He would have felt the bolt thread slip when it went into the locking nuts, except their slipping felt the same as the torque screwdriver kicking in when the required torque had been reached. The 8C bolts Sam used had a smaller head than the 7D ones, which he had taken out, and this looked obvious because they did not fill the recessed dip made for the bolt heads, except the two-hand method he had to use to keep the screwdriver together obscured his view. Problem 3. No one checked Sam's work. If Sam had been anyone other than the shift maintenance manager, his work would have been checked by the, well, shift maintenance manager. The windscreen, amazingly, was not classified as a vital point of catastrophic failure, and only vital points definitely had to be double-checked, even if performed by the shift maintenance manager. Problem 4. The windscreen could explode outwards. Aircraft parts are often designed according to the plug principle, which is a form of passive failsafe. If the windscreen had been fitted from the inside, the air pressure within the cabin would help hold it in place. Because the windscreen was fitted on the outside, the bolts were fighting against the internal cabin pressure. This was the opposite of what we saw with the Apollo fire, where the only exit was a plug seal. Emergency exits should never be plug seals. In this case, the windscreen should never need to open, so could be fitted from the inside. I can think of other things that could have stopped the disaster. The British standard for A211 bolts could require a marking on the bolt itself instead of just on the packet. The British Airways maintenance documentation could have been more explicit about the complexity of the task. The Civil Aviation Authority could require a pressure test after work is done on the pressure hull. The list goes on. The subtle effect here is that while each of these individual steps may be fairly likely, the probability that they all happen simultaneously is very small. There will always be a few mistakes that make it through a few layers of cheese, but very rarely do enough holes line up to let mistakes become a disaster. It is not a comforting thought that minor mistakes and unfortunate circumstances pop up all the time in aviation, and we are saved only by later things which happen to go right and neutralize the threat. But statistically, that is the case, and statistically, we are extremely safe. We can believe in cheeses. Anyone who already has a fear of flying had better stop listening now and skip ahead to the next section. Don't worry, you'll not miss anything. For everyone else, here is an insight into how minor mistakes can take place with no ramifications. Remember those a 21170 d bolts Sam removed from the original windscreen? That window in a BAC-111 jet airliner should have used a 211 d bolts. They were already wrong. When BA acquired that airliner, it came with the wrong bolts already fitted. It had been flying with the wrong bolts for years. During the investigation, they found 80 of the old bolts that Sam had removed. 78 were the incorrect 7Ds, and only two were 8Ds. The aircraft had been flying with windscreen bolts that were slightly too short. Thankfully, 
The bolts had been selected to be long enough for the six spots in the thickest part of the window and slightly too long in the other 84 places. The shorter 7D bolts were still long enough to keep most of the window firmly fixed in place. Ironically, the 8C bolts Sam grabbed by accident were the correct length, but they were skinnier and did not lock properly with the nuts. With enough force, they could be ripped out, as happened in this near-fatal disaster. If things had gone slightly differently, the windscreen failing at a higher altitude, the co-pilot not regaining control of the aircraft, that 0.66 millimeter difference in diameter could easily have resulted in the deaths of all 87 people on board. Straight after the accident and before the investigation had been completed, BA did an emergency check of all its BAC-111s, removing every fourth windscreen bolt and measuring it. Two more aircraft were grounded because they were found to have the wrong bolts. A separate airline did a similar check and found that two of its aircraft were also using the wrong bolts. It's terrifying. If humans are going to continue to engineer things beyond what we can perceive, then we need to also use the same intelligence to build systems that allow them to be used and maintained by actual humans. Or, to put it another way, if the bolts are too similar to tell apart, write the product number on them. Chapter 10. Units, Conventions, and Why Can't We All Just Get Along? A number without units can be meaningless. If something costs 9.97, you want to know what currency that price is listed in. If you're expecting British pounds or American dollars, and it ends up being Indonesian rupiah or Bitcoin, you're in for a surprise, and a very different surprise depending on which of those two it is. I run a UK-based retail website, and we had a complaint from a customer for our audacity in listing prices in a foreign currency. They said, so the charge amount listed was foreign currency? Obviously, and probably for a good number of us ordering, we would be expecting a US dollar quote. Unsatisfied, maskgear.co.uk customer. Getting the units wrong can drastically change the meaning of a number, so there are all sorts of fantastic examples of such mistakes. Famously, Christopher Columbus used Italian miles, one Italian mile equals 1,477.5 meters, when reading distances written in Arab miles, one Arab mile equals 1,975.5 meters, and so he estimated that Asia was only a leisurely sail away from Spain. His unit mistake, combined with some other faulty assumptions, meant that Columbus was expecting his destination port in China to be roughly where modern-day San Diego is. The actual distance from Europe to Asia would have been too far for Columbus to traverse were it not for an unexpected landmass he hit instead. Although there is some speculation that he got the numbers willfully wrong to deceive his sponsors and crew. When I was researching and writing this book, the most common question from people I spoke to was, will you talk about the NASA spacecraft, which used the wrong units and crashed into Mars? The uh, second most common was Londoners asking about the wobbly bridge. There is something about a units error that 
people love, maybe because it is such a familiar mistake, combined with the schadenfreude of NASA making a basic maths error, it makes for an enticing story. And this is a case where the urban legend is almost completely true. In December 1998, NASA launched the Mars Climate Orbiter spacecraft, which then took nine months to travel from Earth to Mars. Once it arrived at Mars, a mismatch of metric and imperial units caused a complete mission failure and the loss of the spacecraft. Footnote, units involving feet, pounds and so on used in the US are United States customary units or English engineering units, not imperial units. But I'll use imperial units as a uh, catch-all for all of these families of units. Spacecraft use flywheels, which are basically massive spinning tops, for stability and control. The gyroscopic effect means that even in the friction-free vacuum of space, the craft can effectively push against something and move itself around. But over time, the flywheels can end up spinning too fast. To fix this, an angular momentum desaturation event, an AMD, is performed to spin them down using thrusters to keep the spacecraft stable, but this does cause a slight change in the overall trajectory. A slight but significant change. Whenever the thrusters are used, data is beamed back to NASA about exactly how powerful the bursts were and how long they lasted. A piece of software called SM Forces, for small forces, was developed by Lockheed Martin to analyze the thruster data and feed it into an AMD file for use by the NASA navigation team. This is where the problem occurred. The SM Forces program was calculating the forces in pounds, technically pound force, the gravitational force on one pound of mass on the Earth, whereas the AMD file was assuming the numbers it received were in newtons, the metric unit of force. One pound of force is equal to 4.44822 newtons, so when SM forces reported in pounds, the AMD file thought the figures were the smaller unit of newtons and underestimated the force by a factor of 4.44822. The Mars Climate Orbiter crashed not because of one big miscalculation when it arrived at Mars, but because of many little ones over the course of its nine-month journey. When it was ready to go into orbit around Mars, the NASA navigation team thought it had been moved off course only slightly by all the angular momentum desaturation events. They expected it to glance past Mars at a distance of 150 to 170 kilometers from the surface, which would clip the atmosphere just enough to start to slow the spacecraft down and bring it into orbit. Instead, it was heading directly for an altitude of just 57 kilometers above the Martian surface where it was destroyed by the atmosphere. All it takes is one unit's mismatch to destroy hundreds of millions of dollars of spacecraft. For the record, the NASA software interface specification had specified that the units should be all metric. The SM forces was not made in accordance with the official specifications. So it was actually NASA using metric units and the contractor being old school that caused the problem. 
The problem that brought down a modern spaceship also sank a 17th century warship. On the 10th of August, 1628, the Swedish warship Vasa was launched and sank within minutes. For those brief moments, it was the most powerful armed warship in the world, fully loaded with 64 bronze cannons. Unfortunately, it was also rather top-heavy. Those cannons did not help, and nor did the heavily reinforced top decks required to hold them. All it took was two strong gusts of wind, and the ship toppled over, sinking with the loss of 30 lives. Fortunately for history, the Vasa sank in waters that were ideal for preserving wood. Shortly after it sank, most of the precious bronze cannons were salvaged, and the rest of the wreck was left and forgotten. Until 1956, when wreck researcher Anders Francien managed to locate the Vasa once more. By 1961, it had been raised from the water and now lives in a custom-built museum in Stockholm. Despite having spent three centuries lying on the bottom of the ocean, the Vasa is incredibly well-preserved. It's missing its cannons and original paint job, but otherwise, it looks eerily new. Modern analysis of the structure of the Vasa's hull has shown that it is asymmetric, more so than other ships of the same era. So, while the overloading of the top of the ship was definitely a large factor in its lack of stability, an underlying mismatch of the port and starboard sides was also to blame. During the restorations, four different rulers were recovered. Two were Swedish feet rulers split into 12 inches, and the other two were Amsterdam feet rulers split into only 11 inches. Amsterdam inches were bigger than Swedish inches, and the feet were slightly different lengths too. Archaeologists working on the Vasa have speculated that this may have caused the asymmetry. If the teams of builders working on the ship were using subtly different inches but were following the same instructions, this would have produced parts of different sizes. In this case, we don't know what the wood interface specification required. I have actually been to Stockholm and visited the Vasa a couple times because I think it and the museum are incredible. I also want to take a photo of it to put in the print version of this book, which I have done, which was almost entirely, so I could use the caption underneath it, they like big hulls and they cannot lie, level. A quick bonus short story about length and units. Not long after the June 2017 UK election, a Google search for how long has Theresa May been PM gave her height in picometers, which are PM. When it comes to measuring a leader's body parts, trillionths of a meter are never the most convenient case. Except maybe for Trump. If you can't handle the heat, get out of the conversion. At least units of distance can agree on where to start. With length, there is a very obvious zero point when you have nothing of something. Meters and feet might argue about the size of intervals, but they all start at the same place. With temperature, this is not so obvious. There is no clear place to start a temperature scale as it could always be colder within human experience. Two of the most popular temperature scales are Fahrenheit and Celsius, and each took a different approach to choosing a starting zero-point temperature. 
German physicist Daniel Fahrenheit proposed the scale which bears his name in 1724, and the zero point was based on a frigorific mixture. If frigorific has not instantly become your new favorite word, you're cold and dead inside. A frigorific mixture is a pile of chemical substances which will always stabilize to the same temperature so they make a good reference point. In this case, if you give ammonium chloride, water, and ice a good stir, they will end up at zero degrees Fahrenheit. If you mix just water and ice, it will be 32 degrees Fahrenheit, and the far less frigorific mixture of human blood, while still inside a healthy human, is 96 degrees Fahrenheit. While these were Fahrenheit's original reference points, the modern Fahrenheit scale has since been adjusted and is now pinned to water freezing at 32 degrees and boiling at 212. Frigorific! The Celsius scale began around the same time with Swedish astronomer Anders Celsius. Except he counted the wrong way. Celsius started with zero as the boiling point of water at normal atmospheric pressure, then counted up as the temperature went down, with water eventually freezing at 100 degrees Celsius. Meanwhile, other people went with the more popular convention of starting with zero at water's freezing point and counting up to 100 as its boiling point, and then they all argued over who had the idea first. There was no clear winner as to whose idea this was, but the unit itself caught on and was given the neutral name centigrade. Celsius had the last laugh, however, when the name centigrade clashed with the unit for measuring angles. A centigrade, or gradient, is one four hundredth of a circle. So in 1948, it was named after him after all. Celsius is now used almost universally to measure temperatures, except seemingly in a few countries which still use Fahrenheit, like Belize, Myanmar, the US, and a decent section of the English population who are too old to change now, even though the UK has tried to be metric for about half a century. This means there is still some need to convert between the two scales, and temperature is not as easy as length. Measuring distances may involve different sized units, but all systems have the same starting point, which means there is no difference when you go between absolute measurements and relative differences. If someone is 0.5 meters taller than me and 10 meters away, both those measurements can be converted into feet in the same way, multiplying by 3.28. It does not matter that 10 meters is an absolute measurement and 0.5 meters is the difference between two measurements, a heights. It all seems so natural, but it doesn't work with temperatures. In September 2016, the BBC News reported that both the US and China had signed up to the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, summarizing the agreement like this. Countries agreed to cut emissions enough to keep the global average rise in temperatures below 2 degrees Celsius, 36 degrees Fahrenheit. The mistake here is not just that the BBC is still giving temperatures in Fahrenheit, but that a change of 2 degrees Celsius is not the same as a change of 36 degrees Fahrenheit, even though a temperature of 2 degrees Celsius is the same as 36 degrees Fahrenheit. If you were outside on a day when the temperature was 2 degrees Celsius and you looked at a Fahrenheit thermometer, it would indeed read 36 degrees Fahrenheit. But if the temperature then increased by 2 degrees Celsius, it would only go up 
by 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. The crazy thing is, the BBC initially got it correct, thanks to the amazing website newssniffer.co.uk, which automatically tracks all changes in online news articles, we can see the chaos in the BBC newsroom as a series of numerical edits. To be fair, the article was part of the live coverage of breaking news and was designed to be regularly updated. The first version of the article that mentioned temperature gave the change as 2 degrees Celsius. There must have been some chat about the complaints they were likely to get if they didn't add Fahrenheit, so about two hours later, 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit was added, which is the correct answer. But this is an unstable correct answer because even though it is right, there is a more obvious but less correct answer that people will try to change it to, like someone crossing out octopuses and replacing it with octopi. And about half an hour later, 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit disappeared and 36 degrees Fahrenheit popped up in its place. A temperature of 2 degrees Celsius in absolute terms is 35.6 degrees Fahrenheit, so someone must have seen 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit and figured it was a rounded 35.6 degrees Fahrenheit with a decimal point in the wrong place. I can only imagine the heated debates between the 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit and 36 degrees Fahrenheit factions as each tried to claim they were the holders of the ultimate temperature truth until... In my mind, a frazzled editor shouted, Enough! Now no one gets a temperature! At 8am, three hours after 36 degrees appeared, it disappeared without replacement. It seems 2 degrees Celsius was enough. The BBC had given up on giving a Fahrenheit conversion. Problems can also occur in length in terms of the reference starting point, but these are much rarer. When a bridge was being built between Laufenburg, Germany, and Laufenburg, Switzerland, each side was constructed separately out over the river until they could be joined up in the middle. This required both sides agreeing exactly how high the bridge was going to be, which they defined relative to sea level. The problem was that each country had a different idea of sea level. The ocean is not a neat, flat surface. It's constantly sloshing around. And that's before you get to the Earth's uneven gravitational field, which alters sea heights. So a country needs to make a decision on its sea level. The UK uses the average height of the water in the English Channel as measured from the town of Newland in Cornwall once an hour between 1915 and 1921. Germany uses the height of water in the North Sea, which forms the German coastline. Switzerland is landlocked, but ultimately it derives its sea level from the Mediterranean. The problem arose because the German and Swiss definitions of sea level differed by 27 centimetres, and without compensating for the difference, the bridge would not match in the middle. But that was not the maths mistake. The engineers realised there would be a sea level discrepancy calculated the exact difference of 27 centimetres and then subtracted it from the wrong side. When the two halves of the 225 metre bridge met in the middle, the German side was 54 centimetres higher than the Swiss side. This is where the phrase, measure sea level twice, build a 225 metre bridge once, comes from. Massive problems. Aircraft fuel is calculated in terms of its mass, not its volume. 
temperature changes can cause things to expand and contract. The actual volume fuel takes up depends on its temperature, so it's an unreliable measurement of quantity. Mass stays the same. So when Air Canada Flight 143 was taking off from Montreal on the 23rd of July 1983 to fly to Edmonton, it had been calculated that it required a minimum of 22,300 kilograms worth of fuel, plus an extra 300 kilograms for taxiing and so on. There was some fuel left from the flight into Montreal, and so this was measured to check how much fuel needed to be added for the next flight, except both the ground maintenance personnel and the flight crew performed their calculations using pounds instead of kilograms. The amount of fuel required was in kilograms, but they filled the aircraft using pounds. And one pound equals only 0.45 kilograms. This resulted in the aircraft taking off with approximately half as much fuel as it required to make it to Edmonton. The Boeing 767 was now going to run out of fuel mid-flight. In an unbelievably lucky twist of fate, the aircraft, flying with a dangerously low amount of fuel, had to make a stopover in Ottawa, where the fuel levels would be double-checked before the plane took off again. The plane landed safely, with the eight crew members and 61 passengers unaware how close they had come to running out of fuel mid-flight. It's a near miss, which reminds us that using the wrong units can put people's lives in danger. But then, in an unbelievably unlucky twist of fate, the crew doing the fuel check in Ottawa made exactly the same kilogram-pound unit error, and the aircraft was allowed to take off again with barely any fuel left. The fuel then ran out mid-flight. There should be several alarm bells going off as you hear this story. It's so unbelievable as to strain credulity. Surely a plane will have fuel gauges to indicate how much fuel is left. Cars have such a gauge, and if an automobile runs out of fuel, it merely rolls to a stop and causes a mild inconvenience. You have to walk to the nearest petrol station. If a plane runs out of fuel, it also rolls to a stop, but only after dropping thousands of meters. 3,000s of feet out of the sky. The pilots should have been able to glance up at the fuel gauge and see that they were running low. This was not some light aircraft with a dodgy fuel gauge either. It was a brand new Boeing 767 recently acquired by Air Canada. A brand new Boeing 767 with a dodgy fuel gauge. The Boeing 767 was one of the first aircraft to be kitted out with all manner of avionics, aviation electronics. So much of the cockpit was electronic displays. And, like most electronics, that is all great until something goes wrong. Because of the lack of roadside assistance when you're thousands of feet up, in aviation, redundancy is the name of the game. Aeroplanes need to bring their own spares. So the electronic fuel gauge was linked to sensors in the fuel tanks by two separate channels. If the two numbers coming from each tank agreed, then the fuel gauge could confidently show the current fuel level. The signals from the sensors in the tanks, one in each of the aeroplane's wings, went into a fuel level processor, which then controlled the gauges. Except this processor was on the blink. One flight before its disastrous trip, the Boeing 767 was sitting in Edmonton and a certified aircraft technician named Yuremko was trying to work out why the fuel gauges were not working. 
He found that if he disabled one of the fuel sensor channels going into the processor, the gauges started working again. He deactivated the circuit breaker for that channel, labelled it with a piece of tape marked inoperative, and logged the problem. While waiting for a new processor to replace the faulty one, the aircraft could still be compliant with the minimum equipment list required for the plane to be flown safely if a manual fuel check was carried out. So now the fuel double check consisted of the gauge with one sensor channel and someone looking in the tank and physically measuring the amount of fuel before takeoff. This is where everything gets a little bit Swiss cheese. The disaster makes it through several checks that could have identified and solved the problem. The plane was flown from Edmonton to Montreal by Captain Weir, who had misunderstood a conversation with Yaremko and thought the fuel gauge problem was an ongoing issue and not something that had just happened. So when he handed the aircraft to Captain Pearson in Montreal, he explained that the fuel gauge had a problem, but that a manual fuel check was enough to cover this. Captain Pearson took this to mean that the cockpit fuel gauges were completely inoperative. While this pilot-to-pilot -pilot conversation was happening in Montreal, a technician named Woolley was checking out the aircraft. He did not understand the note Yaremko had logged about the fuel gauge, so he tested it himself, which involved reactivating the circuit breaker. This caused all the gauges to go blank, and Woolley went off to order a new processor, forgetting to re-deactivate the circuit breaker. Captain Pearson then got into the cockpit to find all the fuel gauges blank and a label on one channel circuit breaker saying inoperative, which is exactly what he expected from his misunderstood conversation with Captain Weir. Because of this unfortunate series of events, a pilot was now prepared to fly an aircraft with no working fuel gauge. This would of course have been fine if the fuel calculations had been performed correctly, but this was the early 1980s and Canada was starting the transition from Imperial units to metric units. In fact, the new fleet of Boeing 767s were the first aircraft Air Canada had which used metric units. All other Air Canada aeroplanes still measured their fuel in pounds. To add to the complication, the conversion from volume to mass used the enigmatically titled factor specific gravity. Had it been called pounds per litre or kilograms per litre, the problem would have been avoided. But it wasn't. So after measuring the depth of the fuel in the tank in centimetres and successfully converting that to litres, everyone then used a specific gravity of 1.77 to do the conversion. This is the number of pounds per litre for the fuel at that temperature. The correct specific gravity of kilograms per litre would have been around 0.8. So a conversion mistake was made both before takeoff in Montreal and again during the stopover in Ottawa. So sure enough, in mid-flight after leaving Ottawa, the plane ran out of fuel and both engines failed within minutes of each other. This resulted in an error noise bong, which no one in the cockpit had ever heard before. I get nervous when my laptop makes a noise I've never heard before. I can't imagine what it's like when you're flying a plane. The major problem with both engines failing is that, of course, the plane no longer has any power to fly. A smaller but still important issue is that all the new fancy electronic displays in the cockpit needed power to work. And as they ran directly off a generator attached to the engines, 
all the avionics went dead. The pilots were left only with the analog displays, a magnetic compass, a horizon indicator, one airspeed indicator, and an altimeter. Oh yeah, and the flaps and slats, which would normally control the rate and speed of descent, also used the same power, so they were dead as well. In the one stroke of good luck, Captain Pearson was also an experienced glider pilot. This was suddenly super useful. He was able to glide the Boeing 767 over 40 miles to a disused military base airfield in the town of Gimli. It was only a 7,200-foot runway, but Captain Pearson was able to hit the ground within 800 feet of the start of it. In a second stroke of good luck, the front landing gear failed, causing the front of the aircraft to scrape along the ground, providing some much-needed braking friction, and the plane came to a halt before the end of the runway. Much to the relief of the people staying in tents and caravans at the far end, which was now being used as a drag racing strip. Here's the thing about turning off all the engines on a 767. They fly much more silently. Some people had the fright of their life when a jet airliner suddenly appeared on the disused runway seemingly out of nowhere. Landing the aircraft as a glider was a phenomenal achievement. When other pilots were given the same scenario in a flight simulator, they ended up crashing. After the Boeing 767 was repaired and returned to service in Air Canada's fleet, it became known as the Gimli Glider and achieved a reasonable level of fame. It was eventually retired in 2008 and now lives in an aeroplane scrapyard in California. An enterprising company bought some sections of its fuselage and now sells luggage tags made from the metal skin of the Gimli Glider. I guess the idea is that the aircraft was lucky to survive a dangerous situation, so having part of the plane should bring good luck. But then again, the vast majority of aeroplanes don't crash at all, so strictly speaking, this plane was bad luck. I bought a piece of the fuselage and attached it to my laptop, which does not seem to have crashed more or less than usual. And just to add some balance, I found an aviation mistake where the pounds-kilograms mix-up went the other way. In the Gimli glider case, the fuel calculations were done in kilograms, but it was actually fueled using the smaller pounds. They had too little fuel. On the 26th of May, 1994, a cargo flight traveling from Miami, USA to Micatia, Venezuela, was loaded with cargo weighed in kilograms when the flight and ground crews thought it was in pounds. So its cargo was about twice as massive as it should have been. The roll down the runway was described as very sluggish, yet the flight still took off. Instead of it taking 30 minutes after takeoff to reach cruising height, it took a full hour and five minutes. Then the flight used a suspiciously large amount of fuel. In the resulting court case, it was estimated that when the plane landed in Venezuela, it was 30,000 pounds overweight, which is about 13,600 kilograms. Fun fact, more than the total amount of fuel the Gimli glider took off with. It makes me feel a bit better about all the times I think I've overpacked my suitcase, but I also feel a lot less safe flying between countries which use different units, which is basically the US and everywhere else. I'd better hurry up and determine if my piece of the Gimli glider is good or bad luck. Don't forget about the price tag. 
It is easy to forget that currencies are units. $1.41 is a very different amount to 1.41 cents. But because the decimal point is often intuitively taken as a punctuation mark to split dollars from cents, people can often consider a dollar sign, 1.41, to be equivalent to 1.41 cent sign. There is an internet-famous phone call from 2006 when U.S. resident George Vaccaro rang his mobile provider Verizon after a trip to Canada. Before the trip, they had confirmed that their roaming data charge in Canada would be 0.002 cents per kilobyte. But then, after the trip, they charged him $0.002 dollars per kilobyte. Mr. Vaccaro's bill came to $72 for around 36 megabytes, which seems a bit laughable now with over a decade of technological improvement. But at the time, it was about right, and the correct price of $0.72 would have been laughably small. Verizon had definitely made a mistake when quoting him their rate. But Mr. Vaccaro had documented it and was now trying to find out what had changed. The call is a painful recording to listen to, all 27 minutes of it, as Mr. Vaccaro is escalated up through several managers. None of them can see the difference between $0.002 and $0.002 and use both numbers interchangeably. I can't get past the part where one of the managers calls the incorrect calculation obviously a difference of opinion. There is an extra complication with money when looking at large amounts of it. Convenient multiples are units in their own right, but when dealing with something like meters and kilometers, people tend to take them as different units. Kilometers are actually a combination of the distance unit of a meter with the size unit of 1,000. But with money, these size units cause problems. This was the basis of a meme passed around in 2015 when Obama's Affordable Care Act was up and running, but not without teething problems. And the Affordable Care Act marketplace insurance plans don't all cover dental work. An easy target for criticism was the cost of setting up Obamacare. A figure of $360 million was passed around as the cost of introducing the program which is a large amount of money, over a third of a billion dollars. So people on the right of the political spectrum looked for ways to highlight just how much money it was. And this meme was born. 317 million people in America, and you spend 360 million on just introducing Obamacare? Just give each citizen a million bucks. It is easy enough to see what is wrong here. $360 million between 317 million people is not $1 million each. It's roughly $1 each. No million, just a single buck. Despite being fairly easy to debunk by dividing one number by the other, this meme was passed around as a legit calculation. I appreciate that people are far less critical when it comes to evidence which supports their political beliefs, but I'd like to think that even the most self-affirming pieces of evidence must pass some rudimentary sense check filter before being promulgated. I cling to the theory that at least the threat of public embarrassment will stop people from endorsing patently implausible claims. Part of me cannot be convinced that anyone arguing for this Obamacare meme is not a troll and in it for the lulls. 
But to give them the benefit of the doubt, let's try to work out why this false assertion was so tenacious. My favorite version of this argument online has the protagonist back up the claim that $360 million divided by 317 million people is a million dollars each, with cash to spare, by breaking it down like this. There are 317 people and you have 360 chairs. Do you have enough chairs for everybody to get one? Well, yes, you do. The fact that 360 is bigger than 317 seems to be a core part of their argument, and no one is denying that bit of logic. But for some reason, these people cannot see that this same logic does not hold when you have millions of dollars and millions of people. And I think this statement offers an insight to where their logic is breaking down. Both units are in millions, so it doesn't make a difference. They are dealing with millions as a unit and doing subtraction instead of division, which in some situations does work. Quick question. If I had 127 million sheep and I sold 25 million of them, how many do I have left? That's right, 102 million. I can guarantee that in your head, you removed the million part of those numbers and did the straightforward calculation of 127 subtract 25 equals 102, then put the million back on to get 102 million. You treated million as a unit which could be ignored as was convenient. But very importantly, in this case, it works. The arguer continued, to millions of people though, so it's the same math, just added zeros. And I agree with them in this case. Millions can be used as part of a unit. And when you add and subtract numbers with the same units, the units always remain unchanged. But if you start multiplying and dividing, then the units can change. Our passionate friend here mentally removed the millions, did a subtraction style comparison to show that 360 is bigger than 317, and then failed to notice that they were also doing an implied division of 360 divided by 317 equals 1.1356 to show that everyone gets just over one each. Just over one each of what? Well, they put the units of millions of dollars back on and concluded that everyone gets just over one of millions of dollars. But if you divide two numbers, you also have to divide their units. So the millions cancel out and everyone gets $1.14 each. So for the most part, the logic is not without some justification. It just falls apart on the final unit hurdle. This is possibly the greatest source of everyday maths errors. People get used to doing a calculation in a given situation, then use the same method in another situation where it no longer works. I suspect everyone who passed on this meme in earnest looked at it and their brain did something along the lines of seeing millions as a unit that they could exclude from their calculations and put back on at the end. Thankfully, this was way back in 2015, and in the years since then, people have become much better at spotting fake news online. Against the Grain Here's one final story involving the pound, but in this case, we're looking at a smaller fraction of the pound, the grain. In the apothecary system of weight units, a pound can be split into 12 ounces, 
which each consists of eight drams. A dram is then three scruples, each made from 20 grains. I hope that made sense. A grain is one 5,760th of a pound. But not a normal pound. This is a troy pound, which is different to a normal pound. And people wonder why the metric system was invented. Let me try again. A kilogram is made up of 1,000 grams, which can then be split into 1,000 milligrams each. A grain is an archaic unit equal to about 64.8 milligrams. Hey, there, that was easier. The problem is that in the US, the apothecary system of units is still used as one of the systems for measuring medications. On the long list of places where you don't want to be on the receiving end of the errors which result from having conflicting systems of units, medicine has to be right up there. To make matters worse, the shorthand for grain is GR, and this can easily be mistaken for a gram. And sure enough, it happens. A patient taking phenobarbital, an anti-epileptic drug, was prescribed 0.5 GR per day, the equivalent of 32.4 milligrams, and this was mistaken for 0.5 grams per day, 500 milligrams. After three days, on over 15 times their normal dose, the patient started to have respiratory problems. Thankfully, when they were taken off the dose, they made a full recovery. This was a case of no grain, no pain. Chapter 11. Stats the way I like it. Even though I was born in Perth, Western Australia, I have lived in the UK for so long, my accent is now 40% to 80% British. While I enjoy sports, I'm not a super fan of any of them, and it has been a very long time since I've applied a prawn to a barbecue. I'm not a typical Australian. But then again, no one is. After the 2011 census, the Australian Bureau of Statistics published who the average Australian was, a 37-year-old woman who, among other things, lives with her husband and two children, a boy and girl aged nine and six, in a house with three bedrooms and two cars in a suburb in one of Australia's capital cities. And then they discovered that she does not exist. They scoured all the records and no one person matched all the criteria to be truly average. As they rightly pointed out, while the description of the average Australian may sound quite typical, the fact that no one meets all these criteria shows that the notion of the average masks considerable and growing diversity in Australia. Australian Bureau of Statistics. When it comes to measuring populations, a census is a bit of an extreme situation. When an organisation wants to know something about a population, it usually checks a small sample and assumes it is representative of everyone else. But a government has the ability to throw scale to the wind and just survey absolutely everyone. This does end up producing an overwhelming amount of data, which, ironically, is then reduced down to representative statistics. The US Constitution requires a nationwide census every 10 years. But by 1880, due to the increase in population and in the census questions, it was taking eight years to process all the data. To fix the problem, electromechanical 
tabulating machines were invented that could automatically total up data which had been stored on punch cards. Tabulating machines were used in the 1890 census and were able to complete the data analysis in only two years. Before long, tabulating machines were doing more and more complicated processing of data, sorting it by different criteria, and even doing basic maths instead of simply keeping tallies. Arguably, the need to crunch census data led to our modern computing industry. This first census punch card tabulating machine was invented by Herman Hollerith, who founded the Tabulating Machine Company, which eventually merged with another tabulation company and evolved into IBM. There may be direct ancestry from the computer you use at work today to punch card sorting machines over a century ago. This is why I found the 2016 census in Australia particularly pleasing. I happened to be in the country for what was the first Australian census to be run almost entirely online, and the Australian Bureau of Statistics had given the contract to host the census to none other than IBM. It turned out that IBM botched the process and the census site went offline for 40 hours, but if we ignore that, it was nice to see IBM still in the cutting-edge census technology business. Though, given how their site handled the traffic, they might still have been using a punch card tabulating machine backend. Would this new survey produce an average Australian who actually existed? When I was back in Australia in 2017 and flicking through the West Australian newspaper, I unexpectedly saw a story about results from the previous year's census. The paper was outlining who the average West Australian would be. A 37-year-old male with two kids, one of his parents was born overseas, and so on. I skimmed ahead to where the journalist writing the article was unable to find someone who was actually that average. Instead, I found Tom Fisher's face smiling back at me. Mr. Average himself. They had done it. They had found someone who supposedly matched all of the average criteria. Tom himself did not seem to be that excited about the title of Mr. Average, pointing out that he works as a musician. He's quite a vital part of the WA band Tom Fisher and the Layabouts. But according to the newspaper, he deserved it because he was a 37-year-old man, born in Australia with at least one parent from overseas, speaks English at home, is married with two children, does between 5 and 14 hours of unpaid domestic work a week, has a mortgage on a four-bedroom house with two cars in the garage. This is a shorter list than the previous census's average Australian, but it was still impressive that someone who matched all the criteria had been found. I tracked Tom down and emailed him to ask about his averageness. Perth is not that big, and it did not take much internet stalking and asking around to locate him. He seemed to have grown into the role of Mr. Average and happily offered his averageness to help me, however he could. I explained how surprised I was that he existed and that he matched all the criteria. Yeah, mate, can confirm the averageness. All except both my parents were born in Oz. I knew it! The newspaper had been deliberately vague, and Tom did not match all of the criteria. It is with great hesitation that I expose this. I thought that maybe people would get more from the idea he represented than from the Mr. Average he actually was. But on balance, it is interesting that even on a few measures, the West Australian newspaper could not find a Mr. Average. Having unmasked one Mr. Average, I was prepared to make amends 
and find a replacement. I contacted the Australian Bureau of Statistics to see if it was possible to find someone with the reduced criteria the newspaper used instead of the full average Australian range of statistics. The fine people at the ABS found my request interesting enough to dig through the data for me, expanding the population considered from West Australia to the whole country, subtly changed the averages. Mr Average is now a woman with one fewer bedrooms in her house. They estimated that for the loosest definition of average, using only a few main statistics, there would only be roughly 400 matching people out of Australia's then population of 23,401,892. So there you have it, 99.9983% of the Australian population is not average. I'm in pretty good company after all. If the data fits. In the 1950s, the US Air Force found out the hard way that no one is average. Pilots in the Second World War had worn quite baggy uniforms and the cockpits were big enough to allow for a wide range of body types. But the new generation of fighter jets allowed for much less give all round, from compact cockpits to skin-tight garments. For the record, skin-tight garment is the US Air Force's description. They needed to know exactly how big their flying personnel were so they could make jets and clothes to fit. The Air Force sent a crack team of measurers to 14 different Air Force bases and measured a total of 4,063 personnel. Although, when I say crack team, it was actually a bunch of students looking for extra work, and the tour had to be scheduled around when they had time off from their classes. The Air Force tried to get an academic anthropological department from a university involved, but no one was interested. Each person had 132 different measurements taken, including such classics as nipple height, nose length, head circumference, elbow circumference, flexed, and buttock knee length. The measurement squad was able to do this in as little as two and a half minutes per human, measuring up to 170 people a day. Those on the receiving end of the measuring described it as the fastest and most thorough going over they'd ever had. For each of the 132 measurements, the team had to compute the mean, the standard deviation, the standard deviation as a percentage of the mean, the range, and 25 different percentile values. So, of course, they turned to the supercomputers of the day, punch card tabulation machines from IBM. The data was entered on punch cards which could then be sorted and tabulated by the electromechanical machines. The statistical calculations were done on mechanical desktop calculators. This may sound onerous now, but at the time it must have seemed like magic to have data sorted by a large noisy machine and arithmetic performed by merely hand cranking a machine on your desk. Like how, in half a century, people will not believe that in the early years of the 21st century we had to drive our own cars, physically type text messages, and manually masticate. Because the newfangled technology was doing the sorting of the recording sheets, the report sheets used to record the data did not need to be arranged to make the later data processing easy. Instead, they were arranged to minimise human error and even reduce how often people had to put different instruments down and pick them up. Tape measurements are all in one column and caliper measurements in another. 
it was an early case of reducing error by user experience design. A lot of effort was put into reducing all sources of error in the survey. Outliers were removed with borderline cases dealt with on a no harm, no foul basis. If it was uncertain if a particular value was an error or just an extreme value, they checked if removing it made any difference to the overall stats. If it didn't, then problem avoided. And all statistical calculations were calculated twice in two different ways, if possible. Some statistical measures have more than one formula to produce them, so they would do both to make sure they received the same answer both ways. As well as the statistical findings, a report called The Average Man? Question mark, was also produced, questioning the very existence of such a mythical beast. The sizes of uniforms were used as a perfect example. The survey of people could be used to make a new standard uniform to fit the middle 30% of all of the measurements, described as approximately average. But how many of the 4,063 people in the survey could wear such an approximately average uniform? The answer was zero. No member of the entire 4,063 people survey was in the middle 30% for all 10 possible uniform measurements. From The Average Man? Question mark, by Gilbert S. Daniels. The tendency to think in terms of the average man is a pitfall into which many persons blunder when attempting to apply human body size data to design problems. Actually, it is virtually impossible to find an average man in the Air Force population. This is not because of any unique traits of this group of men, but because of the great variability of bodily dimensions, which is characteristic of all men. Gilbert Daniels had been part of the team conducting the Air Force survey. He had studied physical anthropology and discovered during his studies, when measuring the hands of the admittedly very homogeneous male Harvard student population, that there was a wide variety of measurements and no one student's hand was close to being average. I have no idea how he got those measurements, but I love the picture of Daniels running around a university campus trying to convince his fellow students to hand over their private data like some kind of hand-size-obsessed Zuckerberg. Daniel's report led to the Air Force not trying to find an average person, but instead engineering things to accommodate variation. They are commonplace now and seem blatantly obvious, but things like adjustable car seats and helmet straps, which can be lengthened and shortened, came out of the Air Force embracing variation. The survey ended up being useful not in showing what the average service person was like, but indicating just how much variation there was among them. Some averages are more equal than others. In 2011, the website OkCupid had a problem common among dating websites. Their attractive users were being swamped with messages, and that kind of signal-to-noise could push them away from the site. Users could rate each other's looks on a scale of 1, to five, and those who averaged at the high end of the attractiveness spectrum were receiving 25 times as many messages as those at the other end. But the folks who founded OkCupid happened to be mathematicians, and the site is almost as much about data as dates. So they dug into the stats, and along the way, they found something interesting. 
people towards the top of the attractiveness scores, but not at the extreme end, with average ratings of around 3.5, were receiving a huge range of numbers of messages. One user with an average rating of 3.3 was getting 2.3 times the normal amount of messages, but someone at the 3.4 level of attractiveness was getting only 0.8 of the normal amount of messages. There was something other than their average attractiveness rating influencing how much attention they were getting from other users. If a user had an attractiveness rating of 3.5, there are multiple ways other users could have rated them between 1 and 5 to give that result. What OkCupid founder Christian Rudder discovered was that people who achieved a rating around 3.5 because a lot of people scored them as 3 or 4 did not get nearly as many messages as users who achieved their 3.5 via a lot of 1s and 5s. The predictor for messages was not the average value of the attractiveness score, but rather how spread out they were. Rudder concluded that users were hesitant to message people they thought everyone would find attractive and would focus their attention on people they found attractive but thought other people might not. The spread of data can be measured with the standard deviation or variance, which is the standard deviation squared. OkCupid users with the same average attractiveness score could have very different standard deviations in their ratings, and that would be a better prediction of how many messages they would receive. This is how it worked out in this case, but it is possible for different sets of data to not only have the same average, but to have the same standard deviation. In 2017, two researchers in Canada produced 12 sets of data which all had the same averages and standard deviations as a picture of a dinosaur. The Datasaurus was a collection of 142 pairs of coordinates which, when plotted, looked like a dinosaur. The Datasaurus dozen were 12 additional sets of 142 pieces of data which, to two decimal places, had the same averages in both vertical and horizontal directions and the same standard deviations in both directions as the Datasaurus. Without being plotted, all these data sets look the same as numbers on paper. It's a valuable lesson in the importance of data visualization and to not trust headline stats. For people trying to imagine what the Datasaurus doesn't actually do look like when visualized, the plot of the Datasaurus itself is kind of a cartoon version of a Tyrannosaurus Rex, and the others are things like ovals, there's a star, a cross, horizontal lines, dots, all sorts of crazy shapes which look very different, yet they have the same averages. These extra sets of data were made by slowly evolving the original data by tiny changes which moved the data points towards a new picture but didn't change the averages and standard deviations. The software to do this has been made freely available. This should buy us some time. First you get the stats, then you analyze the stats. How data is collected is as important as how it is analyzed. There are all sorts of biases that can be introduced during data collection, which can influence the conclusions drawn. Near where I live in the UK, there is a bridge over a river which is believed to have been built by monks in the 1200s. Given this is a bridge which has now survived for around 800 years, those monks must have really known what they were doing. 
A sign at the bridge points out that the supports of the bridge were shaped in such a way that the turbulence in the water as it flows by is diminished, reducing the erosion of the bridge. Smart monks. Or were they? How would we know if the monks were bad at building bridges? All the terrible bridges have either collapsed or been replaced over the near millennium since. In the 1200s, people would have been building bridges all over the place, probably with all sorts of different shaped supports. I assume almost all of them are now gone. We only know about this one because it survived. To conclude that monks were good at building bridges is an example of survivor bias. It's like a manager throwing half the applications for a job into the bin at random because they don't want to hire any unlucky people. Just because something survives does not mean it is significant. I find that a lot of nostalgia about how things were manufactured better in the past is down to survivor bias. I see people online sharing pictures of old kitchen equipment which is still working, waffle irons from the 1920s, mixers from the 1940s, and coffee machines from the 1980s. And there is some truth to the statement that older appliances last longer. I spoke to a manufacturing engineer in the US who said that with 3D design software, parts can be designed with much smaller tolerances now, whereas previous generations of engineers we're not sure where the line was, and so had to over-engineer parts to make sure they would work. But there is also the survivor bias that all the kitchen mixes which broke over the years have long been thrown out. The study, which looked at how many heart attacks occurred after the daylight saving time clock change, also had a problem with a kind of survivor bias. In this case, the researchers had data only on people who made it to a hospital and required an artery opening procedure. So this limited their investigation to people who had a serious heart attack and made it to a hospital. There could have been people having a daylight saving induced heart attack, but who died before making it to the hospital and the study would have missed them completely. There are also sampling biases around how and where data is collected. In 2012, the city of Boston released an app called Street Bump, which seemed to be the perfect combination of smart data collection and analysis. City councils spend a lot of their time repairing potholes in streets, and the longer potholes exist, the more they grow and become dangerous. The idea was that a driver could load the Street Bump app on their smartphone, and while they are driving, the accelerometers in the phones would be looking for the telltale bump from when the car drives over a pothole. This constant updating map of potholes would allow city councils to fix new ones before they grew into car-eating canyons. It got even more zeitgeist when some crowdsourcing was thrown in. The first version of the app was not good at spotting a false positive, data which looks like the data you want, but is actually something else. In this case, the app was picking up cars driving over curbs and other bumps and registering them as potholes. Even the drivers moving the phone around in the car could register as a pothole. So version 2 was thrown open to the wisdom of the crowd. Anyone could suggest changes to the app's code and the best ones would share in a $25,000 reward. The final Street Bump 2.0 app had contributions from anonymous software engineers, a team of hackers in Massachusetts, and the head of a university mathematics department. The new version 
was much better at detecting which bumps came from potholes. But there was a sampling bias, because it was only reporting potholes where someone had a smartphone and was running the app, which heavily favoured affluent areas with a young population. The method used to collect the data made a big difference. It's like conducting a survey about what people think of modern technology, but only accepting submissions by fax. And of course, there is bias in terms of what data people choose to release. When a company runs a drug trial on some new medication or medical intervention they have been working on, they want to show that it performs better than either no intervention or other current options. At the end of a long and expensive trial, if the results show that the drug has no benefit or a negative one, there is very little motivation for the company to publish that data. It's a kind of publication bias. An estimated half of all drug trial results never get published. A negative result from a drug trial is twice as likely to remain unpublished as a positive result. Withholding any drug trial data can put people's lives at risk, possibly more so than any other mistake I've mentioned in this book. Engineering and aviation disasters can result in hundreds of deaths. Drugs can have far wider impacts. In 1980, a trial was completed testing the antiarrhythmic heart drug, Lorcanite. While the frequency of serious arrhythmias in patients who took the drug did drop, of the 48 patients given the drug, 9 died, while only 1 of the 47 patients given a placebo died. But the researchers struggled to find anyone to publish their work. The deaths were outside the scope of their original investigation, focused only on frequency of arrhythmias. And because their sample of patients was so small, the deaths could have been random chance. Over the next decade, further study did reveal the risks associated with this type of drug, a finding which could have been reached sooner with their data. If the Lorcanide data had been released sooner, an estimated 10,000 people might not have died. Interestingly, their study was finally published 13 years later in 1993 as an example of publication bias. Ben Goldacre, physician and nerd warrior, tells the story of how he prescribed the antidepressant drug reboxetine to a patient based on trial data which showed it was more effective than a placebo. It had a clear positive result from a trial involving 254 patients, which was enough to convince him to write a prescription. Sometime later, in 2010, it was revealed that six other trials had been carried out to test reboxetine, involving nearly 2,500 patients, and they all showed that it was no better than a placebo. Those six studies had not been published. Goldacre has since started the All Trials campaign to get all drug trial data, future and past, released. Check out his book, Bad Pharma, for more details. In general, it's amazing what you can prove if you're prepared to ignore enough data. The UK has been home to humans for thousands of years, and that has left its mark on the landscape. There are ancient, monolithic sites all over the place. In 2010, there were reports in the press that someone had analysed 1,500 ancient monolithic sites and found a mathematical pattern which linked them together in isosceles triangles as a kind of prehistoric satnav. 
This research was carried out by author Tom Brooks, and apparently these triangles were too precise to have occurred by chance. He claimed, The sides of some of the triangles are over 100 miles across on each side, and yet the distances are accurate to within 100 meters. You cannot do that by chance. Tom Brooks, 2009. And again in 2011. Brooks had been repeating his findings whenever he had a book to sell, and it seems had put out near-identical press releases in at least 2009 and 2011. The coverage I saw was in January 2010, and I decided to test his claims. I wanted to apply the same process of looking for isosceles triangles, but in location data that would not have any meaningful patterns. A few years earlier, Woolworths, a major chain of UK shops, had gone bankrupt and their derelict shop fronts were still on high streets all across the country. So I downloaded the GPS coordinates of 800 ex-Woolworths locations and got to work. I found three Woolworths sites around Birmingham which formed an exact equilateral triangle. They were Wolverhampton, Litchfield and Birmingham. And if the base of the triangle is extended, it makes a 173.8 mile line linking the Conaway and Luton stores. Despite the 173.8 mile distance involved, the Conaway Woolworth store was only 12 meters off the exact line and the Luton site was within 9 meters. On either side of the Birmingham Triangle, I found pairs of isosceles triangles within the required precision. This was the location of some creepy and eerie alignments, which makes the Birmingham Triangle a kind of Bermuda Triangle, only with much worse weather. As is apparently the accepted practice in these sorts of things, I put out a press release outlining my findings. I claim that, at last, this information could give us some insight into how the people of 2008 lived. And, like Brooks, I claim that the patterns were so precise I could not rule out extraterrestrial help. The Guardian covered it with the headline, Did Aliens Help Line Up Woolworth Stores? Although, in the interest of full disclosure, this is before I was writing for The Guardian myself, but the article was written by my friend Ben Goldacre of All Trolls fame. To find these alignments, I had simply skipped over the vast majority of the Woolworths locations and chosen the few that happened to line up. A mere 800 locations gave me a choice of over 85 million triangles. I was not at all surprised when some of them were near exactly isosceles. If none of them had been, then I would start believing in aliens. The one and a half thousand prehistoric sites that Brooks used gave him over 561 million triangles to pick and mix from. I suspect that he is completely genuine in his belief that ancient Britons placed their important sites in these locations. He had merely fallen victim to confirmation bias. Data that matched his expectations was focused on and the rest of it ignored. Brooks put out his ancient satnav press release yet again in 2011. So I put out my own press release again, this time with some help from programmer Tom Scott. Scott wrote a website which would take any postcode in the UK and find three 
ancient megalithic alignments which go through that spot. One of the three had to be Stonehenge. Three such ley lines go through every address in the UK. It is a mathematical certainty that you can find any pattern you want as long as you're prepared to ignore enough data that does not match. I have not heard anything from Brooks in the press since, and as a fellow triangle file, I hope he is doing okay. Causation, correlation, and mobile phone masts. In 2010, a mathematician found that there was a direct correlation between the number of mobile phone masts and the number of births in areas of the UK. For every additional mobile phone mast in an area, 17.6 more babies were born compared to the national average. It was an incredibly strong correlation and would have warranted further investigation had there been any causal link. But there wasn't. The finding was meaningless. And I can say that because I was that mathematician. This was a project I was doing with the BBC Radio 4 mathematics program, more or less, to look at how people respond to a correlation where there is no causal link. The sight of mobile phone masks was not putting citizens of the UK in a romantic mood, and decades of studies have revealed no biological impact from mobile phone masks. In this case, both factors were dependent on a third variable. Population size. Both the number of mobile phone masts in an area and the number of births depend on how many people live there. I should make it very clear. In the article, I explained that the correlation was because of population size. I explained in great detail that this was an exercise in showing that correlation does not mean causation. But it ended up also being an exercise in how people don't read the article properly before commenting underneath. The correlation was too alluring and people could not help but put forward their own reasons. More than one person suggested that expensive neighbourhoods have fewer masts and young families with loads of kids cannot afford to live there, proving once again that there is no topic Guardian readers cannot make about house prices. And, of course, it attracted a few of the alternative facts types. If this study holds up, then it's in strong support of the existing scientific evidence that low-level radiation from mobile phone masts do cause biological effects. Someone who didn't read beyond the headline. A correlation is never enough to argue that one thing is causing another. There is always the chance that something else is influencing the data causing the link. Between 1993 and 2008, the police in Germany were searching for the mysterious Phantom of Heilbronn, a woman who had been linked to 40 crimes, including six murders. Her DNA had been found at all the crime scenes. Tens of thousands of police hours were spent looking for Germany's most dangerous woman, and there was a 300,000 euro bounty on her head. It turns out that she was a woman who worked in the factory that made the cotton swabs used to collect DNA evidence. And of course, some correlations happen to be completely random. If enough data sets are compared, sooner or later there will be two which match almost perfectly, completely by accident. There is even a spurious correlations website which can search through publicly available data and find matches for you. 
I did a quick check against the number of people in the US who attained a PhD in mathematics. Between 1999 and 2009, the number of mass doctorates awarded had an 87% correlation with the number of people who tripped over their own two feet and died. This is provided without comment. For the record, in the US, the number of people awarded mass PhDs also has an above 90% correlation over 10 years or more with uranium stored at nuclear power plants, money spent on pets, total revenue generated by skiing facilities, and per capita consumption of cheese. As a mathematical tool, correlation is a powerful technique. It can take a collection of data and provide a good measure of how closely linear changes in one variable match changes in the other. But it is only a tool, not the answer. Much of mathematics is about finding the correct answer, but in statistics, the numbers coming out of calculations are never the whole story. All of the Datasaurus dozen have the same correlation values as well, but there are clearly different relationships in the plots. The numbers produced by statistics are the start of finding the answer, not the end. It takes a bit of common sense and clever insight to go from the statistics to the actual answer. Otherwise, when you hear a statistic such as the fact that cancer rates have been steadily increasing, you could assume that people are living less healthy lives. The opposite is true. Longevity is increasing, which means more people are living long enough to get cancer. For most cancers, age is the biggest risk factor. And in the UK, 60% of all cancer diagnoses are for people age 65 or older. As much as it pains me to say it, when it comes to statistics, the numbers are not everything. Chapter 12. Tutlaway Rodam. I mean, uh, totally random. In 1984, ice cream van driver Michael Larson went on the US TV game show Press Your Luck and won an unprecedented $110,237, about eight times more than the average winner. He had such an extended winning streak that the normally fast turnover game show had to split his appearance over two episodes. On Pressure Luck, the prizes were dished out via the Big Board, a screen with 18 boxes detailing different cash amounts, physical prizes, and a cartoon character known as a whammy. The system rapidly flicked between the boxes in an apparently random order, and the player won the content of whichever box was selected when they hit their buzzer. Should a contestant land on a whammy, the player lost all the prizes they had accumulated so far. The system never lingered on a box for long enough for the player to see what it was, react, and hit their buzzer and because the movement seemed unpredictable, it was theoretically impossible for the player to anticipate which box it would select in advance, so they were picking at random. Most players would win a few prizes before retiring for that round, others would press their luck and get whammied. At least, that was the theory. The game starts normally enough, Michael answers enough trivia questions correctly to earn some spins on the big board, and on his first go, he hits a whammy. 
By the start of the second round, Michael is coming last, but his trivia knowledge has earned him seven more spins on the big board. This time, he does not hit a whammy. He wins $1,250. Then $1,250 on the next spin. Then $4,000, $5,000, $1,000, a holiday to Kauai, $4,000 again, and so on. And most of these were prizes, which also came with a free spin. So his big board reign seemed to be everlasting. At first, the host, Peter Tamarkin, goes through his normal patter, waiting for Michael to hit a whammy. But he doesn't. In a freak of probability, he keeps selecting prize after prize. The video is available online if you search for Press Your Luck and Michael Larson. It's amazing to watch the range of emotions the host goes through. Initially, he is excited that something unlikely is happening, but soon he is trying to work out what on earth is going on while maintaining his jovial game show host persona. Instead of being truly random, the board had only five predetermined cycles, which it went through so fast they looked random. Michael Larson had taped the show at home and pored over the footage until he cracked those underlying patterns. Then he memorized them, which, ironically, was probably less effort than learning the answers to trivia questions like other people did. And I certainly can't make fun of him for memorizing long sequences of seemingly arbitrary values. My knowledge of the digits of pi has definitely not won me $110,237. The designers of the Press Your Luck system hard-coded set cycles instead of being truly random because being random is difficult. It is far easier to use an already generated list of locations than to randomly pick a path on the fly. It's not even a case of it being difficult for computers to do something randomly. It's pretty much impossible. Robotic Randomness no computer can be random, unaided. Computers are built to follow instructions exactly. Processes are built to predictably do the correct thing every time. Making a computer do something unexpected is a difficult feat. You can't have a line of code which is do something random and get a truly random number without a specialized component being attached to the computer. The extreme version of this is to build a two-meter-high motorized conveyor belt which dips into a bucket of 200 dice and lifts a random selection of them past a camera which the computer can then use to look at the dice and detect which numbers have been rolled. Such a machine, capable of 1.33 million random dice rolls a day, would weigh around 50 kilograms, fill a room with the cacophony of moving motors and rolling dice, and be exactly what Scott Nesson built for his Games by Email website. Scott runs a website where people can play games over email, which means he requires about 20,000 dice rolls per day. People who play board games take their dice rolls seriously, so he went to all the effort in 2009 to build a machine capable of physically rolling enough dice. He was sure to engineer the Dice-O-Matic so it was future-proofed with plenty of spare capacity, hence the maximum output of 1.33 million rolls per day. 
Scott currently has about a million unused dice rolls saved on his server, and the Dice-O-Matic fires up for an hour or two each day to top up the randomness reservoir, filling his house in Texas with the thundering sound of hundreds of dice rolling at once. While it has the authentic charm of rolling actual dice, the Dice-O-Matic is clearly not the most efficient computer peripheral ever built. When the UK government announced its issue of premium bonds in 1956, it suddenly had the need to produce random numbers on an industrial scale. Unlike normal government bonds, which pay out a fixed amount of interest, the interest on premium bonds is grouped into prizes and handed out to bondholders randomly. And so Ernie, the electronic random number indicator equipment, was built and powered up in 1957. It was designed by Tommy Flowers and Harry Fensom, who we now know have been involved in building the first computers to break Nazi codes during the Second World War. This was still classified information at the time. I have visited Ernie, long since decommissioned, at the Science Museum in London. Although, at the time I was writing this book, Ernie is no longer on public display at the Science Museum. Taller than me and wider than me, by several metres in fact, it looks exactly like you would expect a beige series of 1950s computer cabinets to look like. But I knew that in there somewhere was Ernie's heart of randomness, a series of neon tubes. Neon tubes are normally used for illumination, but Ernie used them to generate random numbers. The path of any given electron through the neon gas it is lighting up is chaotic, so the resulting current is largely random. Turning on a neon tube is like rolling quadrillions of nano dice at once, which means that even if the electrons are fed into a neon lamp at a very steady rate, they will all bounce around differently and come out at slightly different times. Ernie took the current coming out of neon lamps and extracted the random noise to use as the basis for random numbers. Over half a century later, premium bonds are still sold in the UK with the prizes drawn once a month. The electronic random number indicator equipment is now on its fourth iteration and Ernie 4 uses thermal noise from transistors to generate random numbers. Electrons are forced through resistors and the change in voltage and heat produced are used as the random noise. If the press-your-luck designers had really wanted an unbreakable system, they would have needed some kind of physical random system to connect to their big board. The board was already illuminated with an ostentatious number of lights, so if a few of them had been neon lamps, they would have been good to go. A conveyor belt of dice in the next room would have also worked if it could move fast enough. And for the ultimate in unpredictability, there are random quantum systems available off the shelf. It does feel like overkill, but you can currently buy your own quantum random noise system for about 1,000 euros. This contains an LED to emit photons into a beam splitter where quantum interactions determine which way that photon should go. Where the photon comes out determines the next bit of the random number. Plug it into your computer via USB and the base model will immediately start serving up 4 million random ones and zeros every second. Greater rates of randomness are available at higher price points.
If you're being random on a budget, the Australian National University have you covered. They have set up their own quantum random number generator by listening to the sound of nothing. Even in a vacuum of nothingness, there is something going on. Thanks to the quirks of quantum mechanics, it is possible for a particle and its antiparticle pair to spontaneously appear from literally nowhere and then annihilate each other faster than the universe can notice that they shouldn't be there. This means that empty space is actually a writhing foam of particles popping in and out of reality. In the Department of Quantum Sciences at ANU, they have a detector listening to a vacuum and it converts the quantum foam into random numbers and then streams them live online at qrng.anu.edu.au around the clock. For tech people, they have a great range of secure delivery systems. Never use the built-in random function in Python again. And if you like your background noise binary, they have an audio version so you can listen to the sounds of random. Random by rote. Let's say you're really trying to cut back on your number budget. The bargain basement of randomness is a pseudo-random number. Like a kind of off-brand version of the real thing, pseudo-random numbers look and taste a lot like the original, but are made to much lower standards. Pseudo-random numbers are what your computer, phone, or anything without its own random number drive serves up when you ask for a random number. Most phones will have a built-in calculator and if you tip it sideways, you should get the full range of scientific calculator options. When I was writing this book, I hit the RAND random button on mine and 0.576-450-227-330181 popped up on the screen. After a second mash, it read 0.063316529365828. Each time, I get a new random number between 0 and 1, ready to be scaled up to whatever my random needs may be. And it did please me greatly that part of the required word count of this book has now officially been randomly generated. Having a pocket random number generator is incredibly handy if you want to randomize all sorts of decisions in your life. When I go out for a drink with my brother, we use a random number to decide who pays the bill. Evenly digit I pay, odd, he does. If you want to add some digits to the end of a password, now you can be less predictable. Need to give someone a believable fake phone number? The RAND button is your new friend. But sadly, these numbers are not truly random. Like the big board, they are following a predetermined sequence of values. Except, instead of memorizing a list in advance, they generate it on the fly. Pseudo-random number generators use mathematical equations to generate numbers which have all the hallmarks of being random, but are just pretending to be. To make your own pseudo-random numbers, start with an arbitrary number with four digits. I'm going to use the year I was born, 1980. We now need a way to turn this into a new, seemingly unrelated, four-digit number. If we cube it, we end up with 7,767,392,000. And I'm going to ignore the first digit and take the second through fifth positions. 
7623. Repeating the process of cubing and removing digits gives us 4297, 9340, 1478, and so on. This is a sequence of pseudo-random numbers. They are being procedurally generated with no uncertainty. The digits 9340 will always follow 4297, but not in any obvious way. My sequence is not great because there are only so many four-digit numbers and eventually we'll hit the same one twice and the numbers will start to repeat in a loop. In this case, the 150th term is the same as the third term, 4297 again. That is then followed by 9340 and the same run of 147 numbers will repeat forever. Real pseudo-random sequences use far more complicated calculations so the numbers don't loop as quickly and to help obfuscate the process. I used 1980 as the first number to seed my sequence, but I could have picked a different seed and got a different sequence. Industrial-grade pseudo-random algorithms will spit out completely different numbers for slight changes in their seeds. Even if you're using a known pseudo-random generator, if you choose a random seed, the numbers it spits out will be unpredictable. But the best pseudo-random number generator is of no use if you get lazy when seeding it. Ever since the early internet, web traffic has been kept safe by encrypting it with random numbers. But when one browser picked random numbers for use in Secure Sockets Layer SSL, encryption, the seeds could be easily guessed by other people who might want to listen in. The World Wide Web burst into public consciousness around 1995, and for me, nothing is more 90s than the Netscape Navigator web browser. Forget being saved by bells or having sex in the cities, for me, the 90s was a comet swirling around a capital N while I waited for a website to load. That was back when everything was cyber and people could still use the phrase information superhighway with a straight face. When searching around for a seed to generate random numbers, Netscape would use a combination of the current time and its process identifiers. On most operating systems, whenever a program is running, it is given a process ID number so your computer can keep track of it. Netscape would use the process ID of the current session as well as the process ID of the parent program which opened Netscape combined with the current time, seconds and microseconds, to seed its pseudo-random number generator. But those numbers are not hard to guess. I'm currently using Chrome as my web browser, and the window I last looked at has a process identifier of 4122. It was opened by a different Chrome window when I hit New Window, and that parent window has a process identifier of 298. As you can see, these are not big numbers. If a malicious agent knew the rough time I opened that window before doing something in need of encryption like logging into my online bank, they could work out a list of all the possible combinations of times and process identifiers. It would be a long list to look at for a human, but not much for a computer to crunch through and check all of the options. In 1995, Ian Goldberg and David Wagner, then computer science PhD students at the University of California, Berkeley, showed that a clever, malicious agent could produce a list of possible random seeds small enough that a computer could check them all 
in a matter of minutes, rendering the encryption useless. Netscape had previously turned down offers of help from the security community, but after the work of Goldberg and Wagner, they patched the problem and released their solution to be independently scrutinized by anyone who wanted to go through it with a fine code comb. Modern browsers get their random seeds from the computer they are running on by mashing together over a hundred different numbers. As well as the time and process identifiers, they also use things like the current state of free space on the hard drive and the time between when the user hits keys or moves the mouse. Because using an amazing pseudo-random sequence generator with an easy-to-guess seed is like buying an expensive lock and then using it as a doorstop. Or indeed, buying an expensive lock and leaving the screws visible and unscrewable. Random numbers fall mainly in the planes. Algorithms to generate pseudo-random numbers are constantly evolving and adapting. They need to balance their apparent randomness with being efficient, easy to use, and secure. Because random numbers are vital to digital security, some of the algorithms are kept under lock and key. Microsoft has never released how Excel generates its pseudo-random numbers, nor are users allowed to choose their own seeds. Thankfully, enough of these algorithms are in the public domain that we can take a critical look at them. One of the first standard methods for generating pseudo-random numbers was to multiply each number in your sequence by a large multiplier, k, and then divide the answer by a different number, m, and keep the remainder as your next pseudo-random term. This was used by almost all early computers until George Marsaglia, a mathematician at Boeing Scientific Research Laboratories, spotted a fatal flaw in 1968. If you took the sequence of random numbers coming out and plotted them as coordinates on a graph, they would line up. Admittedly, this would require complicated graphs with upwards of 10 dimensions. Marsaglia's research was looking at these multiply then divide generators in general, but for a sloppy choice of k and m values, the situation could get much worse and IBM nailed it when it came to a bad choice of K and M. The randu function used by IBM machines got each new pseudo-random number by multiplying by K equals 65,539 and then dividing by M equals 2,147,483,648, which are almost impressively bad. The K value is only three more than a power of two, specifically just above two to the 16, and combined with a modulus, which was also a power of two, the M value was two to the 31. All of the supposed random data ended up being disturbingly well organized. While Marsaglia's work had to use alignments in abstract mathematical spaces, the IBM random numbers could be plotted as 3D points which fall into just 15 neat planes. That's about as random as a spork. Getting quality pseudo-random numbers continues to be a problem. In 2016, the Chrome browser had to fix its pseudo-random number generator. Modern browsers are now pretty good at producing seeds for their pseudo-random numbers, but unbelievably, the generators themselves can still have problems.
Chrome was using an algorithm called MWC1616, which was based on a combination of multiplication with carry, the MWC from the name, and concatenation to generate pseudo-random numbers. But it accidentally repeated itself over and over. What a bore. Some programmers had released a Chrome extension people could download and use to anonymously keep track of everyone who had installed it Upon installation, it would generate a random number as an arbitrary user ID and send that back to the company's database. They had a graph in the office showing a nice increase in installations of their extension until, one day, the number of new installs dropped to zero. Had the whole world suddenly decided to stop using their extension? Or was there some fatal flaw in their code which had caused it to stop working? No. Their extension was working fine and people were still installing it, but it used the JavaScript programming language and called the built-in function math.random to get a new user ID number for each new install. This worked fine for the first few million cases, but from then on, it was only returning numbers which had already been used. This meant that all new users looked like duplicates of those already in the database. These user ID numbers were 256-bit values with possibilities measured in the, oh my, wow. Okay, here's a word I can type but not say. A bunch of stuff, tillions. Look, it, it's, it's around 10 to the 77. There is no way they should repeat so quickly. Something had gone wrong and the MWC1616 algorithm was to blame. The pseudo-random numbers had looped. This was not the only case of Chrome users having random problems, and thankfully the developers behind the browser's JavaScript engine set about fixing the problem. As of 2016, Chrome has switched to an algorithm called XOR Shift 128 Plus, which provides pseudo-random numbers via a crazy amount of raising numbers to the power of other numbers. So for now, the world of pseudo-random numbers is calm and browsers are serving them up with no problems. But that does not mean it is the end of the story. One day, XOR Shift 128 Plus will be usurped. Anything involving computer power is a constant arms race, as more powerful computers can disentangle ever bigger numbers. It is only a matter of time before our current pseudo-random number generator algorithms are no longer fit for purpose. Hopefully, by then, a new generation of computer scientists will have given us something even better. We need more randomness in our lives. Randomly wrong. When I was a high school math teacher, one of my favorite pieces of homework to set was to ask students to spend their evening flipping a coin 100 times and recording the results. They would each come back to class with a long list of heads and tails. I could then take those lists and by the end of the lesson, I had split them into two piles. Those who actually did the homework as requested and flipped a physical coin and those who could not be bothered and just wrote out a long list of heads and tails off the top of their head. Most cheating students would remember to have roughly as many heads as tails as would be expected from a real random coin, but they forgot about longer runs. Heads and tails on a fair coin are both equally likely and subsequent flips are independent, so this random data should be nice 
and uniform. This means it does not just have every possible event happening equally as often, but any combinations of events. Eight coin flips in a row will produce uh, heads, tails, heads, heads, tails, heads, 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 about as often as heads, tails, heads, tails, heads, tails, heads, heads. In the case of my students, they forgot that heads, 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 heads is as likely as any other run of six flips. And in a hundred random coin tosses, you expect at least a run of six the same, if not more than ten in a row. Writing something like tails, 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 when you are faking random data feels wrong, but that's what we should expect. Just like teenagers trying to cheat on their boring homework is what we should expect. Not that adults are very different. As the saying goes, there are only three things certain in life, death, taxes, and people trying to cheat on their taxes. Fudging a tax return can require making up some random numbers to look like real financial transactions. And instead of a teacher checking for homework, there are forensic accountants going through tax returns to look for the telltale signs of fake data. If financial fraud is not done randomly enough, it is easy to spot. There is a standard financial data check which involves looking at the first few digits of all available transactions and seeing if any are more or less frequent than expected. Deviations from the expected frequency do not necessarily mean something nefarious is going on, but where there are too many transactions to all be checked manually, the unusual ones are a good starting point. Investigators at a bank in the US analyzed the first two digits of all credit card balances where the bank had written off the debt as unrecoverable, and there was a huge spike at 4.9. This was traced to a single employee who was giving credit cards to friends and family who would then run them up to between $4,900 and $4,999 owed. The max the employee could write off without authorization, was $5,000. Even auditors themselves are not immune. A large auditing company ran a check of the first two digits on all expense claims put in by their employees. This time, there were way more claims, starting with 4-8, than there should have been. Again, a single employee was responsible. The auditors who worked for the firm could claim expenses when they were working off-site, but one person was consistently claiming their breakfast on the way to the office as well. And they always bought the same coffee and muffin, which cost $4.82. In these cases, if the people had been more random and less greedy, they could have camouflaged themselves in the rest of the data and not drawn attention to their transactions but they would need to be the right type of random. Not all random data matches a uniform distribution like you would expect from flipping a fair coin. A dice with five numbers all the same and only one face different is still random, but the results will not be uniform. If you pick days at random, you will not get equal numbers of weekdays and weekends. And if you shout, Hey Tom, it's been ages, how are you? At strangers in the street, you will not get uniform responses. But when you accidentally get it right, it's worth it. And financial data is definitely not uniform. 
A lot of financial data conforms to Benford's law, which says that in some types of real-world data, the lead digits are not equally likely. If lead digits were uniform, they would each appear around 11.1% of the time. But in reality, the chance of starting with, let's say, a 1 depends on the range of numbers being used. Imagine you were measuring things up to 2 metres long in centimetres. 55.5% of all the numbers from 1 to 200 start with a 1. Imagine picking a date at random. 36.1% of all dates have a day of the month starting with 1. Averaging across different distribution sizes means that in a big enough set of appropriate data, around 30% of numbers will start with a 1, down to only 4.6% with a 9. One of my favourite examples is the lead digits of populations of the counties in the US. I was able to get the stats for the year 2000 of 3,141 different counties. Look at the lead digits and 30.2% of those populations start with a 1 compared to the 30.1% you expect from Benford's law. And then you can look at all the different ones. So ones that start with a 4 there are 9.8% that start with a 4. You expect it to be 9.7, all the way down to they're exactly 5.0% that start with a 9 compared to the 4.6% that you expect. It's just eerily aligned. Real-world data tends to be amazingly close to this distribution, except when the numbers are made up. In one documented example, a restaurant owner was making up their daily sales totals evidently to reduce how much tax they would have to pay. But when the lead digits were plotted, they were completely different to what Benford's law predicts. And even if the first digits of numbers follow Benford's law, often the last digits of the numbers are effectively random and should still be a uniform distribution. All two-digit combinations should appear 1% of the time, but 6.6% of the time, the restaurant's daily totals ended with 4 zero. This wasn't a quirk of their prices. The owner seemingly liked the number 40. As always, humans are terrible at being random. And it turns out restaurants are not very good at cooking books. Benford's law also applies when looking at the first two digits of a number. And this is one of the things forensic accountants look for. It's hard to get real-world examples of this being used to spot tax fraud, and all the forensic accountants I've ever met have refused to be named or speak on the record. But there is some old data we can look at. Mark Negrini is an associate professor at the West Virginia University College of Business and Economics, and he analysed a data set of 157,000 518 taxpayer records from 1978, which the IRS had anonymized and released. He looked at the first two digits of three different values people could declare on their tax returns. Interest income amounts are the amount of interest people earned in a year and come from their bank records. They are, as noted by Negrini, subject to extensive third-party reporting. In other words, the IRS could check if people are telling the truth. This plot showed a near-perfect match to the Benford's Law distribution. The amount of money earned from dividends is not as easy for the IRS to check, but is still subject to some less stringent third-party reporting. 
and the distribution as a whole only slightly deviated from Benford's distribution. So maybe there was a small amount of fudging going on. There were large spikes at 0, 0 and 5, 0, and smaller spikes at other multiples of 10, which implies that some people were estimating their dividend income instead of reporting it exactly. In 1978, people were trusted to add up all their interest paid on mortgages, credit cards, and so on, and to report it with little to no additional checks. There were smaller spikes at 0, 0 and 5, 0, which shows that people were more reluctant to look like they had estimated these values. This plot also showed the greatest divergence from the expected Benford's distribution, which does not necessarily mean there had been fraud, it merely implied that the data had been influenced somehow. In this case, much of the deviation seems to have been because people with small interest expenses did not bother reporting them. I cannot say with certainty what distribution tests modern tax agencies use, but I can pretty much guarantee they do things like this and then take a closer look at anything which deviates from the expected. So if you are going to defraud the state on your tax return, you need to make sure you can generate the right type of numbers. I'm just hoping that Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs does not look for tax returns which exactly match Benford's law, like suspiciously close, to spot mathematicians precisely fudging their numbers. Like so, totally random. So it turns out that true randomness is more predictable than people expect. And if even tax collectors know how to spot fake random data, can pseudo-random numbers ever be indistinguishable from the real thing. Thankfully, done carefully, a pseudo-random sequence can have almost all the properties which random numbers are expected to exhibit. Forget funny distributions. As a source of randomness, pseudo-random numbers should be completely uniform and independent. This is the bland building block of randomness, and users can flavor these random numbers into whatever bespoke distribution they may require. There are only two golden rules for plain style random data. Number one, all outcomes are equally likely. Number two, each event has no effect on what comes next. And number three, potato. When I was checking for fraudulently random homework, I used only two tests, a frequency test to make sure heads and tails appeared about as often as each other, and a runs test to check for longer combinations of results. But these are only a starting point. There are loads of ways you can check if data conforms to my two golden rules. And there is no one definitive battery of tests you should use. Over the years, people have come up with all sorts of interesting ways to check how random data is, and no one test works on its own. My favorite is an ensemble of tests called the Die Hard Package. Sadly, this does not involve throwing the numbers off the Nakatomi Tower or making them crawl through an air vent, but in my experience, it does help if during the process you yell, yippee-ki-yay, number function. The Die Hard Package is actually a collection of 12 separate tests. Some of the tests are pretty boring, like checking for increasing and decreasing runs of digits. So for the base 10 random number 0 
2156649, there's an increasing sequence 577, and then the decreasing sequence 7721. These runs in different directions should be of an expected range of lengths. Or there's the bitstream test, which converts the numbers into binary and looks at overlapping groups of 20 digits, checking which of all the 1,048,576 possible 20-digit binary numbers are in each 2,097,171-digit block. Truly random data should be missing around 141,909 of them, with a standard deviation of 428. Then there are the fun tests. These use the data in a strange situation to see if it works as expected. The parking lot test uses the purportedly random sequence to place circular cars in a 100 by 100 square meter parking lot. After 12,000 cars have tried to park at random, there should be 3,523 crashes. Standard deviation of 21.9. Another test puts different sized spheres inside a cube, and one test is simply to make the data play 200,000 games of craps, an old-timey dice game, and check if the winning games follow expected distributions. How exotic and weird these tests are is part of their appeal. Random data should be equally random in all situations. If random tests were predictable, then the pseudo-random sequence algorithms would evolve to match those tests. But if a sequence might be checked to see what average score it gets after 200,000 rounds of 1994 Sega Mega Drive game Shaq Fu, then it had better be truly random. There is one catch-all definition of randomness, and even though it is a bit too esoteric to be useful, I love it for its simplicity. A random sequence can be defined as any sequence which is equal to or shorter than any description of it. The length of the description of a random sequence is called its Kolmogorov complexity after Russian mathematician Andrei Kolmogorov, who suggested it in 1963. If you can write a short computer program to generate a sequence of numbers, then that sequence cannot be random. If the only way to communicate a sequence is to print it out in its entirety, then you've got some randomness on your hands. And printing random numbers out is sometimes the best option. Let's get physical. Before the computer age, lists of random numbers had to be generated in advance and printed as books for people to buy. I say before the computer age, but when I was at school in the 1990s, we still had books with tables of random numbers in them. Handheld calculators, and indeed handheld computers, have come a long way since then. But for true randomness, the printed page is hard to beat. You can still buy books of random numbers online. If you have not done so before, you must read the online reviews of books of random numbers. You'll think people would not have much to say about lists of random digits, but this vacuum brings out the creativity in people. Five Stars by Mark Pack Don't turn to the last page and spoil the book by finding out the ending. Make sure you read from page one and let the tension build. Three Stars by R. Rossini. While the printed version is good, I would have expected the publisher to have an audiobook version as well. 
Four Stars by Roy. If you like this book, I highly recommend that you read it in the original binary. As with most translations, conversion from binary to decimal frequently causes a loss of information and, unfortunately, it's the most significant digits that are lost in the conversion. Well done, Roy. Five Stars by Vangelion Still a better love story than Twilight. What if you don't have time to buy a book and absolutely need a random number? Well, you're going to need a random object. Nothing beats physical systems like flipping a coin or rolling a dice for generating real random numbers, even in our modern high-tech age. This is why I keep various dice on me at all times, including a 60-sided dice in case I need to generate a random seed for a Bitcoin address, which use base 58 numbers. In the San Francisco offices of Cloudflare, Lava lamps are used as a physical randomness generator. This is back to internet security and SSL, but on a much bigger scale than Netscape. Cloudflare handles over a quarter of a quadrillion encryption requests per day. About 10% of all web traffic relies on Cloudflare. This means they need a lot of cryptographic quality random numbers. To meet this demand, they have a camera pointed at a hundred lava lamps in their lobby. It takes a photo once a millisecond and converts the random noise in the image into a stream of random ones and zeros. The colorful moving blobs of the lava lamps help to add to their noise, but it is actually the tiny fluctuations in pixel values which are at the heart of the randomness. Their office in London has a chaotic pendulum bouncing around, and the Singapore setup uses a far less visually exciting radioactive source. So unlike most of the random crap in tech company lobbies, in the San Francisco Cloudflare office, the lava lamps actually serve a purpose. When it comes down to it, though, you can't beat the cost-effectiveness of a coin. An engineering friend of mine was working on a record-breaking tall, skinny tower in 2016 and discovered that engineers are simply not random enough. One of the issues with an incredibly thin tower is that the wind can set it vibrating like a guitar string, and if the wind matches the frequency it likes to resonate at, it could tear the tower apart. To stop this, they designed patches of wind baffles to be attached to the outside of the tower to break up the wind flow. But, very importantly, they had to be put on randomly. If they were too uniform, they would not break the wind up enough. How did the engineers make sure they were placed randomly? To choose which sections would be with or without baffles, someone in the office flipped a coin. Chapter 13 does not compute. In 1996, a group of scientists and engineers were poised to launch a group of four satellites to investigate the Earth's magnetosphere. The project had involved a decade of planning, designing, testing, and building. The process is slow because once a spacecraft is in space, it is very difficult to do any repairs. You don't want to make any mistakes. Everything needs to be triple checked. Now called the Cluster Mission, the Finnish satellites were loaded into a European Space Agency, ESA, Ariane 5 rocket in June 1996, ready to be launched into orbit from the Guyana Space Centre in South America. 
We will never know if those spacecraft would have functioned as intended, as within 40 seconds of liftoff, the Ariane had activated its self-destruct system and exploded in the sky. Parts of the rocket and its payload of spacecraft rayed down on 12 square kilometers of mangrove swamp and savanna in French Guyana. One of the principal investigators of the cluster mission still works at the Mullard Space Science Laboratory, part of University College London, where my wife now works. After the disaster, parts of the spacecraft were recovered and shipped back to UCL, and the investigators opened the box to see years of work now represented by twisted chunks of metal with bits of swamp still attached. They are now on display in the staff common room as a reminder to the next generation of space scientists that they are spending their careers on ideas which can disappear in a puff of second-stage booster. Thankfully, the European Space Agency decided to rebuild the cluster mission and try again. The Cluster 2 satellites were successfully put into orbit in 2000 by a Russian rocket. Originally planned to last two years in space, they are now coming up on two decades of successful operation. So what went wrong with the Ariane 5 rocket? In short, the onboard computer tried to copy a 64-bit number into a 16-bit space. Online reports are quick to blame the maths, but the computer code must have been written in such a way as to cause that to happen. Programming is just formalized mathematical thought and processes. I wanted to know what that number was, why it had been copied into a location in the memory which was too small, and why that had brought down an entire rocket. So I downloaded and trudged through the investigation report issued by ESA's inquiry board. The original programmer, or team of programmers, of this code did their work brilliantly. They put together a perfectly working inertial reference system, SRI, so the rocket always knew where it was and what it was doing. An SRI is basically an interpreter between the sensors tracking the rocket and the computer doing the driving. The SRI could be linked to several sensors around the rocket, take the raw data coming in from those gyroscopes and accelerometers, and convert it into meaningful information. The SRI was also linked to the main onboard computer and fed all the details of which way the rocket was facing and how fast it was going. During this translational work, the SRI would be converting all sorts of data between different formats, which is the natural habitat of computerized maths error. The programmers identified seven cases where a floating point value was coming in from a sensor and being converted into an integer. This is exactly the kind of situation where a longer number could accidentally be fed into a space that was too small, which would grind the program to a halt in an operand error. To avoid this, it was possible to add a extra bit of code which looks at the incoming values and asks, is this going to cause an operand error if we try to convert it. Blanket use of this process could comprehensively safeguard against conversion errors, but making the program go through an extra check every time a conversion is about to happen is very processor intensive, and the team had been given a strict limit on how much processing power their code was allowed to use. No problem, they thought. We'll go back a step and look at the actual sensors that are sending the SRI the data and see what range of values they could possibly produce. For three of the inconvenient seven, 
it was found that the input could never be big enough to cause an operand error, so protection was not added. The other four variables could possibly be too big, so they will always run through the safety check. Which was all great for the Ariane 4 rocket, the precursor to the Ariane 5. After years of faithful service, the SRI was pulled out of the Ariane 4 and used in the Ariane 5 without a proper check of the code. The Ariane 5 was designed with a different takeoff trajectory to the Ariane 4, which involved greater horizontal speeds early in the launch. The trajectory of an Ariane 4 meant that this horizontal velocity would never be big enough to cause a problem, and so was not checked. But on the Ariane 5, it quickly exceeded the space available for the value within the SRI, and the system threw out an operand error. But this alone was not what brought the rocket down. If everything went wrong with the flight of a rocket and things were clearly going to end in disaster, the SRI had been programmed to do a few admin tasks on the way out. Most importantly, it dumped all the data about what it was doing to a separate storage location. This would be vital data in any post-disaster investigation, so it was worth making sure it was saved. Like someone using their last breath to yell, tell my spells I love them, only it was a processor shouting, tell my debugger the following failure context data. In the Ariane 4 system, the data would be sent from the SRI to some external storage. Unfortunately, in the new Ariane 5 setup, this crash report was sent down the main connection from the SRI to the onboard computer. The new Ariane 5 onboard computer had never been warned that it might get a diagnostic report should the SRI have bit the bullet. So it assumed that this was just more flight information and tried to read the data as if it were angles and velocities. It's an oddly similar situation to when Pac-Man has an overflow error and tries to interpret the game data as if it were fruit data. Except now there are explosives involved. Having assumed the error port was navigation information, the best interpretation the onboard computer could come up with was that the rocket had suddenly swerved off to the side. So it did the logical thing in that situation and executed the rocket equivalent of steering wildly in the opposite direction. There was nothing wrong with the link between the onboard computer and the pistons which aimed its thrusters, so this command was followed, ironically making the rocket veer abruptly off to the side. This was enough to spell doom for the Ariane 5 rocket. It would have hit the ground before too long, but in the end, the high-speed maneuver partially ripped the booster rockets off the main rocket body, which is universally considered to be rather a bad thing. And so the onboard computer correctly decided to call it a day and deployed the self-destruct system, raining fragments of the four cluster satellites all over the mangrove swamp below. The final hole in the cheese is that the horizontal velocity sensor was not even needed during the launch. It was actually used to calibrate the rocket's position pre-launch and not required at all during takeoff. Except when Ariane 4 launches were aborted before liftoff, it was a real pain to reset everything once the sensors were off. So it was decided to wait about 50 seconds into the flight before turning them off to make sure it had definitely launched. This was no longer required in the Ariane 5, but it lived on as a piece of vestigial code. In general, reusing code without retesting can cause all sorts of problems. Remember the Therac 25 radiation therapy machine? 
which had a 256 rollover problem and accidentally overdosed people. During the course of the resulting investigation, it was found that its predecessor, the Therac 20, had the same issues in its software, but it had physical safety locks to stop overdoses, so no one ever noticed the programming error. The Therac 25 reused the code, but did not have those physical checks, so the rollover error was able to manifest itself in disaster. If there is any moral to this story, it's that when you are writing code, remember that someone may have to comb through it and check everything when it is being repurposed in the future. It could even be you long after you have forgotten the original logic behind the code. For this reason, programmers can leave comments in their code, which are little messages to anyone else who has to read their code. The programmer mantra should be always comment on your code and make the comments helpful. I've reviewed dense code I wrote years before, only to find the comment is, good luck, future Matt. Invaders of space. Programming is such a great combination of complexity and absolute certainty. Any one line of code is completely defined. A computer would do exactly what the code says. But determining the end result of a lot of code interacting is rather difficult, and this can make debugging code an emotional experience. At the very bottom are what I call level zero programming mistakes. This is where the line of code itself is wrong. Something as seemingly inconsequential as a forgotten semicolon can bring the whole program grinding to a halt. Languages use things like semicolons, brackets, and line breaks to indicate the beginnings and ends of statements and will freak out if they are missing. Many a programmer has spent hours yelling at their screen because their code refuses to work at all, only to discover they were missing an invisible tab. These mistakes are the programming equivalents of typos. In 2006, a group of molecular biologists had to retract five research papers, including publications in science and one in nature, because of a mistake in their code. They had written their own program to analyze data about the structure of biological molecules. However, it was accidentally flipping some positive values to be negative and vice versa. And this meant that part of the structure they published was the mirror image of the correct arrangement. From the retraction of structure of MSBA from E. coli, this program, which was not part of a conventional data processing package, converted the anomalous pairs I positive and I negative to F negative and F positive, therefore introducing a sign change. A typo in a single line of code can do enormous damage. In 2014, a programmer was doing some maintenance on their server and wanted to delete an old backup directory called something like forward slash docs slash my backup slash. But they accidentally typed it as forward slash docs slash my backup space slash. That's a single extra space. Here is what the full line they typed into their computer was. And I cannot overstress this enough. Do not type anything even remotely like this into your computer as it can delete everything you love and hold dear. sudo rm dash rf dash dash no preserve root forward slash doc slash my backup space slash. Sudo, that means super user do. It tells the computer you are a super user and it should do whatever you say without question. 
rm, that's remove, synonymous with delete, dash rf, that's recursive force, forces the command to run recursively across a whole directory, dash dash no preserve root means nothing is sacred. So now, instead of deleting one directory called forward slash doc slash my backup space slash, it was going to delete two of them, forward slash doc slash my backup and forward slash. The funny thing about forward slash is that it represents the root directory of the computer system, the absolute base level directory which contains all other folders. A single forward slash is basically the whole computer. There are several rm-rf stories online about people who have deleted everything on their computer or, in some cases, everything on an entire company's computers, all because of a single typo. I also consider mistakes to be level zero, which are not true typos as such, but more like translation issues. A programmer has the steps in their head they want the computer to do, but they need to translate them from human thought into a programming language the computer can understand. Mistakes in translation can render a statement incomprehensible, like the Szechuan dish which sometimes appears translated on menus as saliva chicken. No one is going to order that. The original meaning of mouth-watering chicken has been broken. The concept of equals can be translated into computer language as either a single equals sign or two of them equals equals. In many computer languages, a single equals is a command to make things equal, whereas equals equals is a question about whether things are equal. Something like a cat name equals Angus will name your cat Angus, but cat name equals equals Angus will return true or false depending on what the cat's name already is. Use the wrong one and the code will break. Some computer languages try to make your life as easy as possible by meeting you halfway and putting in some effort to understand what you are trying to say, which is why, as a hobbyist programmer, I use Python, the friendliest of all the languages. After that are the languages which don't make any concession if the coder makes mistakes, but at least they're not malicious about it. These are the vast majority of your coding options, C++, Java, Ruby, PHP, and so on. Then, of course, there are the languages which hate the very concept of humans. These are born because programmers think they're hilarious, and that making deliberately unwieldy programming languages is almost a sport. The classic is a language called Brainfuck, which I've censored here. I feel its official polite company name of BF does not do it justice. In Brainfuck, there are only eight possible symbols. Right arrow, left arrow, plus sign, subtract sign, open square brackets, close square brackets, comma, and full stop. Which means even the most simple programs come across like plus, 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 open square brackets, right arrow, plus, 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 left arrow, subtract, close square brackets, and so on. While brain is often written off as a joke language, I think it is actually worth learning because it deals directly with the way a programming language stores and manipulates data. It's like interacting directly with the hard drive. Imagine a computer program looking at one single byte in the memory at a time. Left arrow and right arrow move the point of focus left and right. Plus and minus increase or decrease the current value. Open square bracket and close square bracket are used to run loops, while full stop and comma are the read and write commands. 
which is all any computer program is ever doing. It's just hidden behind other layers of translation. If you want a language which is just obfuscating for the hell of it, then whitespace is your new best bet. It ignores any visible characters in the code and processes only the invisible ones. So to code in whitespace, you can only use combinations of spaces, tabs, and returns. Combined with a different language, which ignores spaces, tabs, and line breaks, this means it is possible to write bilingual code, which can be parsed by two different programming languages. And that is before we get to programming languages in which you're only allowed to use the word chicken. The code needs to be formatted like you're ordering at a drive through window. Everything is written as sheet music. I think, due to survivor bias, programmers tend to be a sadistic bunch who enjoy frustration. Ignoring typos and languages which are deliberately out to hurt you, there is a whole class of programming errors which I consider classic coding mistakes. They are easiest to spot in older programs, which were deliberately super efficient to run on limited power hardware. This caused the coders to get a bit creative, and that then led to some unexpected knock-on effects. The people programming the Space Invaders arcade game were so worried about saving space in the limited ROM on the chip, they tried to cut as many corners as possible. The efficiencies in Space Invaders led to a number of quirks, which were exploited by players, but some are so niche, I don't think any players even know about them, let alone utilize them. They lie in the gray area between outright programming error and unintended consequences. During a game of Space Invaders, the player could shoot at the descending aliens, the occasional mystery ship that would fly across the top of the screen, and their own protective shields. The program would need to check if a shot fired hit anything important. Collision detection can be a difficult bit of code to write, and the programmers behind Space Invaders were looking for ways to simplify the process. They realized that all shots either hit something or go off the top of the screen. So after each shot is fired, the program waits to see if the bullet hits a mystery ship or goes off the screen. If neither of those happens, then it checks the Y coordinate of the collision to see how high it was. If it is higher than the lowest alien, then it must have hit an alien. There are no other options. Only now does the which alien was hit part of the code start up. It's a bit like the SRI processor on the Ariane rockets. Assumptions are made about what kind of data can reach it, and checks are only run when really needed. The aliens are arranged in a grid with five rows of 11 aliens. To keep track of all 55 aliens, the program numbers them from 0 to 54 and uses the formula of 11 times row plus column equals alien to take the collision row, 0 to 4, and column, 0 to 10, and convert it into the number of the alien which was hit. This all worked fine unless the player strategically shot all the aliens except the upper left one. This is the alien in row 4, column 0, which means it is alien number 11 times 4 plus 0 equals 44. The player then watches alien 44 move from side to side, slowly descending, until it is about to hit the left side of the screen on its final pass just above the player's shields. At that moment, the player shoots its own shield on the rightmost side of the screen. The game registers this as a hit within the grid of aliens and assumes an alien must have been hit. The shield is so far to the right, it is where the 12th row would have been, 
but the code doesn't stop to check. It dutifully converts the collision's horizontal coordinate into a row number and gets 11, outside the normal range of column 0 to 10. Putting this incorrect column number into the formula gives 11 times 3 plus 11 equals 44, and the alien on the far side of the screen explodes. Okay, so that is not a groundbreaking mistake, but it shows you how even a system as simple as Space Invaders can end up in situations the programmers did not see coming. The original Space Invaders code was not commented, but there is an online project at computerarchaeology.com to go through and comment about it all with modern notes. It's a fun read. I enjoy any code which has comments like, Get alien status flag. Is the alien alive? I mean, any comments which are not a past version of me being a jerk are a bonus. The 500-mile email. Being a system administrator or sysadmin for a large computer network is a daunting enough task without it being a computer network at a university in the late 90s. University departments can be a little touchy about their autonomy and throw in the Wild West feel of the early web in the 90s, and it's a recipe for complex disaster. Thus it was with some trepidation that Trey Harris, a sysadmin for the University of North Carolina, took a phone call from the head of the statistics department sometime around 1996. They had a problem with their email. Some departments had decided to run their own email servers, including the statistics department, and Trey informally helped them out with keeping them going, which meant this was now, informally, his problem. We're having a problem sending email out of the department. Oh, what's the problem? We can't send mail more than 500 miles. Come again? The head of statistics explained that no one in the department could send email more than about 520 miles. Some emails sent to people within that distance still failed, but all emails going further than 520 miles definitely failed. This had apparently been going on for a few days, but they didn't report it sooner because they were still gathering enough data to establish the exact distance. One of their geostatisticians was apparently making a very nice map of where email could and could not be sent to. In disbelief, Trey logged into their system and sent some test emails via their servers. Local emails and ones sent to Washington, D.C., 240 miles, Atlanta, 340 miles, and Princeton, 400 miles, were all delivered fine. But emails to Providence, 580 miles, Memphis, 600 miles, and Boston, 620 miles, all failed. He nervously sent an email to a friend of his who he knew lived nearby in North Carolina, but whose email server was in Seattle, 2,340 miles. Thankfully, it failed. If the emails somehow knew the geographic location of their recipient, then Trey would have broken down in tears. At least the problem had something to do with the distance to the receiving server. But nothing in email protocols depended on how far the signal needed to go. He cracked open the sendmail.cf file, a file which contains all the details and rules which govern how email is sent. Whenever an email is sent, it checks in with this file to get the instructions required to then be passed on to the actual email system responsible for the sending. It looked familiar because Trey had written it himself. Nothing was out of order, it 
should have worked nicely with the send mail system. So he checked the main department system, uh, telnetted into the SMTP port, for those of you who want to follow along in excruciating detail, and was greeted by the Sun operating system. A bit of digging revealed that the statistics department had recently had their service copy of Sun OS upgraded, and the upgrade came with a default version of SendMail 5. Previously, Trey had set up the system to use SendMail 8, but now the new version of SunOS had come barging in and downgraded it to SendMail 5. Trey had written the SendMail.cf file, assuming it would only ever be read by SendMail 8. Okay, if you glossed over during that, you can tune back in now. The short version is that the instructions for sending email had been written for a newer system, and when it was fed into an older system, it caused that classic problem yet again, a computer program trying to digest data that was not intended for it. One part of that data was the timeout time, and in SendMail 5's indigestion, it had set it to the default value of zero. If a computer server sends out an email and does not hear back, it needs to decide when to stop waiting and call it quits, accepting that email is lost forever. This wait time was now set to be zero. The server would send the email and then immediately give up on it, like parents who have converted their kid's bedroom into a sewing room before they've even finished the journey to university. Well, in practice, it would not be exactly zero. There would still be a processing delay within the program of a few milliseconds between the sending of the email and the system being able to officially abandon it. Trey grabbed some paper and did a few rough calculations. The college itself was directly connected to the internet, so emails could leave the system super quick. The first delay in the signal would be hitting the router at the far end of the journey and a response being sent back. If the receiving server was not under heavy load and could send the response back fast enough, the only remaining limit was the speed of light. Trey factored in the speed of light in fiber optics for the return journey along with router delays and it dropped out at just over 500 miles one way. The emails were being limited by the finite nature of the speed of light. This also explains why some emails were failing within the 500 mile radius. The receiving servers were too slow to get a signal back before the sending system stopped listening. A simple reinstall of SendMail 8 and the SendMail.cf config file was once again being read correctly by the mail server. This goes to show that, even though some sysadmins see themselves as gods on Earth, they still have to obey the laws of physics. Human Interactions In 2001, I was turning on my cobbled-together Windows machine which had almost got me through my university years, and on the BIOS load screen, there it was, in white, chunky text on the black background, keyboard error or no keyboard present, press F1 to continue, delete to enter setup. I had heard of the family of no keyboard detected, press any key to continue, error messages, but had never seen one in the wild. I ran to get my housemate so he could come and see it as well. It was the talk of the house for days to come. Okay, my memory may have inflated the experience slightly. Error messages are a constant source of entertainment in the tech world. But they are there for a reason. 
if a program breaks, a good error message detailing what led up to the disaster can give the person fixing it a rolling start. But many computer error messages are just a code which needs to be looked up. Some of these error codes become ubiquitous enough that the general public understand them. If something goes wrong browsing the web, many people know that uh, error 404 means the site could not be found. Actually, any website error like this starting with a 4 means the fault was at the user's end, like 403, trying to access a forbidden page. And code starting with a 5 are the fault of the server. Error code 503 means the server was unavailable. 507 means its storage is too full. Always hilarious, internet engineers have designated error code 418 as I'm a teapot. It is returned by any internet-enabled teapots which are sent a request to make coffee. It was introduced as part of the 1998 release of Hypertext Coffee Pot Control Protocol, HTCPCP specifications. Originally an April Fool's joke, connected teapots have of course since been made and run according to HTCPCP. An attempt to remove this error in 2017 was defeated by the Save 418 movement, which preserved it as a reminder that the underlying processes of computers are still made by humans. Because they are only intended to be used by tech people, many computer error messages are very utilitarian and definitely not user-friendly. But some serious problems can result when non-technical users are faced with an overly technical error message. This was one of the problems with the Thorac 25 radiation machine with rollover issues. The machine would produce around 40 error messages a day with unhelpful names, and as many of them were not important, the operators got into the habit of quick fixes which allowed them to continue with the treatments. Some of the overdose cases could have been prevented if the operator had not dismissed error messages and continued. In one case, in March 1986, the machine stopped functioning and the error message, malfunction 54, appeared on the screen. Many of the errors were just the word malfunction followed by a number. When malfunction number 54 was looked up, the explanation was that it was a dose input 2 error. In the subsequent inquiry, it was discovered that a dose input 2 error meant that the dose was either too high or too low. All these impenetrable codes and description would be comical if not for the fact that the patient in the malfunction 54 case died from the resulting radiation overexposure. When it comes to medical equipment, bad error messages can cost lives. One of the recommended modifications before the Thorac 25 machines could go back into service was cryptic malfunction messages will be replaced with meaningful messages. In 2009, a collection of UK universities and hospitals banded together to form the ChiMed Project, Computer-Human Interaction for Medical Devices. They thought more could be done to limit the potentially dangerous effects of maths and technology mistakes in medicine, and, much like the Swiss cheese model, they believed that, instead of finding individuals to blame, the system as a whole should be geared to avoid errors. In the medical field, there is the general impression that good people don't make mistakes. Instinctively, we feel that the person who ignored the malfunction 54 message and hit P on the keyboard to proceed with the dose is to blame for the death of that patient. But it's more complicated than that. As Harold Thimbleby from ChiMed points out, 
it's not a good system to simply remove everyone who admits to making a mistake. He said, People who do admit making errors are at best suspended or moved on, thus leaving behind a team who do not make errors and thus have no experience of error management. Harold Thimbleby, Errors and Bugs Needn't Mean Death, Public Service Review, UK Science and Technology, 2011. He points out that, in pharmacy, it is illegal to give a patient the wrong drug. This does not promote an environment of admitting and addressing mistakes. Those who do make a slip-up and admit it might lose their job. This survivor bias means that the next generation of pharmacy students are taught by pharmacists who have never made mistakes. It perpetuates an impression that mistakes are infrequent events. But we all make mistakes. In August 2006, a cancer patient in Canada was put on the chemotherapy drug fluorouracil to be delivered by an infusion pump which would gradually release the drug into their system over four days. Very sadly, due to an error in the way the pump was set up, all the drug was released in four hours and the patient died from the overdose. A simple way to process this is to blame the nurse who set up the pump and maybe the nurse who double-checked their work. But as always, it is a bit more complicated than that. The original order for fluorouracil was hard enough to follow, but it was then passed on to a pharmacist who made up 130 milliliters of a 45.57 milligram per milliliter fluorouracil solution. When this arrived at the hospital, a nurse had to calculate at what rate of release to set the pump. After doing some working out with a calculator, they came to the number of 28.8 milliliters. They looked at the pharmacy label, and sure enough, in the dose section, it listed 28.8 milliliters. But during the calculation, the nurse had forgotten to divide by the 24 hours in a day. They had worked out 28.8 milliliters per day and assumed it was 28.8 milliliters per hour. The pharmacy label actually listed the 28.8 milliliters per day amount first, and after that, in brackets, was the hourly rate of 1.2 milliliters per hour. A second nurse checked their work, and now with no calculator within reach, they did the calculation on a scrap of paper and made exactly the same mistake. Because it matched a number on the packet, they didn't question it. The patient was sent home and was surprised that the pump, which should have lasted four days, was empty and beeping after only four hours. There is a lot that can be learnt from this in terms of how drug dose orders are described and how pharmaceutical products are labelled. There are even lessons in terms of the wide range of complex tasks given to nurses and the support and double-checking that is available. But the ChiMed folks were even more interested in the technology which had facilitated these maths errors. The interface with the pump was complicated and not intuitive. Beyond that, the pump had no built-in checks and happily followed instructions to empty itself at an abnormally fast rate for this drug. For a life-critical pump, it would make sense for it to know what drug is being administered and do a final check on the rate it has been programmed at, and then display an understandable error message. Even more interesting to me is ChiMed's observation that the nurse used a general-purpose calculator that had no idea what calculation was being done. I'd never really thought about how all calculators are general purpose and blindly spit out whatever answer 
matches the buttons you happen to mash. On reflection, most calculators have no error checks built in at all and should not be used in a life or death situation. I mean, I love my Casio FX39, but I wouldn't trust my life to it. ChiMed has since developed a calculator app which is aware of what calculation is being performed on it and blocks over 30 common medical calculation errors. This includes some common errors I think all calculators should be able to catch, like misplaced decimal points. If you want to type 23.14 but accidentally hit 2.3.14, it's a toss-up how your calculator will handle that. Mine shows that I have entered 2.314 and carries on like nothing happened. A good medical calculator will flag up if the numbers entered were at all ambiguous. Otherwise, it's a factor of 10 accident waiting to happen. Programming has inarguably been a huge benefit to humankind, but it is still early days. Complex code will always react in ways its developers did not see coming. But there is the hope that well-programmed devices can add a few extra slices of cheese into our modern systems. Conclusion So, what have we learnt from our mistakes? While I was writing this book on one of our many travels, my wife and I took a break from work and spent a day sightseeing around a generic foreign city. Quite a large and famous city. We did some pretty standard touristic stuff, but then I realised that we were in the same city as an engineering thing a friend of mine had worked on. This friend of mine had been involved in the design and construction of an engineering project, think something like a building or bridge, in the last few decades. They had told me one time over some beers about a mistake they had made in the design process, a mathematical error which had thankfully, made no impact on the safety of this thing at all. But it had changed it slightly in a near-trivial, aesthetic way. Something did not line up in quite the way it was originally planned. And yes, this story is deliberately vague. You see, my uh, eternally supportive wife helped me hunt down the visual evidence of my friend's mathematical mistake so I could take a photo of myself with it. I have no idea what any passers-by thought of me posing with seemingly nothing, but I was so excited. This was going to be a great contemporary example to include in this book. There are plenty of historical engineering mistakes, but my friend is still alive and I could get a personal account of how the mistake was made. It was also nothing dangerous, so I could candidly explain the process behind how it all happened. I'm afraid you can't use that. I could almost hear the regret in their voice at ever having told me about the mistake in the first place, showing them my holiday photos of me with the manifestation of their miscalculation did nothing to persuade them. They explained that while this sort of thing will be discussed and analysed within a company, it is never released or made public at all, even something as inconsequential as this. The contract paperwork and non-disclosure agreements legally restrict engineers from disclosing almost anything about projects for decades after they are completed. So there you are. I can't tell you anything about it at all 
other than that I can't tell you anything about it. And it's not just engineers who are being restricted from speaking publicly. A different mathematical friend of mine does consulting work about the mathematics of a very public-facing area of safety. They will be hired by one company to do some research and uncover industry-wide mistakes. But then, when working for a different company, or even advising the government on safety guidelines, they will not be able to disclose what they previously discovered on someone else's dime. It's all a bit silly. Humans don't seem to be good at learning from mistakes, and I don't have any great solutions. I can totally appreciate that companies don't want their flaws or the research they had to fund to be released freely. And for my friend's aesthetic engineering mistake, it's maybe fine that no one else ever finds out. But I wish there was a mechanism in place to ensure that important, potentially useful lessons could be shared with the people who would benefit from knowing. In this book, I've done a lot of research from accident investigation reports, which are publicly released. But that generally only happens when there is a very obvious disaster. Many more quiet mathematical mistakes are probably swept under the rug. Because we all make mistakes relentlessly, and there's nothing to be feared. Many people I speak to say that when they were at school, they were put off mathematics because they simply didn't get it. But half the challenge of learning maths is accepting that you may not be naturally good at it, but if you put the effort in, you can learn it. As far as I'm aware, the only quote of me that has ever been made into a poster by teachers and put up in their classrooms is, mathematicians aren't people who find maths easy, they're people who enjoy how hard it is. In 2016, I accidentally became the poster child for when your mathematical best is just not good enough. We were filming a YouTube video for the Numberphile channel and I was talking about magic squares. These are grids of numbers which always give the same total if you add the rows, columns or diagonals. I'm a big fan of magic squares and thought it was interesting that no one had ever found a 3x3 magic square made entirely out of square numbers. Nor had anyone managed to prove that no such square existed. It was not the most important open question in mathematics, but I thought it was interesting that it was still unsolved. So I gave it a go. As a programming challenge to myself, I wrote some code to see how close I could get to finding a magic square of squares. And I found this. The top row, 29 squared, 1 squared, 47 squared. Middle row, 41 squared, 37 squared, 1 squared. Bottom row, 23 squared, 41 squared. 29 squared. Every single row adds to 3051. Every single column adds to 3051. One of the diagonals adds to 3051. The other diagonal adds to 4107. So it gives the same total along every row and column, but in only one of the two diagonals. I was one total short of it working. Also, I was using the same numbers more than once, and in a true magic square, all the numbers should be different. So my attempt at a solution had come up short. This did not surprise me. It had already been proven that any successful 3x3 magic square of squares would contain all numbers bigger than 100 trillion. My numbers ranged from 1 squared equals 1 to 47 squared, 2209. I just wanted to give it a go 
and see how far I could get. The video was filmed by Brady Harron, and he was less forgiving, essentially pointing out that my solution was not very good at all. When he asked me what it was called, I knew immediately that if I called it a Parker Square, then it would become a mascot for getting things wrong. Not that I had a choice. Brady called the video The Parker Square, and the rest is history. It became an internet meme in its own right, and instead of not making a big deal about it, Brady released a range of t-shirts and mugs. People take great delight in wearing the t-shirts when they come to see my shows. I keep a collection of photographs of me looking unimpressed next to fans wearing Parker Square t-shirts. This is my life now. I've tried to wrangle the Parker Square back to being a mascot of the importance of giving something a go even when you're likely to fail. The experience people seem to have at school is that getting something wrong in maths is terrible and to be avoided at all costs. But you're not going to be able to stretch yourself and try new challenges without occasionally going wrong. So, as some kind of compromise, the Parker Square has ended up being a mascot for people who give it a go, but ultimately fall short. All of that said, as this book has made clear, there are situations where the mathematics needs to be done correctly. Sure, people playing around with and investigating new maths can make all sorts of mistakes, but once we are using that maths in life-critical situations, we had better be able to consistently get it right. And given that, often we're stretching beyond what humankind is naturally capable of, there are always going to be some mistakes waiting to happen. From Appendix F, Personal Observations on the Reliability of the Shuttle by R.P. Feynman, from Report to the President by the Presidential Commission on the Space Shuttle Challenger Accident, 1986. The Space Shuttle main engine is a very remarkable machine. It has a greater ratio of thrust to weight than any previous engine. It is built at the edge of, or outside of, previous engineering experience. Therefore, as expected, many different kinds of flaws and difficulties have turned up. I believe it is worth being pragmatic when it comes to avoiding disasters. Mistakes are going to happen and systems need to be able to deal with that and stop them from becoming disasters. The ChiMed team who are researching the computer-human interactions with medical devices actually came up with a new version of the Swiss cheese model, which I'm quite partial to, the hot cheese model of accident causation. This turns the Swiss cheese on its side and imagines the slices of cheese are horizontal and mistakes are raining down from the top. Only mistakes which fall down through holes in every layer make it at the bottom to become accidents. The new element is that the cheese slices themselves are hot and parts of them are liable to drip down, causing new problems. Working with medical devices made the ChiMed folks realize that there is a cause of accidents not represented by the Swiss cheese model. Layers and steps within a system could themselves cause mistakes to happen. Adding a new layer does not automatically reduce how many accidents are happening. Systems are more complicated and dynamic than that. They used the example of the barcode medication administration systems which were introduced to use barcodes to reduce pharmacy dispensing mistakes. These systems definitely reduced errors where the wrong medication was given, 
but they also opened up all new ways for things to go wrong. In the interest of saving time, some staff would not bother scanning the barcode on a patient's wristband. Instead, they would wear spare copies of patient barcodes on their belt or stick copies up in supply closets. They would also scan the same medication twice instead of scanning two different containers if they believed them to be identical. Now, having barcodes caused situations where patients and drugs were less thoroughly checked than they were before. If a new system is implemented, humans can be very resourceful when finding new ways to make mistakes. It can be very dangerous when humans get complacent and think they know better than the maths. In 1907, a combination road and railway steel bridge was being built across a section of the St. Lawrence River in Canada, which was over half a kilometre wide. Construction had been going on for some time, but on the 29th of August, one of the workers noticed that a rivet he had put in place about an hour earlier had mysteriously snapped in half. Then, suddenly, the whole south section of the bridge collapsed with a noise that was heard up to 10 kilometres away. Of the 86 people working on the bridge at the time, 75 died. There had been a miscalculation as to how heavy the bridge would be, partly because when the bridge design was increased from 1,600 feet to 1,800 feet, the forces had not been recalculated, so the lower support beams buckled and eventually failed completely. The workers had been voicing their concerns that the beams in the bridge were deforming as it was being constructed for some time, and some of them quit work because they were so worried. But the engineers did not listen to their concerns. Even when the load miscalculation error was discovered, the chief engineer decided to proceed with the construction anyway. They had concluded it would still be fine without doing adequate testing. After the collapse, the bridge was redesigned with the critical load-bearing beams now having twice the cross-sectional area of the ones from the first attempt. This design was successful, and the Quebec Bridge remains in use over a century since it was finished in 1917. But constructing it was not without further problems. When the middle section was being moved into place in 1916, the lifting equipment broke, and that section of bridge dropped into the river. Thirteen workers lost their lives. The middle section sank and remains on the riverbed next to the collapsed first bridge to this day. Construction is a dangerous job, and the slightest mistake can cost lives. Being an engineer or working on any important mathematics is a terrifying job. Because of the Quebec Bridge disaster starting in 1925, any student graduating from an engineering degree in Canada can attend a voluntary ceremony of the calling of an engineer, where they are given a steel ring to remind them of the humility and fallibility of engineers. It can be a tragedy when a mathematician makes a mistake which leads to a disaster, but that does not mean we can do without mathematics. We need engineers designing bridges despite the pressure that comes with it. Our modern world depends on mathematics, and when things go wrong, it should serve as a sobering reminder that we need to keep an eye on the hot cheese, but also remind us of all the maths which works faultlessly around us. Acknowledgements
As always, my wife, Lucy Green, supplied tea and moral support in roughly equal quantities and put up with me occasionally shouting, this whole book is a mistake. My agent, Will Francis, of Junklow and Nesbitt, has once again steered me away from the multiple other books I wanted to write and focused in on this one good idea. My editor, Helen Conford, and substitute editor, Margaret Stead, turned my writing into a book, ably assisted by copy editor Sarah Day and the whole gang at Penguin Random House. Of course, turning the written book into an audiobook came with its own world of fun, so thank you very much to Richard Hughes, who helped record and is producing this, uh, ably assisted by Roy McMillan, who hung around and helped out as well. I much appreciate the incredible amount of time they gave to help me pronounce all sorts of words and names I wouldn't have a clue how to say correctly. Thanks to all the mathematics experts who took time out of their schedules to answer my questions and comment on sections of the book. I have tried to say their names correctly in the text with some success, but so they get their names read out correctly a minimum of once. I'm going to hand over to producer and pronunciation consultant Richard Hughes. So the list of experts includes, but is not limited to... (coughs) Peter Cameron, Moira Dillon, Shurun Eilers, Michael Fletcher, Ben Goldacre, James Grime, Feline Hermans, Hugh Hunt, Peter Nerksey, Lisa Pollock, Bruce Rushin, and Ben Sparks. There we are, Matt. Thanks, Rich. I listened to about 93% of their expert advice. Plus, thanks to the many experts who spoke to me off the record. I'll thank you by not thanking you. Translations from Latin were thanks to John Harvey, and Swiss-German was converted to English with great help from the Valori Opitz family. Charlie Turner fact-checked the crap out of the book, and all remaining errors are hilarious jokes I've demanded be left in. Thanks for additional mass research and checking by Zoe Griffiths and Katie Steckles. Final error spotting was done by Nick Day, Christian Lawson Perfect, and pedant extraordinaire Adam Atkinson. Cheers to the group of people who are as close to colleagues as my ridiculous career allows, Helen Arney and Steve Mould at Festival of the Spoken Nerd, everyone at Queen Mary, University of London, Trent Burton of Trunkland Productions, Rob Easterway of Mass Inspiration, my agent Joe Wonder, and administrator of admin Sarah Cooper. The Parker Square is thanks to Bradley Harron. Consider this a sign of my appreciation, mate. We hope you have enjoyed this Penguin audio production of Humble Pie, a comedy of maths errors, written and read by me, Matt Parker. It was produced by Richard Hughes, and the post-production was done by Richard Hughes. He's very busy. For more audiobook productions, visit us at penguin.co.uk forward slash audio. Copyright in recording, Penguin Audio, 2019. Text copyright, Matt Parker, that's me, 2019. All rights reserved. The moral rights of the author have been asserted. Thanks for listening. The Ned. I mean, end! Audible hopes you've enjoyed this program.